greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to one and all as we begin our service work here today. And we have this opportunity to bring heaven to earth, and that's what we're going to do in our meditation work as we begin. So please go into your heart center, connecting as we ask to fully integrate with our soul, to merge with and integrate with our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence. We see ourselves in a beautiful pillar of light. It is filled with the violet light. It is surrounded by the pink light of divine love. Surrounding that is a beautiful layer of cobalt blue, which offers us divine protection. And around that is the white and gold light of ascension. As we begin, let us envision the planet surrounded by these same colors, the violet ray, the pink ray, the cobalt blue, and the white and gold of ascension. We invite everybody on Earth as well as Gaia to participate here today. We do this by affirming the following. Please say after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so we see everyone joining us in their pillar of light, fully anchored to source, fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth, surrounded by the violet, surrounded by the pink, surrounded by the cobalt blue and white and gold. We see ourselves one with every man, woman, and child connected heart to heart, soul to soul, I am to I am, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. So for one and all, we invite in all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, all of our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots, We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council, 
We welcome the assistance here today of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, the bird kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome our brothers and sisters from the Ascended Master realms, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome our brothers and sisters from the Galactic Federation of Light as well. Especially those healing teams that we work so closely with. From Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We call forth all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service with our intention of bringing heaven to earth, and we welcome the entire company of heaven to assist with this process, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law, each at the level that is right and perfect for each soul on this planet. We call in all the rays, all of the flames, all of the ascension waves, and all of the universal laws. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively to the maximum of each person's potential into every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric fields multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, and superconscious level as well. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies, gifts, and blessings the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy and serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level in love and light and laughter. Just breathe and receive. And we welcome everyone in our circle of support from the very first person that created it to every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every institution, every business and corporation, every nation, every military, 
every government, the legislative branch of each government and all laws created, the executive aspect of each government and all cabinet posts and decision makers, and the judicial aspect of each nation and every judge, national, state, or local for every nation and every legal situation, every aspect of the courts, and all of our weather, whether it's uh, a crazy snow or a, a heat wave, or whether it's icy conditions like we have here in Michigan and all the people that have their power out. Most most across the nation were in Michigan and everyone who's been affected by that in any way. And all of the situations going on in this nation right now and across the world. All of these situations about our weather and climate, all of the situations that create lack or limitation of any kind, whether it's lack of food or lack of water or homelessness or any other situation, we have them all in our circle of support. And it is up to us to hold the image of heaven on earth hold everyone and everything in our highest intentions, in our high heart, and hold that vision of this new golden age as we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. And we call in everyone's attention whether it's on football or whether it's on hockey or whether it's on award shows or anything else going on on the planet, all of the cosmic events that are taking place. We call everybody's energy across the planet to work with us. We call it into our collective cup of consciousness to create heaven on earth. And we call in Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras, the meridians, and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution, along with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We call forth the Sapphire Blue Ray, the ray of divine will, divine power, divine truth, divine strength, divine protection, and divine perfection. As we call it in for ourselves, we call it in for every man, woman, and child, and we say... I am my I am presence, and the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. I am invoking Mother, Father, God, 
the mighty Elohim, the archangels, and the ascended and cosmic beings associated with God's will. Blessed ones, come forth now. Blaze, 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 the most intensified activity of God's will and protection that the earth and humanity can receive during this cosmic moment. Project the sacred fire in through and around all life on earth. On behalf of all humanity, I am the open door for this holy light. And I am within everyone commanding God's will now done through everyone. On behalf of all humanity, I am the open door for this holy light. And I am within everyone commanding God's will now done through everyone. On behalf of all humanity, I am the open door for this holy light. And I am within everyone, commanding God's will now done through everyone. And so it is. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am the cosmic blue lightning of God's will. Now dissolving all opposition to the acceptance and manifestation of God's will as a way of life and service for every person evolving on earth now and forever. I am the cosmic blue lightning of God's will now dissolving all opposition to the acceptance and manifestation of God's will as a way of life and service for every person involving on earth now and forever. I am the cosmic blue lightning of God's will, now dissolving all opposition to the acceptance and manifestation of God's will as a way of life and service for every person evolving on earth now and forever. And so it is. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the acceptance. I am the restoration. And I am the divine manifestation of God's will. As a way of life and service, for every person evolving on earth, now and forever. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the acceptance. I am the restoration. And I am the divine manifestation of God's will as a way of life and service for every person evolving on earth, now and forever.
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the acceptance. I am the restoration. And I am the divine manifestation of God's will as a way of life and service for every person evolving on earth, now and forever. And so it is. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. Take a nice deep breath as we continue to work with this energy. Beloved presence of God, Goddess I am, within me and within all humanity. Beloved ascended masters, mighty cosmic beings, legions of light throughout infinity, and the great cosmic momentum of God's will for all life evolving on this planet. Come into action now. Blaze the full gathered cosmic momentum of God's will and God's divine plan for every man, woman, and child on this planet through the hearts and minds of every soul. Manifest now. Manifest now. Manifest now. The full power of God's will in, through, and around the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies of every person on earth. Blaze the power of God's will directly into all that opposes the dignity of women, of men, of children, and of family life. Transmute and dissolve forever the cause, core, effect, record, and memory of all behavior that is not reflecting God's will and oneness and reverence for a life. Replace every destructive behavior pattern with goodness, honor, reverence, and respect for the divinity within every man, woman, and child until the full expression of the I am presence is manifest within every soul. Great ascended host of light, I thank you for the fulfillment of this divine fiat, which I decree in the name of God, Goddess, I am. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this as we anchor the will of God, knowing the will of God is light, The will of God is love. The will of God is good. The will of God is grace. The will of God is peace. The will of God is purity. The will of God is balance. The will of God is health. The will of God is abundance. The will of God is kindness. The will of God is unity. The will of God is happiness. The will of God is harmony. The will of God is perfection. And so it is. We call forth that pink light once again. The rays of divine love. And we decree for ourselves and for all people. I am all love. O supreme presence of God, Goddess, within all life, into your eternal heart of love, 
do I immerse myself and all life on this sweet earth. I consciously surrender my vehicles to be merged with the love nature of your being until I am a pure focus of love, a living jewel in your crown of adoration. The path I walk in life leads only to love. My physical body filled with love becomes shining and invincible. My etheric body radiating love transmutes the past. Love in my mind ensures the expression of your divine thoughts. Love in my feelings reaffirms that God Goddess is the only power acting. As I am thinking, feeling, and remembering only love, I know that my I am presence is working through me, radiating forth the perfection of my omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Father, Mother, God. All that is to humanity and all life, which I have promised to love free. In this awakened consciousness of divine love, my spirit becomes Holy Spirit. And I am the love of God, Goddess, reaching out to claim this earth. In love, I magnetize all God's blessings to me. And in love, I radiate these blessings forth to all life around me. I am the spirit of love, permeating form until all is drawn back into the indivisible whole. I feel the pulse beat of love in all life and the continuity of love in all of the experiences I have ever known. It is all love. I was born out of love. I'm evolving through love. And I am ascending back into love. I am all love and I am grateful. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath as we integrate this for ourselves and humanity. We're going to call in the Mahama energy and do a special meditation that is a Mahama activation. The Mahama is the living consciousness of the I am presence of the creator that is present at the center of everything within this creation. It is considered to be the energy, all 352 levels directly to source. was given this name from Archangel Metatron. So we call this forth at this time. As we sit or are lying down comfortably with our spine straight and legs not crossed. Take this moment to look upward through the crown chakra to the source. In this case, we're talking about the source 
star chakra, six to eight feet above your head. Visualize it, feel it, or simply intend that is there. It is there. It can be perhaps seen as a sphere of light or a 12-faceted star. We take three deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth to center ourselves further and connect on a deeper level. As you do, visualize a magnificent white light flowing down through your crown chakra, then into your neck, down into your shoulders and arms, pouring through your chest and down through your torso, into your buttocks and into your thighs, down through your calves, down into the ankles, into your toes and the soles of your feet. You feel energized and calm. Take three deep breaths. Get in through the nose, out through the mouth. Archangel Metatron, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart of the source I am. Open, open, open the very heart of the source council of 12 I am. Open, open, open the very heart of the oversoul body of light I am. Mahatma, Mahatma, Mahatma I am. Archangelic kingdom of light I am. Open, open, open and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights I am. Lord Maitreya Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, come in please. Surrounding us now in a six foot in diameter, living liquid, golden white crystal sphere of the consciousness of the source I am and sealing it now that only love and light may pass through, bringing all polarities within this sphere into a state of union, fusion. Lord Kachumi, 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 Office of the Christ, come in, please. Please open our heart chakras now. Placing within them fifth, sixth, and seventh dimensional rose pink crystal hearts of your unconditional love and deep compassion. Ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am. Lord Melchizedek, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart and councils of 12 of the galactic level. Oh, sorry. Of the universal level of your beingness, I am. Lord Melchior, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart and councils of 12 of the galactic level of your beingness, I am. Lord Helios, 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 and Lady Vesta, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart and councils of 12 of the solar Christ conscious level of your beingness, I am. And ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights I am. Metatron, 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 open, open, open our crown chakras now as one, please. 
releasing now from the very heart of the source I am, a trinitized river of living liquid crystal light, brilliant diamond white light of the source I am, brilliant aqua blue diamond light of the divine feminine I am, and brilliant golden yellow diamond light of the divine masculine I, I am. Three as one, now pouring in through the crown chakra, into all the cells of the brain, into the midbrain hypothalamus receptor of light, into the 12 major cranial nerves, down into the medulla oblongata brainstem, and down into the electromagnetic spinal cord, and flowing out into the entire central peripheral and autonomic nervous system of the body now, touching deeply into every gland, every organ, every body system, every cell now receiving the trinitized presence of the source I am. Archangel Raziel, 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 come in please. Open, open, open our pituitary and pineal chakras and ignite, ignite, ignite the Antakarana rainbow bridge of light, connecting the two and all that is above to all that is below I am. Lord Sanat Kamara, Sanat Kamara, Sanat Kamara, come in please. Open, open, open our occipital medulla chakras and ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am. Lord Gautama Buddha, Gautama Buddha, Gautama Buddha, Lord of the earth, come in please. Open, open, open the throat chakra and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights I am. Archangel Kamiel, 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 Lord of the heart chakra. Come in, please. And the four archangels of the golden pyramid of lights, I am. Come in, please. Now, taking three very deep breaths, we pass into the heart chakra, into your sacred temple of your own creation. Perhaps it appears as Greek, Atlantean, Egyptian, Tibetan, Mayan, whatever form you choose. See this temple, feel it, experience it, be it a sphere, a crystal cavern, a pyramid or a cube of space. See the temple pillars and walls with the sacred statues and altars of the members of your special spiritual family of the stars. You are the star seed, and it is time for the sleepers to awaken. So within this temple of your own creation, see yourself now seated upon a golden throne, encrusted perhaps with faces and sacred jewels, and see your naked golden innocent body resting comfortably upon this golden throne of vibrant living light. Across the temple in front of you, on the opposing wall, You see a fireplace of your own choosing. Ignite, ignite, ignite it with your sacred breath now. And see emanating from the fireplace 
a living cosmic fire with all of the 12 rays easily visible. Bask in the radiation of the 12, your council of 12. See placed upon your feet as you now bend down seated upon the throne. See upon your feet beautiful golden sandals encrusted with precious stones of your own choosing. Place upon your sacred body golden robes. And above the left breast on the robe, you see your sacred name and golden letters of flame. And you acknowledge yourself as the I am. Place in your right hand now a golden orb of your spiritual authority surmounted by a sacred symbol of your choice. Perhaps it is an equal armed cross, a six-pointed star, a five-pointed star, or whatever symbol suits you. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am. In your left hand, place your symbol of power as a co-creator, be it a shepherd's crook, a royal flail, a magician's wand, or a crystal wand, and please place where you will the multicolored crystals representing the Council of Twelve. See the descending pillar of light from source I am now placing upon your head a golden crown of your own choosing, encrusted with twelve diamonds. This is the symbol of your divinity. See, sense, and feel that now. Now, as you once again breathe deeply three times, inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth, bring this throne to life into a new level of vibration. See Kamil standing within your body, crowned to base chakra in a pillar of living crystal flame of brilliant rose pink. And now before you to the left, we now call in Archangel Mikael, 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 come in please. In your pillar of living crystal flame of royal blue and ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Clothe us with your silver armor and the spiritual protection that we require at this time. Looking before you to the right, we invoke Archangel Raphael, 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 come in please. And your pillar of living crystal flame of yellow-orange. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Please invest our consciousness with the higher mind of the Sophia, the divine wisdom. Behind us to the right, we call in Archangel Gabriel, 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 come in please in your pillar of living crystal flame of scarlet red. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Blow your sacred crystal trumpet and begin the etheric ascension, the dissension of the Mahatma within the whole cellular activation. And when that is, this is complete, begin the spiritual ascension and integration of the body of light, which follows in its proper time. 
Behind us to the left, Archangel Oriel, 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 come in place in your pillar of living crystal flame of blue violet and ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. And Oriel, mistress of the veils, begin now to take down all the veils that have shielded our spiritual powers and awareness for so long and so bad. Open, 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 solar plexus chakra. Open, 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 sexual co-creator chakra. And ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights I am. Archangel Sandalphon, 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 come in please. Open, open, open the base root chakra. And open, open, open the very heart of the mother of the earth I am. Lady Gaia, 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 come in please. Rising up through the breath into the base root chakra. Through the central pillar, up onto the golden throne of the heart chakra, I am. Embrace, 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 and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights, I am. Archangel Metatron, anchor the pillar of lights into the very heart of the source, I am. Archangel Sandalphon, anchor the pillar of lights into the very heart of the earth, I am. Archangel Kamiel, anchor the pillar of lights in ever-succeeding and expanding spheres of rose-pink light, crystal light, into the source cosmic heart I am. And ignite, ignite, ignite the triple flame of source within our hearts of our pure beingness I am. Archangel Metatron, 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 Lord of Lights, open, open, open our crown chakras as one. And open, open, open the crown of the source I am. Archangel Sandalphon, Sandalphon, Sandalphon. Open, open, open our base root chakras as one. And open, open, open the very heart of the mother of the earth I am. Archangel Kamio, Kamio, Kamio. Open, open, open our blessed heart chakras as one. And open, open, open the very heart of the source I am. Open, 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 soul star and hand chakras. Open, 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 earth star and feet chakras. Ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar crystal, platinum crystal pillar of lights I am. Open, open, open the platinum pyramid of lights within our heart chakras I am. Lord El Moria and Lady Desira, open, anchor and ignite the diamond capstone of the platinum pyramid of lights I am. Open, open, open the platinum crystal star of David and ignite, ignite, ignite the triple flame of source, sapphire, blue, ruby, red, and golden topaz within the heart chakras I am. Open, anchor, and ignite the 12-dimensional platinum crystal shield of light to protect and strengthen my auric field so bad and so it is and we give thanks for this we give thanks for this we give thanks for this take a nice deep breath as we integrate this take a nice deep breath as we give thanks to the entire company of heaven for being here to support us in this work. 
I'm going to take this time. Let's anchor ourselves back into our room, back into our body, carrying all of the exquisite energies that we have invoked. And I give thanks to each of you for doing this service work with us here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It is so important at this time. And you are invited to join us for further service work every Sunday and Monday evening where we gather on the telephone and we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time for greetings of about 25 minutes. Tara and Rama give us a brief update. And then at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth in earnest. We have a new number that we're giving out. Um, this is, seems to be working better um, than the um, previous main number that we've been using. So the number I'm going to give you, if you haven't taken it down before, make sure you have this number as well. Area code 480-660-2224. Again, area code 480-660-2224. The code is always the same, 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND. Now, I do have a long list of numbers that can be used. I have international numbers. There's a way to get on through the Internet. If you need that additional information, please contact me by email and put up the title, Ascension Call. And my email is my name, Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, Croci, C-R-O-C-I, all one at AOL.com. So Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. So with this, I'm going to leave you to go ahead and create heaven on earth this week. May magic and miracles follow each and every one of you each and every day. And infinite blessings to you and yours at this most sacred time on the planet. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. We want to thank Tarn Rama for their divine service for so many, so many years. And we thank Greenberg for her service as well as I pass the talking stick. It has all of these amazing colors. It has the violet, the pink, the cobalt blue, the white and the gold. It has the sapphire blue and the um, pink of divine love, the rose pink. And every frequency that we could ever desire, anything that is required to create heaven on earth with all of our elemental energy and our gemstone energy and our fairy energy and all of the beautiful beings that work with us each week. So blessings to you all. I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick.
And thank you for your divine services as well. We're so grateful for your meditations here to start the day. So lots of gratitude. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. We have fees with BBS Radio each week. And this month it's been $260 a week, and we're behind. So we need, and don't get shocked, $1,037 to break even with BBS Radio. So we just all need to pitch in and make it happen, and just go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then uh, go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2, and you'll find the listings there on the menu uh, for the different programs. And on Saturdays, it's the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins with Tara and Rala. As you click on that icon there, it'll take you directly to our account. So that 1.30 hour is a Pacific time. So calculate that appropriately <laughs> and then we also have two programs on radio station one it's on thursday it's the night at the round table with the panel at the six o'clock hour and then on friday at six o'clock hour hard news on friday nights with tara and rama and so either one of those, you can click on the icon there, and that'll link you to our account with CBS Radio. So that's how we make that, take that action. So thank you for taking that action and making that contribution. We're so grateful for your participation, and we're grateful for all the ways you show up in your life. And this is a good way to do it right now so we can catch up. We're grateful for all the services that BBS Radio offers us. And, uh, yeah, I'm real grateful for all of you for showing up and attending and being a part of this community online. And um, so thank you. And then also we're assisting Tara and Lala with their needs. And, of course, their rent is due on Tuesday at the end of the month. And there are people contributing regularly for that, and we thank you for that. We also can need help for, from others with that as well. Uh, as there are also other expenses, there's $400 in bills that are due um, this week coming up. And there's um, $250 still left to pay for the car that is now fixed and running well, and we still owe the mechanic some money. So $250 takes care of that. And then for basics, they need $200. And uh, there you go. That's all they need. <laughs> so here's how I make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to access Rama's PayPal account. And you can do that two ways. One way is through the web address. So that web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you'll find the window, the, the, the menu grid. And as you click on that, a, a um, window will drop down or the, the list will drop down of all the things on that website. Near the bottom of that list, you'll see the donate link. Click on that. 
and that'll direct you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And then the other option is to just put in Rama's email at PayPal and that email address from Rama at PayPal is Koran9999 at hotmail.com. And um, so you access that if you want to just go to paypal.com and just put that in the gifting spot. You put in that email, and I'll say it again, Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999-49, at hotmail.com. So either way is perfect. One of them is the, the the latter there is the friends and family option. And the former has the commercial charges to it. Either way is perfect. Again, I think we are so grateful for your contribution. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. And as you do, please let Rama know what you sent and when you sent it. In that email for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999, at Comcast.net. Koran999 at Comcast.net. I'll repeat. And then also, as you need it, there is a mailing address if you if you need that. So here it is. Rob D. Berkowitz. R-A-M-D. Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280. Um, and it's 280, Post Office Box 280. And then that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. And I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. There you have it. All the information. And reach deep in your pockets this week. Let's see what we can do, what miracles we can manifest. as we're into manifesting miracles on this planetary day and working with our abundance. So let's just do that. And and again, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And it's just full of all those beautiful rays, the, the violet, the pink, the sapphire blue, the rose pink, platinum, the gold, and just every frequency out there. <laughs> uh, and then all kinds of elementals and lots of gem energy from minerals and uh, tons of fairies and feathers and dragons and unicorns. So greeting, guitar and Rama, here comes his talking stick. Greetings, everyone. Say hi. Greetings. Oh, my. Um, there is a definite sense as we're looking at the news that there's an acceleration of accountability coming forward, I think I can safely say that. What do you think, Mama? Yes. Um, 
So that means we maintain the power of the positive thought, meditate, um, send more love, and uh, I guess become would be a order of the day. Yes. And may peace prevail on earth. And Rama's got a message right from today. Did you get somebody to talk to you? Yes. I received a text message from Tom and sweet Angelique Cat. And um, it was a little after 12, but 15 after 12. And they said that there are intense gamma rays coming in from the great central sun to our sun that's affecting all the planets and us. And it's raising everything up. And as if it wasn't raised enough already. And the magnetic waves that are coming in from the sun, solar flares, it's big. I've been seeing M-class flares today, and the way on uh, spaceweather.com and something called solarhamradio.com, the the eruptions on the sun are just like huge and um, the plasma is going out into space and some of it is kind of like glancing off the earth's magnetic shield field yet as it filters down everybody's affected They've been seeing aurora borealises in Maine, uh, this gamma green light, the emerald green ray, the lime green ray, and pink and magenta. And these are the different rare earth gases that are in the atmosphere, and the particles in the gases are sentient. This goes into the realm of our DNA, the DNA of every living thing, whether it's animal, vegetable, mineral. It's all being affected by these gamma ray light energies. And as we're getting lifted up, the dark's getting, uh, getting exposed. I'll just put it politely like that in a huge way. The stories about um, the Khazarian Mafia versus, you know, the other players in the story. After the fall of the Tower of Babel, Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon was a giant spaceport, like... um, in Star Wars, Nimrod was another space city. Uh, 
Sodom and Gomorrah were not these uh, backward stories of people living in caves. They were prosperous cities of commerce and exchange and cultural ideas from all over the galaxy during the time when Babylon... So they had modern technology, too? Modern technologies, Mm -hmm. yes. And... um, then they played They've around. They've been going backwards ever since, is that what you're saying? Well, they played around with the nukes and caused the destruction. Right. And, you know, here we are again toying with that idea. And I just keep being told every single day that even though they're playing with these stories, it's about the final fear card because... You know, blaze the violet fire. Uh, this is what Tom and Sweet Angelique are saying. You know, don't try to convince anyone. They'll see it when the energies come in. And, um, <laughs> oh, I'll just say Joy Reed will have an interesting story to tell. And I'll leave it there. I passed the stalking stick. Well, we better get started. That's what we better do because of the yeah. time. We're going to have two hours and 21 minutes for starters uh, of Dr. Stephen Greer. Mystery behind UFO, UAPs, alien phenomena, and the secret government. And I don't think I need to elaborate. Let's mm. do it. Two hours and 21 minutes. Mm. Okay, just a minute. Dr. Stephen Greer is one of the world's foremost authorities on the subject of UFOs, extraterrestrial intelligence, and exotic technologies. For more than 30 years, Dr. Greer has provided briefings for senior government officials across the globe, conducted numerous media interviews, and delivered hundreds of lectures. He has written five books and produced four feature film documentaries that have been seen by hundreds of millions of people. He is currently working on a documentary scheduled for release in late 2023 called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. The documentary addresses how energy solutions have been suppressed in the past and how they could now come out for the benefit of all mankind using an open source strategy. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been telling you that I was going to dive into this subject for a long time, and now we have one of the leading experts on extraterrestrials and free energy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Stephen Greer to the Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't, please go down, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, leave us a comment, and share this information with everybody you know. I want to give a special thanks to all of our patrons for supporting the show. It's because of you guys that this happens. I also want to thank everybody who's just watching the show and sharing it. If you can't join Patreon, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and then head over to Spotify and leave us a review over there. All right, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Stephen Greer to The Sean Ryan Show. This proven enzyme twist will balance your blood sugar all day long. Put one drop under your tongue after 
after you eat and dizziness nor Dr. Greer, welcome to the Sean Ryan Show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you sitting across there. I've been following your work for a while now. I've watched all the documentaries. It's fascinating information that you're that you're putting out. Mm-hmm. I I can't believe you're even sitting here. Um, <laughs> well, it's just it's a real honor. But it's an honor to be with you, and thank you for your, your service and everyone listening who served our country. I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. So just a little bit about you. Um, I gave you an introduction uh, just a few seconds ago, but you've briefed every president since Bill Clinton on the subject of UFOs. You have three personal friends that have been assassinated since, I believe, May 9th of 2001. And those were before. Those were before. Yeah. May 9th, the reason I bring up May 9th, 2001, is that's when you folks first hosted the National Press Club for the U.S. UFO Disclosure Project, which ironically was just four months before September 11th, 2001, where over 20 intelligence officers came forward with information about UFOs, right? whistleblowers. The main reason you're here is whistleblowers. Would you like to go in there? Yeah, I do. And I, I want to start early on. So the way this evolved in uh, the early 90s, I'd started a, pro- <clears throat> project, a project dealing with this. And uh, we had set up a protocol where we had made contact with these objects. That ended up being on the front page of the Pensacola, Florida paper. Army intelligence and CIA found out about it. And then they came in. And started asking me, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And that started a whole process where um, people in, there were friendlies and unfriendlies in the, in the U.S. government and other governments who reached out. And the friendlies were people who were very much read into some of these projects who knew that they had been managed illegally. Uh, and they began to advise me. Now, I'm not never been in the U.S. government, never been in the military, never been in the intelligence community. So I started out pretty cold and pretty green. Um, and I'm an emergency doctor, trauma, you know, big ER. Each of us saw 6,000 people a year. The gun and knife club, we called it. And uh, by 93, I was being asked to go up and brief um, the director of the CIA for Bill Clinton, uh, R. James Woolsey. Now, you know, 
I'm a 30 some year old medical doctor going up and I, the letter that came to me, and this is the key point I want to make stated, and I have it, it's in my archive. It's going to come out pretty soon publicly. And it says, you're going to be the first person to brief the Clinton administration and the director of the CIA on this issue because they made inquiries and have been denied access. Now, huge red flags should go over everyone's head right now. You're talking about the president of the United States, the director of the CIA, making it through channels an inquiry on something that they know is happening and they're being denied access. So immediately I knew either that was a lie or the whole enterprise has gone off the rails uh, in terms of being managed illegally and improperly. So at that point, I went up, took the meeting. Uh, the cover story was a dinner party for me and my wife and the CIA director and his wife, who was the um, chief operating officer of National Academy of Sciences and our host, who was a think tank director for the Pentagon and his wife. So there's six of us. And sure enough, he was very shaken. He, he absolutely had not been read in. <clears throat> and so I provided him a lot of information. I brought a whole briefcase full of evidence. I mean, this positive evidence, documents, photographs, this, that. And this is 30 years ago this year, December 13th, 1993. So at that point, my whole paradigm tilted where I realized there's something very wrong with this. I didn't know anything about, you know, the popular terms now or the counter state or the deep state or secret government, illegal projects, on and on and on. It was off my radar. It totally. You had no idea at the time. No. That this, any of that was happening. Th this was, <laughs> I, I had actually sort of a serious PTSD over this because it was like completely upended you know, my world. Uh, and my thinking about our country and what had happened. So I started digging into this and I'm you know, a full-time emergency doctor as chairman of the department and I got more and more involved and I made a call, an early call for people to come forward who did know about this. And at that time, <clears throat> the disclosure project in that incarnation, let's call it, was called Project Starlight and Project Starlight was a briefing process um, for the executive branch and then eventually members of Congress. So <clears throat> I ended up putting together all this information and whistleblower testimony documents. I ended up receiving some top secret uh, documents that were not declassified uh, that I have and have published because we came to the conclusion that these projects are being run unconstitutionally and therefore all personnel, all evidence and all documents pertaining to them have no protection over the national from the National Security Act. They cannot be kept secret if they're going to operate outside the oversight of the constitutional oversight requirements of the president and the Congress. What were some of the things that were in the top secret documents? Well, I have one that's from uh, Nellis, so-called Area 51 area, where there was a security alert, probably some civilian groups trying to see what was going on there. And... Uh, <laughs> It has the distribution list. The document isn't that important except for, because it was a security alert, you know, um, but the distribution list is important because it has the project code names and code numbers. That document, <clears throat> which was dated 1990, um, uh, in the 90s, I, is, is one of the documents I gave, for example, uh, to the president's people and also eventually 
when I briefed the um, J2, the head of intelligence, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Wilson. And that was on the top of the pile because I said, look at the distribution lists here. Follow that thread. And so, for example, in the case of Admiral Wilson, now, you know, he's head of intelligence, Joint Staff, Admiral. He made an inquiry into this based on a, a, a portfolio I had couriered to him. But he was denied access. And, he, and th- there's public documents now about this that leaked out. Look it up. And what happened is that he was also threatened personally and with demotion. So this was all happened kind of prior to my stand up briefing at the Pentagon for him, which happened in 1997, 25, over 25 years ago, 26. And it was a very disturbing event for him. For me, by then, I was battle hardened. I realized what was going on. He was shocked that he had been threatened and denied access to these projects. I wasn't because I said, well, you're in good company. The SecDef, Secretary of Defense has, the president, the director of the CIA. And by then I had met with members of key members in the Congress and Senate Intelligence Committee. They had all been pushed aside and denied access. So by then I had already accepted this new paradigm of there being, as Senator Inouye said, and I'm quoting, there's a secret government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own funding mechanism that's above the law and free from the law itself. I'm almost giving an exact quote here. And, you know, that's something that most people have to understand first off here is that what we're dealing with is not a sanctioned or even a normal black project. And I can say this with authority because I am working now with people who literally manage the black budget of the United States currently. And they were denied access to they all these projects. They had no idea that there were deep black pass through projects. We'll get into this. How is this done structurally, organizationally? What's the architecture? So it took me a long time to unravel this. Mm-hmm. And I had to do it through multiple documents, corroborating witnesses, people on the inside who came forward. So in 2001, by then, I had concluded neither the White House nor the Congress was going to touch this. So we launched the Global Disclosure Project, where I gathered together the first 20-some of these military and some corporate people and had a press club event. It ended up being seen by about 800 million people. Interestingly, the first hour of it was jammed. There had been jamming devices put on the structure of the National Press Club. But it eventually got up, and it used up every T1 line in the city available back then, in 01. And, you know, what happened from that was that then there was a whole movement launch that is going to this day. It's a very slow process. You're dealing with U.S. government moves like a glacier. (laughs) Um and that's complimentary. But I, I think that the, the reality is you can't blame people. There, there, there are these sweeping conspiracy theories that are all wrong. That, you know, somehow, and I was just talking to a congressman yesterday who uh, had this idea that there were people in his party um, who were hiding things from him because they knew things, because the process going on now in the Congress much of it is in classified skiffs and briefings that I know about. 
But in reality, those people who are trying to get to the bottom of this, they don't know anything. I mean, they're still asking, you know, is that tic-tac, you know, as they call it, this, mm-hmm. this UFO footage, you can drop it in that are uh, Hornets, <laughs> 18s were chasing off of San Diego. Is that, you know, from China? And of course, as soon as I saw it, I matched it to a 1967 image we have of a Lockheed Skunk Works, so-called anti-gravity device. So that would be us. It's us. It's U.S. Well, let's call it global. It's it's part of this secret government asset base. So to give people a, a, a little deeper unpacking of this is like at the end of the meeting with with Admiral Wilson. So I'm doing the stand-up briefing. It's supposed to be 45 minutes in his conference room at the Pentagon. And I have astronaut Edgar Mitchell is there, who was the sixth man to walk on the moon, my military advisor, and a couple witnesses, whistleblowers. And this goes on for almost two or like three hours, two or three hours, much longer. He kept canceling appointments because he was so you know concerned. And at the end of it, I said, look, we really need your help getting to the bottom of this and getting these rogue illegal projects under control. He says, well, what am I going to do? He says, I can't act. I'll be rogue unless the secretary of defense and the president authorize me to do something like this. And I said, well, that's not going to be forthcoming. I've already, we've already attempted that. And he's, and he also said something that was very spooky. He said, how do I take on a group that have technologies that can do circles around the best thing I know we have, a B2 stealth? He says, that's the best thing I know to deploy. And I have found out and I have now convinced there is a secret organization that have technologies that can literally do circles around my B2. And I said, yes. And he just said, it's point set match. I said, he says, I don't even know how to take that on. And that is how that meeting ended. And wow. it was very grave. And I went, well, you know, there's a difference. Those projects are being run outside the law. And I said, you know, <clears throat> the law is only what you empower is only what you use. If you don't use the law and if you don't use power, then you let sociopaths and criminals run amok. And unfortunately, that's what's happened since the late 1950s. I later found it was on Eisenhower's watch. Unfortunately, he was old. He was tired. He was a four-star general, World War II, that this group of um, the secret government group sort of seized control over these operations. So in reality, the constitutional government of the United States has not been in a proper oversight and control of these operations since the late 1950s. Since the, since the, so 70 years. Yeah, almost 60, yeah, two thirds of a century. Wow. So that's sort of the, just to give an overview of, of how this evolved. And now it's evolved to a very big event that's happened, um, about a month ago, a month and a half ago, um, the Congress passed. And the president signed a law that has for the defense funding, National Defense Authorization Act. And it explicitly allows people to come out uh, as witnesses, whistleblowers on the UAP UFO issue, including contractors, not just government employees, but contractors like Lockheed Skunk Works, Northrop, Raytheon, Booz Allen Hamilton, MITRE Corporation, SAIC, these are all big chief primary contractors working on 
the reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materiel and also the building up of systems based on that and other technologies. So why do you think it took so long for this to, for this bill to come about? It just has to, you know, when we released about five years ago, um, five and a half years ago, unacknowledged. So people, if you have Amazon Prime or Tubi or Hulu or whatever, um, that documentary got about, uh, in the first six months, 760 million people see it. Unless that was pirated, dark web, pirate bay, whatever. It's fine. It, we're, what I'm doing is a, a non, not-for-profit purpose of educating the public on this. I left my medical career to fix this massive problem for not only our country, but for the world and, and the future of humanity. But that you know, caused a lot of stir, and it, it triggered a series of events that has now led a few years ago to the law being passed that the director of national intelligence must report on this issue to the Congress. But now, you know, I told folks that I'm working with, and I can't disclose exactly who they are, but they're the most senior people, uh, and said, look, there needs to be a clear pathway. Because the only way you're going to get this, you're not going to get this through the chain of command. You're going to have to get people who come in as whistleblowers and witnesses who are direct witnesses to this, even if it's a small part of what they saw. You know, maybe they were only guarding a hangar where there was one of these triangular objects at my uncle's old company. My uncle worked on the lunar module, but the first man on the north of Grumman. Um, but which is part of how I had an interest in this. You know, if you're, if your uncle kind of put the first man on the moon or was part of that is sort of a fun thing for a little boy, you know. Yeah. You know, I was 14 when we landed on the moon. So. <laughs> but, um, it was just a great thing to, to, to had a family member involved with that. But I think that, you know, most people underestimate how important every little detail is. So what I did in the nineties up to the 2001 event, what I've done since is put together sort of a whole puzzle, a mosaic based on thousands of little pieces of data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the evidence is easy to get your mind around one at a time. What's hard to get your mind around is the entire uh, intelligence analysis that has to go with it. So that's what I've specialized in is gathering that data and then connecting all the dots. Um, you know, how does this corporate in operation interface with this space and this skiff? For people who don't know, the secure compartmented information facility. Yeah, a skiff is a skiff is where highly, highly classified documents, conversations, mission planning. Right. The the, the that's where it all happens. Right. It's in a skiff. Right. Yep. And I've been involved with that, although I'm wasn't supposed to be, but I get ushered into places, even though I've never been in the government and I've never, I will not accept a clearance or a, a, a secrecy oath or non-disclosure agreement. So all this I'm telling you, I can tell you because I hold, people who know the system will know I hold my own clearances in that sense. I, I can say what I want to, to whomever. What my rule is, is that if, if let's say you were someone who had been involved in an operation at the Dugway Proving Grounds out in, you know, Utah, which is, there's a dumb there, deep underground military base that's very much involved with this issue. Um, and there are assets there, man-made, anti-gravity, very advanced aircraft. Um, that we, you know, have, I have people who have been there who've seen them come up at night and move out. It'd be huge black triangles. 
And um, those are ours, by the way. Now, there are some extraterrestrial ones that are similar. So if you can envision this, almost any airfoil or superstructure that they've observed that's of an extraterrestrial origin, they've been able to create, let's say, copycat or similar. So this makes this very confusing and unfortunately opens up the possibility of, of a number of false flag or what Pentagon called deceptive indications and warnings uh, operations or false flag operations. But that's so let's say that you're one of those guys and you come to me and you say, my name is so and so. Here's my DD 214. You prove you were there. But you say, I don't want to ever be identified publicly. But I will go into the skiff to provide this information to the people who have now made this pathway for me to come forward legally, then I will arrange for that to happen. That's what we're doing. And I'm making a call right now. Anyone, no matter how small or large your involvement was over the last 70 years with this issue, there's a pathway, there's a door open. We don't know how long it'll stay open. You've probably heard me talk about my psychedelic journey last year and all the benefits that came from doing it. I haven't drank any alcohol or had any caffeine in almost a year. My anxiety is gone and my anger is gone. A whole list of benefits came from that and that led me on this journey to researching the benefits of mushrooms and fungi in general. And in my research, I found this company called Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and herbs with a fraction of caffeine as a cup of coffee. I have energy without anxiety, jitters, or the crash of coffee. What I really like about Mudwater is that they took the time to find the perfect ingredients to make a product to help. You know, I want to give a special thanks to all of our patrons. So this was all happened kind of prior to my stand up briefing at the Pentagon Forum, which happened in. Liz. So what I did in the 90s up to the 2001 event, what I've done since is put together sort of a whole But it's been a lot of work to get to this point. It's a very big breakthrough that there is this legal mechanism so that the constitutional government of the United States can get informed on this properly. And what I discovered, and this was a very strange uh, thing from 93 to now, every time I take a meeting with a high level member of the U.S. government who should know about this, given their rank or their position. Uh, for example, when I briefed uh, years ago, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, General Patrick Hughes, a three star. Well, as anyone knows, who's been in the military, the, the, that position is the top of the food chain for military intelligence, mm-hmm. period. It's, it's, you know, in the DIA, it's like the CIA for civilian. It's, it's military. He had completely been denied access. The director of the DIA is completely denied access. I had a multi-hour meeting with him in his office with my senior folks. And it was another, see these data points, people remember them as I go through them. How, you know, in what universe 
and the head of the DIA or the CIA or the president or the chair people of armed services in the Senate or in the Select Committee on Intelligence not have been read in on this. If when we are funding it, we estimate there's somewhere over the last 70 years, eight to 10 trillion dollars that have gone into these projects that are unaccounted for. Remember, the day before 9-11, we have a videotape of Rumsfeld at the Pentagon. I'm not sure he knew it was being recorded because I'm shocked that he said it. And it's in Unacknowledged, the documentary. He says, and then this is now 21, 22 years ago. He says, there's $2.3 trillion unaccounted for in the Department of Defense budgets. Right. Trillion, not billion. The How T- do you have that much money unaccounted for? Oh, you do. <laughs> Let me give you an example. I believe it. They say, you know, it costs $2 billion a plane to make the B-2 stealth. It's about $150 million. The rest of it goes through the back door into these unsanctioned projects that neither the president nor the Congress knows, never mind the American people. Multiply that across the whole system. So we'll get into this in a moment. There are other more creative ways of this organization, this secret uh, illegal organization. I view this group that's doing this as the world's largest RICO, racketeering influence corrupt organization, like a mafia. But they've become pretty much untouchable till now. And I'm not saying we need to go after them aggressively in a negative way, but it needs to have, it needs to be disclosed. And we need to have the people's representatives and the constitutional government at least informed about it. And they are not. The thing that's most shocking to me, even to this day, is that every time I take a meeting with this and you're meeting with someone of that rank, like the General Hughes, here's a three star in charge of DIA. It was so crazy that I'm, he's sitting there and we, we start talking. And he had made inquiries through the chain of command of DIA. He says, the only thing I've gotten, he goes over to it in his conference room for the general I had a bookshelf and there was a little, you know, corny little like E.T. doll, like you'd see at a, at a, at a toy store. Mm-hmm. And he grabs it. He says, this is all I've gotten for my inquiries through the channels. He was, in a, he was in a rage. I said, and I was going, yes, sir, this has happened to most of your folks who are in your position, unless they were brought in and came up through the ranks because they were identified as sociopaths who would break the law and run a an unsanctioned illegal operation for decades. There's your criteria. Now, people like like yourself, let's say you had been assigned to a project dealing with this. You'd have no way of knowing as it way up at the food chain mm-hmm. that this was an illegal operation. There would be no foundation. Yeah. So you're you would have been completely innocent. So all of you guys listening and women who if you have been involved with this you're not culpable because you're not at that policy making level where you are willfully insubordinate to the constitution, which, you know, everyone takes an oath to protect and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Writ large. What happens when the prostate enlarges and the urine channel gets tight? Men are regaining control over their bladders by adding this one in. Writ large domestic here. Because, you know, the worst treasonous acts that have ever happened to any country that falls is from within. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about here. 
So I want to be very clear about it. I know I'm coming on a little bit strong on it, but it's, I am so outraged after dealing with this for 30 years and seeing this drag on. Um, so what my concern is, is that now that this law is in place and it's only a month and a half on, right? We need to move expeditiously, quickly through that door that's opened. Um, because who knows when someone may slam it shut and there's a window we have to go through. Uh, and I think that we've started that process. So what I'm, what I'm doing is putting out a call, a request and to appeal to people's patriotism. You know, my father was hand to hand combat on amphibious landing unit, World War II and had pretty bad PTSD from that, although they didn't know what that was. Um, but I kind of feel like we have to look at this and go, given how this is operating, you know, it's our patriotic duty to fix this problem just from the point of view of the rule of law and civilization and the Constitution. Otherwise, what are we? We're a bunch of monkeys running around the jungle without the law. Yeah. The other issue is what's behind the secrecy? That's what that was my question. It, it you know. That was when I, my first meetings with people, like the CIA director, after like 10 minutes of going through the evidence, he says, yeah, yeah, I know this is real. He wanted to know why is it this level of secrecy? Who's keeping it secret? How are they doing this? So that is actually the bigger question. The evidence you can get your mind around. We have it. It's been out there. If you look at unacknowledged, if you get the book. We have a book called Disclosure. It's 500 and some pages of transcripts of these original top secret people's testimony and documents. It's all in there. So you can get Disclosure book. You can get Unacknowledged, the book. It goes with the documentary. It's there. But understand, and we also describe how this is operating. But the why behind it is kind of banal, you know, in the sense of... uh it's money and power. So let's say you have something that would fit on a little table this big. And it's a uh, generator. And it's pulling energy out of what's called the quantum vacuum or zero-point energy field, which was proven to exist back in the 50s. Now, physicists have described this energy field. If you had a coffee mug, the amount of space in that coffee mug has enough potential power to boil off all the oceans of the world, quote, unquote. It's what Tesla called, uh, not the fake car company, actually Nikola Tesla. Um, I call it fake Tesla cars because if they're plugged into the grid, they're, they're not real Teslas. We'll get into this. Um, but those that energy field is uh, everywhere, and you can tap into it. And when you tap into it, you're tapping into this energy field that can be converted to electricity or thrust. So is the energy field, is it everything in between objects? Is that? It's not just between, it's within. So if you take, let's take the chair you're sitting in or I'm in. It's occupying a volume of space. Mm -hmm. When you get past the molecular to the atomic level of this, and then subatomic, the quarks, you get this into this pluripotent. It's like the the foam at the surface of the deep ocean. Okay. That all of matter is fluxing in and out of. 
the early Lockheed Skunk Works man-made UFOs were called flux liners. Flux liners. Yep. Because they were pulling energy from this quantum vacuum flux field. Very advanced physics. I mean, we understand it very well. I want to put your audience to sleep going into the arcana of the physics of it. But the point I'm making is that was mastered decades ago. This this technology has been around for for decades. Uh, well, about a hundred years that there has been empirical evidence of this energy field. Nikola Tesla called it the infinite energy field. Um, there were others who discovered it all the way back to the late 1800s. Now they didn't. They didn't have the physics down of what was happening, but in terms of just observing the phenomenon empirically, you know, here you, you set up a high voltage system, suddenly more energy is coming out than you're putting in. Those are called over unity systems or free energy because once you get it tapped, it's just flowing, right? And so that means that every home, business, car, manufacturing, village in Africa, would ha- be able to have a, a device that would not be very expensive, frankly, to mass manufacture that would generate all the energy they need for all the needs that we have for a modern civilization. And this would be wonderful. There's no pollution. There's no radiation. And once you have the system, there's no cost. There's no refueling. The bad news is that if you're an oligarch, a global oligarch, controlling the macroeconomic system, big oil, Big global systems. Uh, and let me translate for those of you who've been in the Middle East. Our vital national security interest translates to one word, O-I-L, oil, energy. <clears throat> so the problem is, you know, if that technology were to be disclosed, it's, a, you know, it's a quadrillion dollars. It's a thousand trillion dollars or more. In proven assets, oil, gas, coal, public utilities that are obsolete. It's like, you know, it's like a, a royal typewriter or a horse and buggy. That's what they're protecting. So the entire energy field, everything that has anything to do with energy becomes completely obsolete at this point. Yeah. And all, which, and, and all transportation systems, internal combustion engines, jet engines, rockets, surface roads. So now surface roads, I say that only because when you take that same physics and do a torsion, a counter rotating field, you can get what's called an electrogravitic effect where or anti-gravity pop culture term is a terrible term. It's not anti-gravity, but you can collect, create this electromagnetic field where an object becomes essentially weightless. And can move. This is why you, if you look at the radar tracings of these things, these objects can be moving at 200,000 miles an hour, make a right hand turn. And there are occupants on these. Now, you know, I mean, any pilot knows if you had the G forces of that, your brains would come out of your nose. Mm-hmm. There's no way it'd be fatal. But because it's calling, for, correcting for one G and there's a sort of a bubble, an envelope in space time that this object is moving in. There's no limit to what it can do. So they it don't go, feel the G. They don't feel it and go straight up, you know, at like one of the radar things we have uh, from Belgium, <clears throat> from I got from the Belgian Air Force, was an object that was at, you know, slightly above AGL, a few feet of AG, above ground level. And it went from there to boom, like 100,000 feet in, in one radar swoop, you know, boom. 
We have a lot of cases like that that we've collected. And, you know, the question at this point is, how is that happening? Well, we know how that's happening. And so here's the issue with disclosing all this. When you get past the superficial level, here's a machine, here's a device, here's this. The scientists like myself are going to say, well, how is it doing that? And if they have a thinking brain, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is the big assumption now with our educational system (laughs) collapsing. Sorry to say, but (laughs) my God, I mean, the kids that are now trying to get educated in the system now, God help us all. So but the, the, the fact is that's going to be asked. Now, what's interesting is that the Pentagon has officially said those objects that are that were have been released of the Tic Tac and other UFOs that have been documented with sensors on ships, on board aircraft, and in space, although not disclosing those sensors, but I know what they are. Those are are physical objects moving without any known means of propulsion. Go look at what's been said by the Pentagon. Now, what the, uh, the person who said that at the Pentagon says, we don't know how they're moving because that spokesman hasn't been read in to these deep black projects that are in this parallel universe of the secret government. It's been my job to collect the actionable intelligence, the documents and the people who know this and put it together and put it in the briefings for people. So I've provided this to every minister of defense and secretary of defense for the four of the five eyes, which are, of course, you know, U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K. I have not done it for New Zealand. But and what I in every single case, when I met with these guys, either their former or current MOD heads or what have you, they've said we were never read into this. So I, this data point, let me extend the data point globally. So some years ago, there was this this really amazing guy named uh, Lord Hill Norton. He was a five-star admiral. They used to call him a sea lord. Don't you love – I mean, I love the British. They're fantastic. A sea lord. And he had been head of MOD, which means in the UK, you're head of MI5, MI6, like our CIA and stuff. But he was also head of the military committee for NATO. And I met with him at his house in Wiltshire – no, in Hampshire in England some years ago. And he asked me to come because he wanted me to bring the briefing document that I had put together for the president. I think at that time it was it was the late Clinton years. And I said, all right, I'll come over. And I went over with my four daughters and wife, and they went off to see the Salisbury Cathedral. And I went and met with this former MOD head. And he was livid. He says, this never came across my desk. I was never read into this. And I said, and yet I have files from your own MOD about the landing of one of these objects at the Bentwaters, uh, Rendlesham Forest Bentwaters Air Force Base. No kidding. Yep. I have the, I have the documents. I have the trace landing. I have the U.S. military Air Force people's testimony that were there. So at this. I was down to talk to my doctor about Rebelsis. Ask your healthcare provider about Rebelsis today. So at this point, I have about 1,100 of these folks. What's a trace landing? When when one of these, uh, in this case, it was an extraterrestrial vehicle, not one of the man-made ones. So we call them ETVs for the ones that are 
of extraterrestrial origin, the ones that are man-made are often called ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles, meaning that they're simulating, not totally, but simulating the um, energy propulsion capabilities of what we've reverse engineered and studied since the 40s. Okay. We'll get into this in a moment. How? What's the technology transfer arc from the 40s to now? And that's very interesting. It's going to be in our new film called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It is the subcaption um, title. But um, the Minister of Defense was furious. And, and, you know, he was a bit bombastic and kind of, you know, his, his piercing blue eyes, a real character. And, um, and, and he was I think he was hurt. I mean, if you have that level of responsibility and you find out you were zoomed. I'm probably the most important military and intelligence issue in the 20th century, in 21st century. He, he, and he said, well, why wouldn't they have told me? So it, it becomes personal for these mm-hmm. men. Uh, and I said, well, let me ask your qu- question with a question. And he said, oh, what do you mean? He thought I was being an impertinent yank, w- which I can be. But... <laughs> But, uh, no, I, I was doing it as sort of a, a way of sort of uh, illustrating this point. And I said, well, what would you have done if you had found out that there was an organization and a project, global, global, that had engaged in assassinations, wet works of innocent people, uh, killings, uh, so CIA term wet works for, you know, if you're on the watch group list, which I have been on. Um, and that is engaging in all manner of criminal activities up to including drug running has embezzled trillions of dollars from Western economies. And they have the technologies that would save the earth's biosphere in a generation in poverty, but they are now an existential threat to the world and to the United States and your country, United Kingdom. And he almost jumped out of his chair and says, I wouldn't have stood for it for a bloody minute. Like that, just in a rage. And I went, well, that's why they didn't tell you. He says, what do you mean? I said, because you're not a sociopath. You're not someone who would absolutely willfully know about that and go along with that agenda. And if you, if they, I, I call it because I'm a doctor, I call it a soul biopsy. They do a deep psychological analysis and they will test people early on in their career if they will do the right thing or the wrong thing. If you're willing to do things that you know are ethically wrong to get ahead, it's the very definition of a sociopath. Then you get groomed little by little by little by little by little. And I said, but you are deemed not to be of the right stuff. Not John Glenn astronaut right stuff, but the right stuff for someone who had been involved at that level, higher level, because you were not, you would never have gone along with that agenda. And if you hadn't gone along with it and you knew about it, they would flat out kill you. Absolutely. Like the secretary Forrestal hmm. for a fact was thrown out of a hospital window and killed. General George S. Patton, an autom- alleged automobile accident was killed because he would want to disclose to the public the anti-grav device that looked like a saucer that we got from uh, Germany in 1945. I know, how do I know this? Because Paul Mellon, one of the few billionaires in the world who funded Adolf Hitler along with uh, George, uh, I mean, uh, Prescott Bush, 
George H.W. Bush's father, Henry Ford, and Watson of IBM. Paul Mellon was one of the few billionaires at the end of World War II, uh, the Mellon family. And his grandson's on my team, who happens to have been uh, Senator John Warner's uh, son, the Republican uh, senator from Virginia, just passed away. And <clears throat> Paul Mellon told uh, John Warner IV that when the war ended, they went over and grabbed this thing. Because Adolf Hitler, his aerospace geniuses were working on this disc that was not jet or rocket. It was electrogravitic. It was electromagnetic. They hadn't perfected it. They were working on that. We had the atomic bomb. But they brought it back. And, and you know, Patton was going, George Patton was going, this is amazing what this would do for the world. No, no. This is going to be deep black. And he did not think that was a wise thing to do. So they took him out, made it look like an automobile accident. So this kind of skullduggery happened. So I told the minister of defense, this is why they're not going to tell you. And because you're, you're a good man, you're patriotic, you're sincere, you uh, have morals and integrity and ethics. No one like that is going to get at the top of that food chain. Because yeah. Yeah. by definition, you've got to be somebody willing to subvert the law and do all manner of horrific things. And this is where you, people have to understand there have been CIA directors who were involved with this. I dealt with one who was helping us after he retired, Bill Colby, CIA Director Colby. When was he a director? A Ford-Nixon era. Okay. Way before my time, but he was an old guy wanting to help us. Um, a lot of these people, at, you know, when they get old enough to think they're going to make meet their maker, they get a conscience or they change it, have a change of heart, mm-hmm. you know, as they get up into their 70s, 80s, you know, like that. Um, but... Uh, but it, it has nothing to do with your rank, which is what people have to get their head around. Whether you're president, CIA director, sec def, this senator, this member of parliament, if you know about it, it's because you were read in because you're willing to go along with that agenda. If you don't know about it, you have the same rank. It's because they assess that you wouldn't go along with that agenda, which is an illegal operation. Yes. So this is what everyone needs to get their heads around. Now, the only way to resolve this are people who don't. I mean, I had this fire of tests where I started out very early in my work on this, involved with the director of the CIA and the head of Army Intelligence and all these sort of people. Um, for a reason we can get into in a moment, because basically my group had discovered the Rosetta Stone of being able to co- contact these objects, and it works. Uh, go look at the movie Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. It's kind of out there stuff, but it it's real. So I think that when you start to entertain this idea of how this is structured, you got to get your mind first around that. But also, on top of the fact, and this is a really key point, please listen carefully to this. We have this bill that we work to get through that now gives a pathway for anyone to come forward. Now, you know, they will be coming forward to folks who are going to uh, take them into a skiff and it'll be TSSCI type stuff. Um, so their testimony may or may not get to the public. If they provide it and are co- and willing to provide it, I will provide it to the public. Why? So listen very carefully. By 1997 in the fall, 
we had concluded, my military advisors and all these people that I had sort of a kitchen cabinet, it was everything you're hearing me done, we've done without an office, without a paid staff, without a budget. It's all been a labor of love. You know, um, I put probably 15 million into doing this. 15 million. Yeah. Earnings and everything. I don't care. I mean, I, you know, when I realized what was at stake, it's like, you know, I walked away from my medical career to yeah. do this, which is very hard. I still have dreams about being in the ER doing stuff, you know, but you know, that, that chapter is closed. And plus I'm too old. I'm 67. So you know, I'm not going to, that's, that's not an old, older guy's game. It's tough. Um, <laughs> I was mountain bike and surf. Uh, I had that fun. Uh, but this, what you realize over, over the, uh, by, by the, by this time, and I've gone through all these meetings and briefings. I said, well, this is an illegal, unsanctioned operation. And if it's illegal, it's outside the constitution. And therefore, all the national security act laws and all the non-disclosure agreements, all these men have signed are vitiated. They're null and void, canceled. So we wrote a letter, and those of you in the military may know this, this, this kind of a ruse. It's called a UNOD, unless otherwise directed letter. Okay. And the way it works is <clears throat> I wrote a letter that's an assessment. And it said, based on the following meetings and, and intelligence we've gathered, it's our assessment that all projects related to the UFO issue, including the man-made research and development projects and the extraterrestrial issue, have been run in an illegal fashion outside the Constitution because the people who should know if they were sanctioned don't. And they have been deliberately lied to and deceived. Because of that, they cannot enforce legally in any court in the land a prosecution against any whistleblower, anyone with material, and anybody with documents. And I said, and I gave 90 days for all the different, it went to every head of every agency and relevant Department of Justice, FBI, you know, the whole alphabet soup. Return, receipt, requested. So he got it, signed for it, got it back. And I waited the 90 days and then I declared, okay, now we're going to go public. So I pivoted from doing these private offsite often briefings for members of Congress and executive level folks over to a publicly disclosed project. And that was how Project Starlight, which was this quiet operation that I was doing just with senior folks in the government, became the Disclosure Project. And so the Disclosure Project then led to the 2001 National Press Club event you mentioned mm-hmm. on May 9th. But it was, it was, there was a process here. I want people to understand, I wanted to, dot my I's and cross my T's that I wasn't running afoul of the law and I was going to give the U.S. government every opportunity to do the right thing and, and get their, their move into this issue. And they wouldn't. The president was intimidated. Members of Congress didn't know what to do about it because they were individual members. They hadn't come together and passed a law. That took another 20 years. Mm-hmm. See, I'm trying to give you the arc of this so people yep. understand the context. So at that point, we did it. And, you know, I, I had the first hundred or so of these guys that we have on videotape. And then about 22 of them came to the National Press Club event. Now, the ones that are the more deeper sources, 
some of them didn't want to come forward because they were afraid. And even though they knew about my unless otherwise directed letter, that was from a civilian making the statement and they wanted an official pathway. And I said, well, I don't control the Congress. I can only, you know, sort of advise folks. And if they don't do it now, and this is why this is such a huge breakthrough for your people listening to this show. There are a lot of Navy SEALs and Delta guys and force guys and uh, certain Marine branches that have been at facilities, been operative uh, tactically or operationally involved. We need you to contact us. And here's the website, SeriousDisclosure.com. But you can just write to info at S-I-R-I-U-S Disclosure.com. And we'll handle it very confidentially. Um, if you don't want to be known publicly, you never will be. But I will arrange for you to be brought to the correct people in D.C. who are the best folks I've ever found. They're former special operations military that are now the equivalent of a. if if they were in the military, they'd be a two star general. But they're working in the congressional end uh, helping with this. And they're not known by the public. It's not what you see in the media. And they will see that that information gets to the people who need to know. I can't be more specific because um, I'm, I'm walking a razor's edge here with mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But that's what we're doing. And we need people to understand that this is a patriotic duty given what is at stake. Because here's what at stake. First of all, the Constitution and how intact is the constitutional government of the United States. that has been completely subverted by this issue and the people who control it. Secondly, the future for our children. I mean, I just had my 12th grandchild born. What kind of world do we have? You know, I always tell people, we don't have a free market. How do you have a free market if the most important scientific technologies in, in the last hundred years have been ruthlessly suppressed, people killed, and they've been illegally classified so that we're still burning diesel and jet fuel A? Yeah. We don't need it. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about so, why they're hiding all this Technology when it comes to free energy with the utilities and everything, just to piece it together for everybody. I do. It's, it, it, it's one word or two words, money and power. Now, when you're talking about most of us think, gee, money, do I have enough money to put my kids through college? <laughs> These guys are, that, that's not the issue. It's massive macroeconomic geopolitical power. Because now we're talking hundreds of trillions of dollars in assets. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind the entire U.S. government budget, whatever it is, $5 trillion, it's a rounding error. And most of that's not discretionary spending. That's entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. So when you're looking at these interests that want to maintain the status quo of the world financial, macroeconomic, and energy system, they will do almost anything to maintain that, even if it kills the planet, keeps, you know, right now there's 3 billion souls on the planet that don't have any way to cook their food. They're chopping down rainforests and shrub in the desert in Africa. They, they don't have any electricity or gas. Yeah. 3 billion. This just came out in The Economist, a mainstream uh, economic journal. So how do we, and, and that, of course, builds into the, the extreme poverty it leads to radicalization terrorists, resentment of the West. I mean, there are huge implications for this mistake that was made almost a century ago. 
Now, you know, and this is known by a number of people, uh, you know, how what, what a huge mistake this is. Um, so when you're talking about the motivation here, I mean, people have killed for a lot more than nine hundred trillion dollars, you know, and the level of corruption is worrisome. Now, in 92, uh, General Albert Stubblebine III, uh, Bert, who had been head of special forces and army intelligence, Fort Huachuca, he intercepted me after we had this major contact event out in Florida and and near Pensacola. And he uh, subsequently, about a month later, personally offered me $2 billion to not pursue what I was doing and become part of his team. $2 billion. You know, in 92. And I thought it was a joke, uh, and it wasn't. And he um, described to me a, a sort of a black fund that they had gotten from the collapse of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and that he, that I would have complete access and control over it. But I have to be on their sort of team. They were trying to neutralize what I was doing. And as many people know, the CIA and some of those organizations have remote viewers who use consciousness to see remote places in the future. Yeah, they've done studies with the Monroe Institute. Mm. Oh, yeah, I knew Bob Monroe, all those guys. Um, and Ingo Swan is <laughs> a friend of mine, all these guys. But um, so they knew what kind of trouble this could make, I could make. So people understand, have to also get their mind around the kind of just sheer, you know, bribery corruption that happens on top of threats, oppo research. They'll make up deep fake photos and videos to defame you. I've been called everything you can meet. And then they try to buy you off. And if, if they have to, they'll try to kill you. If you're doing things at this level, I've been like such a troublemaker for them. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's not so hard to believe anymore. You know, well, well anyone who's done your work can see the kind of things that could happen. I can see it, yeah. but I think a lot of the U S population can't see it. You know, unfortunately, I think the, Maybe unfortunately, but fortunately, the Epstein trials, mm-hmm. you know, and then everything that happened around <laughs> right. of that, around that, it's, you know, the judge was, there was a assassination attempt on the judge. Mm-hmm. Epstein didn't kill himself. Mm-hmm. All these things, you know, right. and, right. and so it's, it's becoming more, I hate to say accepted. <laughs> yeah. I hate to say accepted, but it is, it's out there yeah. and it's, yeah. it's becoming more. And more and more common. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that, so imagine the stakes of something like you just mentioned, uh, which I had no knowledge of, and it's just whatever, you know, people are weird. Um, <clears throat> imagine something a million fold mm-hmm. in terms of its implications for the stakeholders who want to maintain their uh, hegemony and control of the global military, industrial, financial sector. That's the level we're talking about. We're not talking about the boots on the ground, the guys who are the colonels who manage. I just brought a lieutenant colonel to D.C. who had been involved with these projects. And he had been watching what I'd been doing for 20 years and was waiting for this law to pass. Friends, with so much chaos and danger in the world these days, I highly recommend you stock up on emergency food right away. Let's face it, you're going to need this food, and now is the time to get it before it's too late. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and stock up on their popular three-month emergency food kit. When you do, you'll also get $200 worth of survival gear as a free bonus. You'll need this gear when things fall apart the grid goes down or anytime you might have to fend for yourself. To see everything you'll get, go to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your $200 bonus gift comes free with each three-month emergency food kit you order. That way, everybody in your family can be prepared. But hurry, this offer won't last forever. Check this off your list and sleep better knowing your family won't suffer if the worst-case scenario ever happens. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and score free shipping, too. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. One of my biggest challenges in 2023 as an entrepreneur has been finding the right person for the job and making my company stand out amongst all the other companies in this extremely competitive job market. Now, how can you do that? You might want to try ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter helps you stand out. You can try it for free right now. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash SRS. Now, let's talk a little bit about how ZipRecruiter is going to help you stand out amongst everybody else in the job market. ZipRecruiter's technology is going to send you good quality candidates for I'm your job. I'm just trying to get you past the commercials here, folks. Is there a thing where you can No, it's also, this guy who's interviewing Dr. Kidd doing his job. own commercial. Instead of filling well, out the length of the application, they can just apply with yeah. a single click of the mouse. Get your job noticed by the best and brightest candidates with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address. Try ZipRecruiter for free. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash SRS. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash SRS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So. YouTube Music Premium is an experience that gives you complete control of your music. So you can listen without ads. So what I'm saying is that we really need to have people come forward now. I'm I'm actually begging people. Um, we've worked so hard to get it to this point, and it's. Uh, it's it, it really is. I know that most people who who have come forward, they were involved for a brief period of time or they were in an office here or at a skiff there or at a, a military facility or a corporate research project. And they don't know necessarily this whole picture. And so they are not culpable. They're not guilty of having done anything improper. They were doing as they were told. And they thought it was all being run properly, legally. It wasn't. Yeah. So they were used. Um, and I think that they're, that's very important. And so they have no liability. And now they're protected by the law and they're protected if we have to tactically for security, which I have. And, and, but I think at this point that, that sort of thing, it can't happen because the profile on this is so high. You know, I can reach, I have a bunch of celebrities who like what we're doing. I, something like that happens that I know about in my team. You know, there, there would be a billion people know about it. Well, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about the suppression of all this stuff and Project Mockingbird? 
Mm-hmm. We'll yep. go into that. Well, Mockingbird was one project, uh, but there, it's an ongoing process that started uh, really in full bore in the 50s. And that was to have uh, major media people who were dual agents. They were in the media, but they were also on the payroll of the agency, the CIA or others who, and I have a document we published from 90, I believe it was 92, where it says, it's a CIA document. We have people in every major news organization. It says it flat out that were th- are there to control, stop, alter stories at our request. So here's, you know, I mentioned one myth and that is that we have a free market and uh, uh, a free economy. We don't, it's managed. Because there's no way we have a free market economy when the most important sciences and technologies the last hundred years have been ruthlessly suppressed. But the other myth that Americans buy into is that we have a free press and the fourth estate, as it's called, a check and balance against excesses. But the major media and also now the major tech companies are actually actively involved in suppressing the story or spinning it. Now, what do I mean? When you see people on CNN or CBS 60 Minutes, the folks that they will allow to talk about it are people that have been cherry picked by this cabal, this secret government group, to say what they're told to say. It's scripted. Do you have any examples of this? Yes, of course. Uh, Nick Pope, Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon, uh, all those guys. Okay. And they are, uh, they have been, I know for a fact, been told what to say. And so they say, number one, first big lie, these are a threat to the national security, inferring that from outer space there's a threat. It's not true. Civilizations that are hundreds of thousands to millions of years more advanced than we are, if they were a threat, we'd be a charcoal floating through space about 1945 August (laughs) with an atomic bomb. Uh, Number two, we'll get to that in a moment. Number two, they will say, that we don't know what these are. Maybe they're from China. Maybe they're, and even senior members of the Senate intelligence community have said that. We don't know because some of those guys have gone up there and whispered in their ear all this disinformation and spin. I know who they are. When in reality, we know what they are, where they come from, which ones are man-made and which ones are extraterrestrial. I absolutely, we absolutely have that data. But see, someone like myself saying that, that's going to get cut out of any show. For example, I was on a show that had 22 million people listening live back some years ago. And I started talking about some of the senior membership of this committee that's running these, this covert program. And I got to one name. You know, I talked about Admiral Bobby Ray Enman. He's been involved for decades in this. And then he went to the you know, Board of Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC. It's one of the crown jewels of contracting on these uh, exotic propulsion and energy systems. And then I think it was during the election, the second election for, for W, uh, I, I mentioned that one of the most senior people is Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. And we went to an unscheduled commercial break. A voice broke in. And the host had no idea. And it said, Dr. Greer, change the direction of this conversation now or we will dump this show live. I said, with 22 million people listening, he says, yes. 
Don't, wow. don't talk about this. And the host was so saying the host to this day will say, Oh, we can talk about anything. It's like when Joe Rogan says, Oh yes, I can talk to you free speech to make his deal with Spotify. The, the show I did with Joe Rogan forcibly by the corporate entity had to be taken out. It is not in the lineup. You have to find it elsewhere. Just a moment. The best way to burn fat and get shredded is not keto, not paleo, and it's definitely not intense exercises like this. So anyone who thinks that the media doesn't purge whistleblowers of of someone of what we're doing is naive. So Mockingbird, there have been a lot of code names for this, but uh, we have a Air Force Intelligence, AFOSI guy that I have on tape. And it's in the unacknowledged documentary. People should look at it. It's for free. You can see it for free on all these sites. Um, and and uh, he was at Kirkland Air Force Base. And he admitted, and I'm quoting, taking bags of cash to people both in the local and national media, reporters, yeah. to secure their cooperation with telling stories or altering or putting a spin on them. So that corruption and rot reaches very firmly into the fourth estate and now big tech. And, you know, where it's been proven now through files released that people are shadow banned, algorithms are changed. We had a whistleblower that uh, we put his interview, he was willing to do it posthumously. So I did the interview with him. He died. His wife sent me his death certificate. And then I uploaded on our YouTube channel, which I have. You can go to it. Um, and his name was Pawlik, P-A-W-E-L-E-C. And he had been involved in the development of the embeddable uh, radio frequency chips. Really? Yeah. And and he knew of their use in uh, simulating alien abductions that were being done by the CIA and military. We'll get into this in a moment. How deep the deception goes. So we put this up. In a few days, it hit 675,000 views. And then overnight, we check, and the counter is down to 6,700. They went in and chopped off those numbers so it would take it out of the algorithms as a trending video. I've seen it happen. Yeah. And so people who think that doesn't happen, I just want to say, you know, I got a bridge to sell you to nowhere or swampland to sell you because they're just simply naive. Um, and this is another reason why we have to find creative strategies to do this because um, the the corporate – if you look at the major media, there's a handful of individuals and corporations that control all of them, all of it. And that becomes a problem when there's this collusion between these covert operations and corporate. Now, to give a little history lesson, late 1800s, early 20th century, something developed called fascism. Of course, now anyone that you disagree with, you call them a fascist. Mm -hmm. But the, the definition of fascism were large financial and corporate interests controlling government policy and what the government would do against the interests of the people. That's what fascism is. Go look it up. Thomas Jefferson warned of it. He actually wrote uh, a warned of the unchecked power of the corporations corrupting government. That's where we are, but on a massive scale globally. 
So that's happened with the media. It's happened with the government programs and it's happened in other sectors, financial, what have you. Um, so the interests of we, the people have gotten run over by the interests of a relatively handful of extraordinarily powerful corporate and individuals. How many people do you think are involved at that level? There are two or 300 people on this committee. Um, and one branch of it is called magic, the majority intelligence committee, M-A-J-I, but committee is some magic. Well, I have a document that lists it. So this is in my book, uh, unacknowledged that documents in there. It's a secret document that I acquired and published. They can't punish me because I declared the projects illegal. A lot of people say, how have they not pursued you? I said, they can't. Because let's, you know, one, I had an FBI guy say, I said, let's put the handcuffs on right now and get on the dance floor. Because this is going to go to the, uh, uh, even if it goes in camera, it's, it's going to go to a court and I will be able to prove, prove. Because what are we going to do? We're going to subpoena the CI director that I briefed. We're going to subpoena the senators I have briefed. We're going to subpoena the head of the defense intelligence. And all these people will have to tell the truth or lie under oath that in fact they were left out. And so I said, I don't think you want a court case like that. Now, you know, people say, man, this guy's a son of a bitch. Well, I'm sort of a fighter and I'm not easy. I'm unintimidated. But, you know, when they, so they offer me $2 billion. I go, you know, fuck off. I'm oh, sorry, my language, but, um, you know, get lost. And uh, then, you know, they threatened. And in the 90s, we had three people on my team killed and I was almost killed. Mm-hmm. And then I put. Uh, security in place. It's invisible. But basically, there are very powerful people who want us to get this done because they know what's at stake. And we've authorized lethal force if anyone that I'm working with is harmed. And that's in place. That's been in place since 1998. Since 1998. Yeah. And that's why no one I'm working with has had that happen. Since? Yep. Since 98, nobody. Oh, God. 25 years. Here are the top three dirty self-defense moves. Number one, throwing dirt in your opponent's eyes. Throwing an object at your opponent. Well, that's good. Let's talk about let's talk about your new documentary and what's coming up in that. Yeah. Well, if you go to um, thelostcenturyfilm.com, you'll see it's crowdfunded. So give you an idea, all these documentaries we've done, we won't let a corporation or a studio fund it. We've crowdfunded from the people. Can you explain why you have that that way? It's it's so that it can't be corrupted. I knew it. We we control 100% of the content. Uh, nothing can be taken out. Good for I, you. I have final control over what's in and what's out. And it can't be watered down by some corporate shill or some media executive who's actually just been bribed by the uh, government or some corporate entity working on behalf of this secret government. So I'm very careful about it. And uh, that's why we did it, because I tried doing things with other people, with their productions, and they would take it, spend it, mutilate it. <laughs> yeah. And I went, no, we need to do this ourselves with integrity. Um, so it's crowdfunded, you know, and like this last, this film, the lost century film.com, we've had one donor for 150,000 and, and a bunch of people donated $3. It didn't matter. 
But now we're, we're at 421,000 out of a $500,000 budget. So we're 84%, if my mind's calculating correctly, you can run a calculator. Um, you have to do this as an emergency doctor. I mean, um, and you know, so we're, we're getting there, but we need people's help. It'd be great if we went over that amount because then we can do more, uh, what's called marketing and promotion of it. Um, and it's going to pull the curtain back specifically on the lost hundred years of these technologies. And it's going to go all the way back more than a hundred years to the <clears throat> stubble filled earth battery and Nikola Tesla standing there with his old farmer yeah. where he's running his whole farm on this device where he has stakes in the ground that are tapping into this electromagnetic and mostly magnetic flux field and running generators running his farm. This is 1902. It's in 1902. 1902. And Nikola Tesla's standing there. Got the picture. This document is going to blow. It goes from that all the way to the Lockheed Skunk Works devices that started being built in the 50s. We have witnesses and transcripts of the Norton Air Force Base show, California. Norton's closed now. But they had an air show in 1988 where there were three of these man-made UFOs, ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles, hovering in this hangar. And those we have those fully illustrated. We have enough detail. We actually have the schematics of the interior. You have the schematics of yeah. the interior and the the exterior, how they look. And these were built. <clears throat> Interestingly, the witness who was there was an aerospace designer. Saw that the components in it. Now this is 1988. Were from the late Mercury uh, era. So the Mercury you know, capsule which was late 50s, early 60s. And they had markings and charts on them where they'd been out in space around our solar system. They were specifically told these had gone through the solar system. Now, those were from the late 50s, early 60s. No um, no jet fuel, no rockets. Are these going to be in the dock? Yep, everything. So this is going to be shocking. That's going to be a shocking thing. Oh, yeah. So it's about an hour and... 48 minutes right now. We're just finishing it. We just had a great guy who's a supporter, uh, the Limp Biscuit lead guy of Fred Durst. He's agreed to narrate it. So we, I just, he's narrating it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So I just got out of a, a studio with him a couple of days ago where we were laying down the track for the narration, but he's a great guy, very smart, super supportive of what we're doing. Good, good. Yeah. So what else is going to be in there? Well, we're going to actually have, um, a, a lot of the uh, devices going through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that weren't the flying devices. But I'll give you an example. There was an inventor named Floyd Sweet, and he he had a solid state device, looked like a little bigger than a cigarette pack, that you could attach to an electric motor, say for a car. It wasn't plugged in. It, it, it Once it got going... It was a, um, a zero point of quantum vacuum flux and it would run a 300 horsepower motor. So imagine having a 300 horsepower motor in your Tesla or your truck and this little sitting there, are no batteries. You don't have 900 pounds of lithium ion batteries and the lithium ion batteries really are destroying the environment and you never have to plug it in. 
about the time he was going to get, uh, he was meeting with some people at GM who thought they were interested, but they were actually just trying to find out what he had. After that meeting, he died suddenly, suspiciously. How people claiming, well, he dropped out of a heart attack. And that was plausible because he was an elderly guy. Mm-hmm. But before that, he had had an assassination attempt. He was going up some steps and a sniper was trying to shoot it, but he, he didn't know it, but he tripped just as the bullet went right past his head. And we have the testimony of a lieutenant colonel who was involved in this case, uh, who is a physicist also. This is going to be shocking to people. Oh yeah. Utterly shocking. You know, these, these mysterious deaths and some people are like, Oh, you know, that no way. Well, it does. We talked about the Epstein stuff. Let's talk, you know, the guy that invented the hydrocar gone. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, gone. there have been so many, I've worked with people. And then there's, there was, who've done that. Uh, if you could refresh my memory, but didn't, wasn't there somebody else that disappeared and they just happened to be involved in one of the mass shootings? Basketball is back. Watch the action live on a variety of networks with YouTube TV. Uh, yeah, there have been a number of, of folks where things get set up like that around them. There was a guy doing up this recent shooting up in New York where there was a man who had recreated this water fuel cell where your car could run off water. Yeah. And just bizarre stuff. So one of the problems with all these inventors, I mean, it's not a consequence. It's not a, not a con, it's not a coincidence. No, no, these are, these are hits. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, is that if you're a brilliant electromagnetic engineer, but you don't know the, 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 the bear you're about to poke with that technology and what they'll do to keep it suppressed, you're destined to fail. So one of the reasons we're doing this documentary is to provide the context so that people who do have these devices come to us and we have a strategy that we briefly outline in this documentary of how to fix this problem. Well, how do you fix it? The big mistake people make, they try to patent it. And we're going to, we have actually a national security order denial on a patent of one of these devices from an inventor I know. So we're going to prove this is not a conspiracy theory. Here it is from the patent office. So they ain't going to allow it. It gets confiscated. We have a patent examiner who's a PhD physicist testify that they confiscate these things. Um, that's in the movie. We, and then we, we say, okay, how are you going to get it out then? You have, if you try to keep it, how it operates secret, then you're very vulnerable. So one of the things I did for the disclosure project for my own security is to decentralize everything I have. It's called detargeting. So why have a big bullseye on your ass when if you were to disperse all your information and intelligence, which I have done, it would still be out there. Uh, moreover, you create a dead man trigger. So I've since the 90s, I've had a dead man trigger of stuff I'm holding back. That if something happens to me. That hits the internet and every celebrity that supports what we're doing that can reach a billion people, they get it. They put it out on Instagram and boom, you know, and this is stuff they do not want out. Mm-hmm. It's names. It's stuff that I have not released and where and who. But people say, why don't you release it? I said, well, you know, this is one of my insurance policies. 
But what these inventors don't get is that they don't do that. They have no SecOps, so they have no security protocols. They just think, I have a better mousetrap. The world's going to beat a path to my door. When in reality, Murder Incorporated beats a path to their door. Okay, or it just gets confiscated. Most of the time, it's not even that. They're so crazy. They think, we're going to keep this secret. Nobody will know how it works. And I'm going to just sort of be able to get it out there without no one proving it. And I said, no, no. If you're making an outrageous claim that you're pulling energy out of the space around us, it's got to be released for scientific review. It's got to be reproduced by multiple labs and people who are skilled in the art. you got to open source it. Open source means it's just out there mm-hmm. at the first level. Now, maybe at the second level, you could patent because then the whole world knows. So what we're proposing is that at a level one uh, phase of these new technologies coming out, we're going to leave the things that fly alone because those could be missile delivery systems. But the things that would run your house, your car, whatever, a boat, a truck, those need to come out like 100 years ago. So the way to do it, and this we outline, is that we would disclose it publicly on blockchain-protected systems massively, multiple celebrities. And the first 20 of these devices we would reproduce would be running Demi Lovato's home or Leo DiCaprio's house or uh, Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters or whoever, all these people interested in the subject. Why? Because the media could suppress this, but you can't suppress dozens of celebrities with a billion followers. Yeah. Got it. I mean, you know, sort of like it's an it's a it's a very well thought through strategy. It's unconventional because my view is you've put a boulder in front of, of where we're trying to flow. But you just the water, if you're water, you just flow around it. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Even if they do try to suppress it once, you know, because they yep. could take the post, they could take the video. It's already been out it's there. Out. So many people have already seen it. They would have to, they would have to delete the accounts before, before it gets out. Well, they'd have to tear down the whole internet. If you have, so our plan would be to have a multi-nation, multi-site, blockchain protected release of the, the schematics how it works, everything about it. So anyone could reproduce it if, if you know how to do that. I mean, I couldn't even make a toaster oven. How many people do you think are out there that know how to produce this kind of technology? Oh, hundreds. Hundreds. Hundreds, maybe, maybe more. Over the years, there have been thousands of these devices that have come and gone. Most of them, people just take it to their grave because they don't understand the strategy of what they need to do. So they'll make a deal with someone financially, and that someone is is fronting for another interest that suppresses it, mm-hmm. buys it out. It's called black shelving. It happens all the time in the corporate world. You want something that's a com- competition. You create a corporate entity. You fund it, get controlling interest in it, and then you just put it on black shelf. I know of multiple devices that would literally save humanity and the planet that that's happened to. So you can't do it that way because the legal and financial traps are real. The national security applications that have been abused and under the patent law are real. This, the law century, this film is going to prove all this to the extent that the public, you know, and it's an hour and 48 minutes, but uh, it's all there. Um, so I think that what we're asking people is another ask. If you know of someone or you have one of these systems, 
get it to us. We have a strategy and the contacts to get it out. Now, the second level, people say, well, I did all this work. I, I just want to make money on it. I said, that is the second phase. So once it's disclosed publicly, it's a little bit like DARPA creating the Internet. So everyone uses the Internet, and, and there's no one who owns the Internet. But now that that whole platform has created dozens of billion and trillion dollar companies, right? Mm-hmm. That's what needs to happen here. Because I think we have it, if we're lucky, 20 years to make this transition. New Mexico State University Global Campus. Find your online program at nmsu.edu slash global. Why do you say that? Because the rate of decay of the biosphere, but also the geopolitical problems we're facing, when you have this growing number of the world's population in utter despair and poverty, and that's all based on the fact of the zero-sum game of our energy and financial system. There's no way changing that. I mean, if, if all 8 billion people on the planet live like you and I do, with air conditioning or trucks, or this, the price of a gallon of fuel would be $100 a gallon. Yikes. So there's it, it, the system we have now requires the geopolitical and military instability it's it's a natural outgrowth of it this is why when i had this conversation with senator barry goldwater who was the senior senator from arizona who ran for president in 1964 and, and lost john mccain took his seat and i was at his home in paradise valley i was just there um this week but this was back in the 90s and he said you know it was a goddamn mistake then and a goddamn mistake now this was ever kept secret and because he and I had this long afternoon discussing this and what the implications of the secrecy have been, but also what are the wonderful implications of, of fixing this? It's nothing less than starting a whole new chapter in human civilization where in 20 years, there would be no poverty on the planet, no pollution, unbelievable abundance. Because if you bring to zero the cost of energy, of transportation, manufacturing, da 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 you're you're creating a global economy that's decentralized where every village, home, whatever is self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a libertarian's dream, right? Um, but it's also an environmentalist dream. So I tell people this crosses all the political left-right stuff if you understand what's at stake here. So in this one movement, you 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 solve some of the environmental existential problems we're facing. You're going to solve a lot of these geopolitical problems with oil and oil supply, Mideast, Russia, gas. But you're also going to, in, in a real sense, liberate the world from the current system so it can flourish without it being this a handful of centralized choke points for energy. That's the plan. Now, to do it, you need to have something that works. And I always tell people, a lot of people say, well, here's a black box and take my word for it. I go, no, no, I don't take the word on something this important. It's got to be, we have to have the plans for it. We have to reproduce it. And we have to be able to have other people, third party, and reproduce it. And it should work as advertised. Most of these inventors don't want to do that because they don't know anything about science. The sine qua non of science is independent verification and proof, you know. And that's the other problem. A lot of these people have these inventions, 
but they keep the sauce secret. But no one's going to believe it. Why should they? I wouldn't. Yeah. Now, because I've gone into labs and had it tested, I know they exist. But they don't want to turn over the secret to the public because they're paranoid about having their – it's like Gollum. We use this in the movie. And then My Precious Ring, remember the movie? Yeah. And it's like they're trying to protect that, but they don't understand if they could get it out to the whole world as an open source, let's say proof of principle system. The next phase, they could then create specific products that could be patented. Why? Because now the public would demand it. The scientific community would have it, and the public would say, I want that. I want that thing running my F-150 truck. Yeah. So I'm not spending $100 to fill it up if you're a carpenter like my dad. So that is something that, you know, becomes a really powerful uh, solution we're spending trillions of dollars on, frankly, fake environmental solutions. You know, I know you're right because we we actually covered, uh, I did an episode on in, environmental solutions, which could help with fires, could help with world hunger, could help with it could help with mm-hmm. a lot of things, yeah. and and it got zero attention. And these guys have been walked into Congress, mm-hmm. been walked into the Senate. Nobody gave them the time of day. Nope. And, um, yeah, they need to contact here. If someone has something like this, and the reason they need to contact us is that I've worked with inventors since 91 who have had some iteration version of these. And there's a certain number of known fatal mistakes they make that I'm outlining. So what I've tried to do, create a strategy that accounts for those mistakes. Um, and it's kind of unconventional because you, most people, when they get something like this, oh my God, I have to keep it secret. I got a patent and I got to do this. No, no, no. You take it quickly because the most dangerous point is when you have something that works, but you don't have millions of people who know about it yet. That's the window where it can be confiscated, where your lab can be firebombed, where it can be stolen, where you can be imprisoned or killed or whatever. So that that is just plain not smart. Um, now, it, to most people, don't know that that you know, eight hundred pound gorilla is out there ready to squash you like a wormy apple. They go, "Oh, I'm great. I'm fine as frog's hair." And until they get hit with these things, how many of these devices have you seen personally? Oh, uh, maybe a dozen or so over the years that, what, that have been legitimate. Can you describe what? couple of them look like. Well, one of them will be in this documentary, and it was out in the desert of Arizona. It was there in September of uh, 2022, and uh, this old guy had out and out there, uh, it looked like a shoebox, and it was sitting there running. It had been there for two years, putting out three kilowatts of power. Really? The average home, on average, uses about one and a half kilowatts. What's inside of it? Um, he had some fake circuits to, so that nobody could steal his little secret ring like Gollum mm-hmm. or the rings. Uh, and there were some <clears throat> specialized magnesium alloy plates and it was basically resonating with the magnetic field, sort of similar to what Tesla did with the Wardenclyffe, his big Wardenclyffe system, yeah. but a much higher tech version. What was the Wardenclyffe? That was what Nikola Tesla had out on, out on Long Island. That was this uh, wireless transmission of power, and it, w- it was pulling power from the 
magnetic field of the earth and converting it to electricity. Okay. And that all got eventually got blown up. But Tesla had amazing breakthroughs. One of the things we're going to show in this documentary, people think it's an urban myth that the FBI raided his apartment when he died and confiscated all his secret papers. I have the Department of Defense letter to the FBI demanding that the FBI turn those over to them. That's going to be in the documentary. This is all going to be in the documentary. Yep. Back to the box. Does it make any sound? How does it hook up to? The only thing you hear are the things it's running. He was running air conditioners and lights and this and that. We had no no wires going into it with any power. The startup battery was a little teeny three volt that you could take out once it was running. And how does it connect? To what? To air conditioners, to to conventional wires. It was, it had 110 and 220. Okay. Um, and then so it could run anything. You run your house, you run your car. How did this guy have it hooked up? Was it into the, like, did he have it wired into the fuse box or what? No, he had, uh, no, cause he didn't want to have that on the grid. When he did it on the grid, the power company saw that there was something going on, thought that there was a solar panel tied into the grid that wasn't legal because you have to get a permit. Hmm. And so, um, he had it off. He had his own, his own workshop and other part out on his property, just running independently off of it. Okay. So all the wires, air conditioning, refrigerator, everything. Makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, but his strategy is to keep it secret. And if someone, he said, well, if someone got this and tried to figure out what was going, I have a circuit in there so it destroys itself. It's this sort of paranoid inventor stuff, right? Uh, which I get, you know, he spent a lot of time and money and his life's work. But I say, dude, this is how you take this to the grave. You know, he's, he's elderly. So what I have seen over and over again is very frustrating is dozens of these accounts where they got it to a certain point. No one knew exactly how they were doing it. They kept all that secret. Next thing you know, someone's bought it off, they've died, or whatever, and it's lost forever. So, so we have to break this cycle. It's a crazy cycle. You've seen a couple, uh, around a dozen, I believe you just yeah. said. Do they, yeah. do, are they all very similar? Oh no, they're very different ways. There are like probably 18 ways to skin this cat. Really? Yeah. Are they all small, compressed size of the shoebox type? No, there are some that are big rotary systems that are really? bigger. Uh, yeah. Um, so you'll see in the the documentary, I think we feature maybe a dozen of them historically that have existed with photos and videos and test results. It'll be an interesting documentary for people who are kind of, we want to pull the curtain back on those systems all the way up to the reverse engineering and the things that fly that Lockheed Skunk Works and Northrop Grumman and these Raytheon have. This is going to be, I cannot wait to see this documentary. This It's coming out in June. June 6th. June, June 6th. 6th. Then you have June 12th. Yeah. Just a moment. That's only three months away. Truth or Consequences is where air and water flirt in a way to welcome you in where you seek inspiration three months and two weeks yes so uh six days later we're going to have a national press club event again disclosure 2.0 in washington dc 
I would love to be there for that. Yeah. Well, you're invited. And um, we need many media people and podcast people there. Um, The weekend before, that's a Monday, that weekend before on the 10th and 11th, we're going to have a conference open to the public where we'd be unpacking the uh, intelligence archive, everything we've collected. Right now it's about five or six terabytes. Okay. It's huge. It's like crazy. Tens of thousands of government documents, uh, photos, videos, drawings, and testimony of, I think we have 109 cases of crash retrievals where... 109 cases? Yeah. And you will see, you'll, when you see the the drawings and the what the military guys described and the retrieval of these, that's all going to be there. Now, are these all, all these people that are bringing this information to you, and, and I think there's going to be a lot more because the whistleblowers, um, for your call out, are where are all these people coming from? Are they all from the U.S.? Are they coming from all over the world? Some of them are Canadian, Australian, U.K. Um, we have some, we have a big Russian file from the KGB era that was given to me. Um, that's in the archive. Uh, very interesting cases, landing cases. Marina Popovich, who was Pavel Popovich, is why they were both cosmonauts, had encounters in a case where one landed, an extraterrestrial vehicle landed. And we have all that information. Uh, I flew her over in 1995 for this Project Starlight gathering, uh, the very first gathering of these whistleblowers and witnesses. And then in 97, we did it again as for members of Congress offsite in Georgetown. Uh, and, you know, chairman of committees were there. At that stage, none of them had coalesced into a movement to get where we are now. And then 2001, we did the National Press Club event. So this has been an evolving process mm-hmm. that's, you know, when people say, when do you think this will be done by? I said 1993. <laughs> so 30 years ago, in my in my optimism and naivete, I thought, well, if I put the best evidence together, and that's what we called it for, for the president at the time. It was Clinton, the CIA director, all these guys. The best available evidence, BAE. You'll see that markings on some of my notes that are in this archive. We're also going to release all those documents. Last night at dinner, we yeah. discussed some of this, and you had mentioned that the, you have video of an extraterrestrial being dissected. Photo. Photo. photo excuse me. That is very strange from 1920s. The provenance of that is very interesting. A woman uh, contacted me, and her grandmother had worked at Los Alamos, I mean, at the Trinity site on the Manhattan Project. But then they got moved to Roswell, and her mother was there when they, those three craft went down. We found two of them. One wasn't found until 1951. Um, and by the way, that was an early electro DEW directional energy weapon that downed those. And people say, oh, they crash in a thunderstorm. I'm going, I'm quite sure if you can go through interstellar space, you can navigate an earth based thunderstorm. Um, but I have a document and this is in the uh, unacknowledged book of a field agent writing to J. Edgar Hoover about this so-called Roswell event saying that these flying saucers, they called them disks, crashed because we had switched on a new, quote, radar system. 
So for those people who don't know, radar is often a euphemism for both a system that detect objects bouncing radio waves off of aircraft, but also in some of them are active warfare systems, electromagnetic warfare systems. So they had an early electromagnetic system in that new radar system. And this field agent, Guy Hotel, H-O-T-T-E-L-L, wrote to J. Edgar Hoover as a field agent, I have that document. When I released it, 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 the FBI had to release it. It became the most watched, looked at document on the FBI site. But it flat out says that that's what happened. So um, that woman, the grandmother, somehow went from the Manhattan Project to being at Roswell. Well, why? In 1947, the Roswell Army Air Base, it was before the Air Force was formed, was the only uh, atomic bomb squadron in the world, the 508th squadron in the whole planet. So she was there because she followed that operation from the origins of the atomic bomb, you know, out at White Sands and, and out there, to New Mexico. So when that event happened, apparently someone must have brought in, this is conjecture now, some kind of archive of previous encounters with these objects that went way back. And someone in the photo lab took a picture of a picture. We've proven that's what it is. And it's a, it's a extraterrestrial on a, on a dissection with a group of doctors and what look like some suits in the background. And we've, we've had the top historian, medical historian, in the world, look at the equipment, the suits, the gloves, and dated it from between 1922 and 29. Um, now, the rest of it, we don't know. We don't know what event that was, where it was taken. We're trying to track down the personnel that are in there, but we're talking a hundred years ago. What does the ET look like? Does it have arms? Does it have legs? Yeah, arms, fingers, legs. Head. The head is covered with a towel. Apparently it was badly mutilated. Um, it had a weird, almost like a spine uh, on the front, like we have a sternum that you could see, like a bumpy thing. Um, different hands and feet. Two arms? Two arms. Two, two legs. legs. Oh, yeah. They're all um, like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And not tiny. Uh, I think it was around five feet. It's hard to tell from this mm-hmm. photo. So we have a lot of material like this that's uh, going to be in there. That's going to be in the doc, too. Not in the documentary, in this archive. So one of the things we're also trying to find is someone who can develop, we talked about this, a a website, so that we're refining this archive. This archive I'm handing off to the U.S. government already, the raw data. But we want to organize it more. Right now it's just hundreds of thousands of things. And I don't know if people realize how much five, six terabytes of data is. It's Mm -hmm. enormous. Um. But what we wanted to do is create something that's available to the public and to the media that has all of this. The only thing that won't be in there are the things I must redact, people's names uh, uh, and their personal credibility information. Not credibility, but I, I understand. Unless they've come public already with the disclosure project or in some other setting, their information will be blackened out like you see an NSA document or something. Yeah. But what they know will be in there. Their, their information. 
in terms of the content. Like I was at this, I was on the Nellis range and I retrieved an extraterrestrial vehicle was downed and, or an ARV went down, a man-made UFO went down and I was there and it were, it had gotten malfunctioned and broke apart and we were picking it up. I have those kind of things. And so that'll be in there, but without the person's name and DD-214 and all that. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to make that dis- um, connection. So that's going to come out around the same. We hope. I can't promise this because I'm not a tech guy. In fact, if I have to turn my computer on, my wife does it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm a, a digital moron, frankly. But um, And I'll admit it. But the uh if we can find someone to create a secure website that's searchable and well organized for this archive we hope to have it up by june 1st well i can't wait to make that connection it's one of the most brilliant minds that i've ever encountered and uh, i think you're going to find a lot more use for yeah we we need a lot of help i mean people you know because i'm known in the public think we have some vast business with a building with staff it's my wife and I do this out of a corner of our living room with volunteers and a couple people under contract to help us with things. Um, it's a very modest undertaking um, and a labor of love. Um, but, you know, I, it's just the way it is. I'm just not I'm not that I'm not good at business. I'm good with ideas and science and strategy and I'm not a, I need a business mogul help us. But anyway, yeah. we've gotten this far. Um, but we need some people who have that talent who, who, but it's gotta be someone who really can do. Also the problem with it, it's not just documents. Now we probably have a hundred thousand government documents from all over the world. Amazing stuff. Um, and, but we also have video of all these witnesses that have allowed themselves to be publicly known. Most people haven't seen most of it. Because at the National Press Club and what have you, and these documents, you can only show like the tip of the iceberg. This will have all of it. So a guy's interview, we may be able to use two or three minutes. But in here, it'll be an hour, hour and a half, whatever. Yeah. Much deeper dive. So it's an open source network full of all of these thousands and thousands of documents, photos and videos and interviews. And Right. Do you, are you... I know you have people on the inside here in the U.S. Do you have people on the inside in different agencies throughout the world? Oh yes, we have had you know MOD in UK and MI6 and any any Australian, any with China, Russia, Russia. Yes, uh, China. I've only had um, an ambassador from China that I've dealt with. Japan, I've dealt with some uh, cabinet level folks. Interestingly, when you go to these other countries that are in the G seven, let's say, the group of seven countries, you know, uh, the big industrial powers. And I bring up, you know, since the U.S. government is dragging its feet, why don't you guys take the lead? I'll hand it all over to you. And they just turn pale and go, oh, no, we can't get ahead of the U.S. on something this sensitive. Mm. So this is why it's such a big breakthrough that the U.S. Congress has finally passed this bill and the president signed it, which is a rare moment of What's interesting about this is that there's serious bipartisan support for getting to the bottom of this problem, getting to the answers. It's not partisan at all, and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it should not be partisan. Yeah. I mean, it has to be nonpartisan. And that's why I always try to couch things in. This is the tide that will lift all ships, this information coming out. 
unless you own stock in ExxonMobil. But um <laughs> so let's um let's move into the JFK Marilyn Monroe assassination. <laughs> oh some of the fun stuff. Yeah. Let's <laughs> move into that. What do you know about that? A lot. So some years ago, I got from uh, the vault from a national security agency guy uh, an envelope. And it had a big old Xerox uh, of this document that was a wiretap of Marilyn Monroe dated a couple of days before they found her dead. And it was signed by uh, the CIA guy, James Jesus Angleton III. Now, he was a famous fanatical leak, mole hunter and leak stopper at the agency back in the early 60s. Hmm. Fanatical. And they had wiretapped Marilyn Monroe's phone. And she was calling up Bobby Kennedy and a friend of hers named Rothberg in New York, who was an art dealer, saying that she was going to hold a press conference to tell the whole world what Kennedy had told her about, and I'm quoting, the objects from outer face, outer space from the 40s found in New Mexico, a clear reference to Roswell and a couple of the other events that happened out there. That was the only one, by the way. <laughs> there was a 1945 oh. crash of an ET craft that happened right after we detonated the first atomic bomb um, that has just gotten the Trinity site. That has just gotten documented by a good friend of mine, Paula Harris, who's a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating book. So, and there's material associated with that. But so Marilyn, because I think the Kennedy brothers had, had distanced themselves because the affair she was having with Jack Kennedy was a little bit getting too well known. She was angry, and so she was threatening to spill the beans in a public news conference where the whole world would have been there. So before she could do that, uh, Wetworks killed her, made it look like an overdose of drugs, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't. One of her friends way back in the day was this old, uh, cool guy who was named Burl Ives, who was an actor and singer back in the day, and he was friends. and He was on my executive committee uh, up until he died. Interesting guy, 33rd degree Mason, all that. But he didn't know anything about the subject. So I go into his house in Anacortes, Washington, and I have this document. I didn't bring the original to it, but the one I have. Uh, and it, it's this transcript, and it flat out, he, and he looks and he goes, now I know why they killed her. I said, of course. And, of course, Kennedy was livid that that happened because he had affection for her, even though he had the distance for Political reasons. But he was working on an executive order at that time that would have dissolved the agency and a lot of these operations that were dealing with this. The agency is in CIA? Yeah. So before that could go through the executive review process, he was killed. Now. Jack will be back. Yes, he will. Oh, my God. Marilyn Monroe is another story. Now, interestingly, he, um, it wasn't just the UFO issue. It was a bunch of issues dealing with this whole constellation of problems. Because remember, he took office right after Eisenhower. 
Eisenhower's last speech to the world. And, you know, he's a five-star general, right? Two-term Republican president. It was an Abby Hoffman. He's the one who coined the term, beware the military-industrial complex. It was an anti-military. He was anti-fascist, which is the collusion and control of government interests and the interests of the people by selfish corporate and moneyed people. That's what he was talking about. People have to get clarity on this. Yeah. Because otherwise it gets politicized. Now, this is where Eisenhower was coming from. Now, I have a witness, a guy named Stephen Lovkin, who was an attorney, but at the time he was an Army Signal Corps guy who was in the White House with Eisenhower. And he saw Eisenhower doodling pictures of UFOs and stuff. And he talked to him and he says, yeah, he says, I, I've lost. They're not telling me much anymore about this. I've lost control of these projects. Very interesting read. It's in the disclosure book. It is in this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In that book. Um, and so it, it's a worrisome situation because I've been able to piece together the presidential level of this back, uh, all the way to Roosevelt. Um, by the way, Foo Fighters, yes, it's a Brock band, but they named their band, Dave Grohl was in Nirvana after what a Foo Fighter is, which is what a UFO was called. Really? In World War II. So in World War II, we had these weird, almost plasma-like objects zipping around our aircraft. The Nazis thought it was a secret Allied weapon. We thought it was a secret Nazi weapon. So there's this medical doctor, this elderly guy was on my team. He was a hematologist, pathologist in uh, Denver. And uh, his uncle was General Jimmy Doolittle. And so this is how I knew knew the story. So General Doolittle was sent over there by Roosevelt to look into what the heck are these Foo Fighters. And he and General Doolittle comes back to the White House and tells Roosevelt, sir, those are, quote, interplanetary vehicles. I'm quoting. Interplanetary vehicles. So that's how far back this knowledge is. goes. This is fascinating stuff. You talk a lot about the Rockefellers. Well, only to the extent that Lawrence, who was the philosopher king, Lawrence Rockefeller, who was the brother of David Rockefeller of Chase Manhattan, that's now J.P. Morgan Chase, Lawrence wanted to help with getting this problem fixed. So <clears throat> he hosted us at the Rockefeller Ranch in the Tetons um, and was helping do things behind the scenes. And then later he hosted the Clintons there under cover of a summer vacation to go through this material that we'd put together. The best available evidence is what it was called BAE. But um, I think Hillary, if if I remember correctly, he told me Hillary stood up and said, we don't want to hear too much more about this. Too dangerous, too dangerous. But he was, he and I got to know each other quite well. He, 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 his heart was in the right place. Now he had people around him. We found out who are actually uh, deep cover intelligence operatives. I don't want to name who they are, but one of them, I was at their townhouse in Upper East Side. This guy had been ambassador to France for Reagan on the board of Morgan Stanley. And he was, was yelling. He said, he told me he and William F. Buckley, the conservative journalist, were both recruited when they were at Yale into the CIA to be embedded in the corporate and political world. And so he and his wife sort of were a, a duo that ended up then <clears throat> misdirecting Rockefeller in the in the wrong directions to stop that initiative. So people have to understand how really good 
counterintelligence operates and how you have operatives who can go in and turn things sideways. Mm-hmm. Now, that's 93, 94, 95. So we're talking ancient history here. The big problem is people make these sweeping conspiracy theories. Most of the younger Rockefellers are actually very supportive of this coming out. Um, Lawrence was. But now Jay Rockefeller, who had been the chairman of Senate Intelligence Committee, and David, Lawrence's brother, were both members of this committee. And I went out on the deck late at night with Lawrence Rockefeller. And he, and one night when we had this gathering at, at the, at the ranch. And this was before Clinton went there. Um, and he turned to me and in, you know, he said, you know, my family, referring to these other folks, are jumping up and down on my nuts, quote unquote, because I'm even talking to you and doing this. I said, yeah, I'm sure, because they have a very vested interest in, in maintaining the, the secrecy. So uh, there you have some people who were read in. Lawrence was the philosopher, king, philanthropist. He wasn't banking. He wasn't Senate intelligence chairman like Jay Rockefeller had been. So you see, there are people who have been in the system who know, but they will turn to their colleagues and lie to them. So here's another pattern you have to get. Everybody have these sweeping, oh, the Bilderbergers and the trilateral. I said, look, most of those folks couldn't find their rear end in a well-lighted room on this issue. But there are people involved who do know. And because they're part of this elite club, mm-hmm. say the Senate or what have you, or the National Security Council, they'll go, oh, we've looked into this. There's nothing to it. It's a hot air balloon. Yeah. It's it's a, it, it's a whatever. Um. I had a guy from the Bohemian Grove come to me uh, after we did the disclosure project. And he said, oh, yeah, there was someone there because this had hit the media so hard. And he says, well, I was involved in committees dealing with this issue in the U.S. government. It all ended up being swamp gas or uh, misperceptions of Venus rising or a weather balloon that crashed in New Mexico. And, of course, since he was one of them, there's inherent trust. So they have people who go – there's a place near Culpeper, Virginia called The Farm, and people are tra- going there to be trained mm-hmm. to be professional disinformation, basically how to lie well yeah. and to embed yourself in lie. I know where it is. Um, anyone listening has been there? You know what I'm talking about. So, uh, it, it, so unfortunately, there is, they're very, very good at uh, embedding uh, people in key places who then give false information to their brethren and their sisters in that organization who have, because of who they are, they have instant credibility. So they're going to say, why are you going to listen to this old doctor? I was, I, I, this is what it is. And we know. So I've seen this for 30 years. It, it's, it's a dog and pony show, you know, very, very, very clever. Um, and that's what happened to Lawrence. Lawrence got uh, zoomed. He got basically diverted by these people he trusted uh, had been in his circle for years, and he ended up getting diverted. Damn. Let's yeah. let's um. We're running short on time here, so yeah. I want to cover a couple of things. But sure, I would like to cover quantum of thought, mm-hmm. even though it's very unrelated to what we're talking about. I'm just, it's a fascinating topic, mm-hmm. and I want to yeah. I want to dive into that. Well, this is another whole show, and it's cool. Uh, so I always tell people. Sort of the entry level technological discussion on this is energy generation, propulsion, electrogravitics. The real 
amazing information has to do with <clears throat> what quantum physicists call entangled universe. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually Einstein called it the spooky effect where the same particle could be in two places at once because of what's called non-locality where basically we think in terms of a straight line point A to B in the universe or in space here. In reality, there's an aspect of uh, the cosmos that is entangled where every point in space and time is intimately connected to every other, but not at the speed of light or what have you, but instantly. It's called entanglement. Now, the ultimate entangled field or non-local field is consciousness. The father of modern quantum mechanics, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, particle wave theory, in 1908 said, the total number of minds in the universe is one. It's a singularity. Mm-hmm. So people talk about the singularity. This is the singularity. And it has to do with the consciousness field. So what extraterrestrial civilizations have for their communication systems, they're not going to pick up this thing, right, mm-hmm. at the speed of light. And go and communicate from, let's say you're from the Andromeda galaxies, two and a half million light years from here. It's too slow. At the speed, this goes at the speed of light. Yeah. So at the speed of light, it'd take two and a half million years for the signal to get there and another 10, two and a half million years for the person to answer and say, yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you? It's five million years. So we know, and I knew this when I was 18 because I had a contact experience that these civilizations have both innate remote viewing capabilities, but they have technologies that interface with that quantum field at the level of a quanta of thought. So not just random thought, but like directional, like in, like if you're looking at the device and you think to it, it transmits to another node, another point. So now we've known this for decades in, in the CIA and other agencies, because when they started studying the devices, not just the propulsion systems and the energy, but how are these guys communicating? They found these devices. And to me, this is some of the most interesting research that no one ever talks about. But if you look at Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which is our documentary about contacting and using this technique, mm-hmm. uh, it, the foundation of it is this. It's the science of consciousness and the science of the quanta of thought interfacing not only with each other, but dropping out of linear space time. And so we call this trans-dimensional physics, physics across dimensions. And one of the dimensions is the so-called thought realm. And it's fascinating. Uh, And so now take that knowledge that maybe some mystics in India and the Vedas and meditation I'll admit that before I was a medical doctor, I was a meditation teacher mm-hmm. and studied all this. So I kind of, after I had the contact experience, I went, what the heck? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. So I became a student of the ancient Vedas and Sanskrit and then meditation before I went into medical school. But um interesting career track, huh? But you're unconventional. But, uh, but what I learned was that this is how these civilizations uh, are able to communicate in real time across a million light years of space. Have you heard of string theory? Yes. Now, from what I've heard, the Chinese are claiming that they can communicate with their satellites through string theory. Do you? It could be. I mean, I know that our intelligence community at the upper end of it, deep black, 
have um, systems that are interfacing with this technology. We have this too. Oh God, yeah, way back. It that got perfected between 1956 and 1965. Can you des- can you describe string theory? Well, I'll let a physicist describe th- string theory, and some people don't think it's quite accurate. I think a more accurate view of it is what I'm calling non-locality. Okay. In other words, where uh, in, in the in, what's called entanglement, the interconnectivity, and this is why Ben Rich, who is the head of the Lockheed Skunk Works said, uh, and I have three people who were there when he said it at a lecture, UCLA, uh, School of Engineering. Um, and he said, uh, this is in, I believe, 95, 1995. It was at the end of his career. And he had taken Kelly Johnson's place, who was founded the Skunk Works, the Lockheed Skunk Works, the U2 spy plane, all that. And he said, <laughs> someone asked, how would how would these extraterrestrial civilizations communicate? And he said, every point in space and time is connected to every other point in space and time in real time instantly. And that's how they're doing it. And it's through consciousness, through mind. And of course, everybody there was like, these are nuclear engineers and whatnot. And they're going, what, you know, WTF, but you know, that's true. So one of the things I get ridiculed the most for the work I'm doing with contact and Mm -hmm. consciousness what people don't realize that is the deepest secret that they have on this because if people understand that they can bypass any intelligence system and remote view and see, or they can contact these civilizations. They have to be trained, you know, but I, so I train people with the, we have an app. It's called CE5 contact app and the CE5 contact app, you know, there's millions of people using it now. And it's a whole training program on remote viewing, meditation, making how to do this. But the foundation of it is what you're asking about. And that's the technological interface that I, I don't have. We have classified projects that have some of this, but the, these other civilizations have. Um, I remember talking to a um, McDonnell Douglas became part of Boeing. One of their chief aerospace engineers is on my team, Dr. Woods. Very elderly now, but he was assigned by old man McDonald, McDonald Douglas, to look into this issue in the 60s. And he found cases where there were people that had contact with these extraterrestrial vehicles and the personnel, the, the beings. They're called Ebens, extraterrestrial biological entities. Um, so the Eben was there and it had this little kind of black rectangular box. And it was used so they didn't have to speak verbally like we are. It was kind of telepathic, but augmented with this technology. And it went back and forth that way. Now, the human was just receiving it, but very clear. And then this Eben was receiving it probably innately, but assisted. So I call this consciousness assisted technology, CAT. And then the reverse, technology-assisted consciousness, where the technology can help project your remote viewing capability. It goes both ways. Really? So the inter- so let's say the guidance system on these interstellar vehicles, they can stand at a console and touch it or think to it and then navigate it. That's how it's done. Wow. We know how that's done. That is fascinating. Yeah. This is the really cool. To me, you know, this other stuff is like the 
introductory. But the stuff that really excites me is that is this, you know, and of course, and, and Elon Musk has Neuralink where he's trying to create a interface between the mind and machine, but he's doing it with wires and things in the brain and what have you. No, we're not talking about that because that's at the speed of light. Yeah. I'm talking about the speed of thought. And that you're now in another universe. Now you've gone through the looking glass with this. Now this question you asked is, to me, it's the really amazing science. I'm fascinated. You know what they call this at the CIA, this kind of stuff? And at my uncle's old company, they, they call it WSFM. Anybody out there listening heard this? Weird science and frickin' magic. <laughs> I'm using the F word. <clears throat> and at my uncle's company, they, they would call it PFM, just pure effing magic. <laughs> but it's real. It's science, but it's really amazing stuff. How much do you know about the Monroe Institute and their oh, studies with the CIA? Lots. <laughs> and and Army Intelligence. How long have they been? I didn't realize Army Intelligence was using Oh, yeah. Stubble, uh, General Stubblebine took his people through there. How long has CIA been, have, how long has CIA been utilizing remote viewing and working with the Monroe Institute? I believe when, when the Monroe Institute was later, I think they started those projects in the 60s and 70s. Um, Monroe Institute was not that integral. There were, it was, they had a technique, sem- hemisync, that they <clears throat> found some was useful for some people. Um, and so a lot of people went through there. It's 20 minutes from my country house out near in, in Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Really? It's further located. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they did a lot of work with that. Um, but it was sort of as a ancillary, not as a principal, uh, operation. Now, Ingo Swan, who is one of the most famous remote viewers, um, is a friend of mine, and uh, before he passed away, and uh, he, he regretted what he had done with with that. He wished he had done what I'm doing, which was something positive, instead of doing what he was doing with the mm-hmm. the agency. But um, he was the most accurate. He was incredibly accurate. Very interesting guy. I went up to his house, his place in the East Village in New York. And he was this very flamboyant gay guy with him and an artist. And he was like this brilliant. He was all over the place. But we had just a great time. And, you know, he shared with me a lot of experiences he had with CIA operations, remote viewing, very accurate targeting of things in the Soviet Union and elsewhere out in space. He imaged uh, objects out near Saturn that nobody knew were there, that they proved later were there. Really amazing. Is this documented? Some of the stuff? Ah, uh, he has a couple books out that may have mentioned some of it. You know, a lot of times these folks will share things with me personally mm-hmm. that they, I don't know if it's in the book. I haven't, I'd have to look it up and see. Uh, he had one book called Penetration, uh, that you can get that deals with a lot of that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, goes on, but, uh, <sighs> would you consider what you're doing with CE5 remote viewing. Oh, sure. It's a, it's a, it's a more advanced version for the purpose. Uh, so CE5 contact in the app, you'll see the purpose of it is for humans to be able to liaison with these civilizations and bypass the government who made a mess of this. So one of the things that we come, we came to realize is that the management of this and it's understandable how it tracked into military and intelligence operations because it's technological and we wanted to know how these things work. But the complete management of it that way caused there to be a huge mistake 
in the relationship between humans and these other civilizations. And here, here I want to put a button on this. When we detonated the first atomic bomb and the subsequent ones, um, when those go off, everybody knows what an electromagnetic pulse is. Yep. What they don't know is that there's a, a, uh, an attending so-called scalar or longitudinal wave yeah. that is faster than the speed of light that disrupts the fabric and communication and, and propulsion guidance systems of extraterrestrial vehicles. This is why they came in in huge force in the 40s and 50s. And this is why every single atomic and nuclear weapon storage facility, processing plant and base and ship has been surveilled by these ET vehicles because they, when, when those things are used, it is very, it's like tearing the fabric of space time. Now there are a few, Jacques Vallée knows this. There are a few physicists who know this. And so what this, this U2 spy plane pilot that I have brought to DC, this was his big concern at the military has completely misunderstood what the concern from these civilizations are. And they've looked at it purely as a threat when in reality we're the threat. So I have an interview with Gordon Crichton, who was a MI6 guy, British, and uh, he's dead now. He says, yes, when we did that, we, we kicked a hornet's nest because we actually disrupted their entire system. And remember, Entanglement. We think straight line speed of light. Well, EMP, EMP electromagnetic pulses are going to reach Alpha Centauri or some star system. But these so-called longitudinal or scalar waves that are, it's a point that goes out in a straight line without the wave function. Those are multiples of speed of light and they're highly disruptive. And so this is something that the senators and the president don't know. So there's a whole scientific brief that has to be done on how do we get to this place. And because it's been mismanaged, this creates an existential threat for the whole planet, that we have people who don't understand it, who should, and the people who do understand it are weaponizing those systems. And by the way, we're that's how we have downed Dozens and dozens of extraterrestrial vehicles. We're using these advanced energy weapons, but not the ones at the speed of light, the ones that are, are longitudinal or scalar. And those are ground based, sea based, space based. We have NRO satellites with these things on them. And we can detect an extraterrestrial vehicle when it's dropping down out of transdimensional. So in other words, when it's not 3D, but it's moved and through these other dimensions, and it's about to quote-unquote materialize, there's a neutrino light scatter that happens. And the, the sats we have up there, the, the eyes in the sky, the really advanced ones, have neutrino light detectors on them that pick that up. That's triangulated, and we hit them, or try to. Dangerous. I mean, it is a very dangerous game going on. The president doesn't know this. I know it. I have people who have run the systems on my team. Wow. And we're talking this foolishness is literally a threat to the entire planet, which is why. And I want to I want to just remind people of this. This is in the, the unacknowledged book. And it's a letter from the first CIA director to the uh, New York Times in 1961 after Eisenhower left office. 
and his name was Admiral Roscoe Hellenkeeter, H-I-L-L-E-N-K-O-E-T-E-R. And he said, part of the letter said, the issue is ridiculed when in, in high places it's taken very seriously. But he said, and this is the key point, the secrecy surrounding UFOs is, and I'm quoting, a threat to the national security. He had seen how badly this had gone. Now, this is 61. This is now 62 years ago. So this is why, again, I make this appeal to patriotic appeal to everyone listening who've been involved in this in any small way. doesn't matter if you were directly had knowledge of a facility, an operation, a man-made device, an extraterrestrial device, reconnaissance, radar, whatever it is. Please contact me at SiriusDisclosure.com, info at SIRIUSDisclosure.com. Because we have to get this fixed because in this deep, dark secrecy, there are, and when I say an existential threat to life on Earth, that's what's happening by this being mismanaged so badly. So there's a lot at stake. There is. Yeah. Well, Doc, I know you got to get going here. You got a lot of other places you got to be, and yeah. I just, I just want to say, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come here. Thank you. And uh, for this interview, and I am really hoping that I see you again. We will. So absolutely, let's do it. Perfect. Hope to see you at the uh, National Press Club event. I will be there at a conference before. I will be there. Yeah. Thank you. But cheers. Thank you very much. You know, I forgot too. Everybody gets a gift that comes on the show. Ah, and, thank you. Ah. <laughs> I'm a nice gummy Jones League gummy bears for you. There you go. Thank you. In all 50 states. <laughs> really? So, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was well done. Yeah. We've heard many, many times parts of it. He consolidated and synthesized it into this two-hour and 21-minute piece, and I, it's another sign, right? It is. Moving forward. Moving forward. So I think we have enough time for me to read Aurora Ray yeah, for today. I got to... Try to reboot this. Okay, honey. So here we go. Gaia is removing herself as a 3D planet, and all that resonates with the third dimension will disappear along with it. It is time to prepare you for the higher dimensional existence now. Stay calm, meditate. And enjoy the ride. The Galactic Ride. What? It is a ride. I will tell you what. And we are being challenged to remain in our high heart as shenanigans continue. The Galactic Federation is a galactic civilization of light, love, and service. We are made up of many intergalactic civilizations that have come together as one. Our mission is to protect, to enlighten other civilizations, as well as to aid them in their spiritual ascension. 
We are the first wave of universal love, and together with our allies, we are working tirelessly to liberate this space and bring about a new era of peace, harmony, and abundance for all evolving sentient life forms throughout this galaxy. The events that you see unfolding in front of your eyes are no mistake or accident. They have been planned out and choreographed so everything falls into place perfectly. The negative forces have been planning this for a long time. And now they are fully into the last stage of their dark plan. As the concentration of dark forces is reaching maximum capacity, their plans are ready to unfold, yet not before the divine plan has been fulfilled. You deserve to know the truth about what is happening in your world. Who is creating it? Who is manipulating it? And how you can survive and thrive. We are asking you to take a step back from all of this chaos in your world and see how everything is connected. Still, many people are like innocent children who create problems due to their unawareness. They do not know what they are doing. They do not realize how what they do affects the planet. And the result is that there is no harmony within them or between them and the universe. You do not have to waste your time debating with people who see life through illusions. Of course, we can understand that there is so much confusion. Why there is so much confusion about what is happening right now. The darkness was already present, as were the difficulties. However, because you have progressed in your consciousness, you can now perceive them clearly. It is a positive sign because you will only be able to solve them as you are aware of them. We're assisting you with being more... (gasps) We are assisting you with being more aware of your circumstances. Rather than complain... (gasps) Excuse me. Rather than complaining about darkness... It is better to be able to turn on the light and face the issues with courage, honesty, and honesty in, in order to find a solution. Life is constantly throwing new challenges at you. Challenge yourself to face and solve These problems, learn learn from them and grow. We are providing you with the ability to use 
the supernatural energy within you to solve all of your problems. What has been done can now now be undone. This is an exciting time in the world, and we are on the brink of some major breakthroughs. Few of you will be called upon to step forward in every field of human endeavor to assist Gaia in her ascension. She is removing herself as a 3D planet and all that resonates with the third dimension will disappear along with it. It is time to prepare you for higher dimensional existence. Now, stay calm, meditate, enjoy the ride. The Galactic Federation confirms that the dark forces are losing more and more control of power each day. The Earth will remain safe for you and your family. Dangers have been eliminated. Your sleep will be peaceful once again. There is no darkness at all. In fact, we cannot even call this a fight between light and darkness. In order for a battle to take place, the opponent must be of equal strength. Darkness, on the other hand, has no power because such a thing does not exist. It is just an illusion. Darkness implies the absence of light. Both cannot exist at the same time. As the light comes in, the darkness vanishes almost instantly. Now, the time has come to present you with the ushers of light. We have been observing your steps for a long time. Your wait is over. It is a time for all of humanity to remember who they really are after many years of being on the ground of planet Earth and in their human life experience. This is an extraordinary message from the Galactic Federation. We have found you gifted in many ways. You have a power in your heart that can let can get light force energy from us and spread to all humans on earth as the light force reaches you it will open your eyes to see and your ears to hear are small signals from space time after that we'll be able to communicate more directly with you after this event your life will be different everything you do Think and do will be ch- changed by the ascension energy. 
As an ascended master, you must act with wisdom and compassion toward those who are evolving through this transformation. Teach them how to maintain their physical camaraderie in an ascended world of light. Remind them that they are loved and appreciated by the Creator. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And we have one more, just enough time to read. Um, this is from Grandma Chandra. And she's titling this, Everything Will Speed Up. Everything will speed up and will happen much faster. All the roots that were planted will immediately produce the stems, the leaves, the flowers. You will see these fruits. They are the results of everything you were hoping for and working on. These flowers and fruits will be coming very fast. Watch for them. See them in all aspects of your life because everything is changing rapidly. The help that is coming to you will be amplified because of your rising energy, your response and your work. The help from your star family and galactic family will be increased exponentially. This is why everything is happening and changing so fast. You will be both the receivers and the transmitters. The energy that is coming through you will be of a greater volume and much higher in frequency. This is what will change your 3D quickly, your 3D reality quickly. Some governmental situations are changing. A few countries will be changing very soon. And people there will start living in a different way. You will see the first bright, shining information about technologies that will be finally claimed by humanity Humanity will be given access to these technologies and will use them in their daily lives. Telepathy and communication with your star family and galactic family, it will increase. People who are holding these connections will become communicators or transmitters. Due to this, Information will be more accurate, clearer, and more available to wider circles. Keep your vibrations as high as possible every second because every second counts. Hugs and love to all of you. Grandma. Grandma. All the grandmas in the world. She's speaking for all the grandmothers in the world. And Rama, 
How about you say a few things? We got a couple of minutes here. Turn it off. Just a couple of minutes. Say something. You want to hear from your? Oh, I can just say that uh, what Dr. Greer was talking about is um, we're in a pivotal moment. And love is the answer. I can put it simply that way because it transcends all the other stuff. And those folks with the Pentagon and the medals and the generals, um, send more love. <laughs> Everything we need, want, and desire is at our fingertips as we move into this new dispensation of light. And I would say that what is required of all of us is to look inside and make clear mind decisions about what that really is for each of us. And, I mean, love has as many ways of expressions as there are people. And, and I can say, this transcends everything. It's not about the money. You can't buy your way into ascension. And we all have the ability to connect with the quantum field. This is the one thing these folks don't want us to do that are pushing fossil fuels because they're out of business. They're out of time, but they're not out of love. And they pollute everything, and so we don't need to continue with that. We have so many... um, healing processes converging right now with all of us. So let the celebration begin with us. (laughs) And I will just say we'll take a little moment in time right now for a break. And we'll be back and we'll have Richard... uh, with a look at the stars, we'll have music, and Tanya Gabrielle and Kate Pasha will follow, and <clears throat> follow me where we go, where we do, what we do and what we know. Together we can do this. All right. Peace now. Peace down. Namaste for now. Hello. Hello. Hello, Richard. Pass the talking stick. Well, thank you, my very fine sister and brother Rama. Yeah, that that tune. That's a nice tune. You know, I just kind of my chair rocks a little bit, so I could get rocking with you know in my rocking chair with, with that. Yeah. yeah, it brought up it brought up a picture 
from somewhere in my ancient memory of an of an oceanside restaurant. Mm. No, anyway. All right, it's time to check in with the astrological conditions. I've been doing a little a little looking around here. If you remember um a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, talking about the fact that uh, Mercury was uh, 25 degrees behind the sun and Venus was 25 degrees ahead of the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, tonight, Venus is 30 degrees ahead of the sun. Venus is in eight Aries, Sun is in eight Pisces, mm. and Mercury's relative to the Earth. Mercury's moving fast. It's now 14 degrees behind the Sun. So that puts Mercury at 22 Aquarius. That's an interesting number. And, and so... Uh, so that's eight, and then and then another eight. So Mercury is uh, about fifteen degrees behind the sun, with Venus in between, uh, Saturn in between. All right. So Mercury's at twenty-two Aquarius. Saturn's at twenty-nine Aquarius, and the sun is at eight. Now Mercury is moving. Pretty fast right now. It's moving a, a degree and 37 minutes and 11 seconds per day. And the sun is just one degree and 21 seconds per day. All right. Mercury moving very fast. Venus is also moving fast. It's moving a degree and 13 minutes and 33 seconds per day, all right? Now, Venus is approaching Jupiter, all right, which is, you know, since it's way far away, Jupiter is only moving 13 minutes of arc per day, all right? So, Venus is moving faster than Jupiter. Jupiter's so middle of the week here, Venus conjunct Jupiter is going to be exact. All right, that's that's the, the big deal. And by the end of the week, like Friday, Venus is going to be conjunct Chiron. So this this energetic conglomeration, this stellum here, all right, with Venus approaching Jupiter, approaching Chiron, all right, tonight Jupiter is only three degrees away from Chiron, Chiron's at 14, Jupiter's at 12, Venus is at 7, all right, that's the driving condition the number two condition as the sun moves towards Neptune. All right. 
And Neptune's at 25. And the sun's at 8. So they're 17 degrees apart. So, and the sun moves a degree a day. So in a week, the sun will be 16 Pisces. And when it gets to 16 Pisces, it's going to be square Uranus. No, it's going to be sextile Uranus at 16 Taurus. All right. Now, we just had moon conjunct Taurus, Uranus in Taurus yesterday. All right. So Taurus at 16. Moon right now is at 23. So seven degrees is about a half a, half a day for moon travel. All right, so that's still going on. And then, of course, Mars at 18 Gemini. And, of course, the remaining energy here is Pluto in the last degree of Capricorn. So we're seeing... Many new appearances based on causes that most people don't even think about or even are not even aware about aware of or about because always remember appearances are the end result of a preceding cause of some kind. So, that's why I think it's really cool what Brother Dr. Greer is doing for us. So, send a prayer of protection for Dr. Greer and all his team. And I can't wait for that. I want to see that documentary. I can't wait for that. I'm, I'm excited about that. All right, enough of that. Enough of me. Let's see what's on Kaipacha's mind. You ready for that? Yeah. Let's. All right. I'll talk to you when that when that is finished. <laughs> okay. Here we go. This is Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report, and I am here. I am told that this is maybe, uh, you know, an hour or two from the absolute southernmost tip of Africa. And uh, it's amazing how much at home it feels like as I'm at home here. <laughs> really something, but um, yeah, I'm at this uh, breathwork uh ecstatic dance breathwork uh retreat so i'm just on my lunch break this may be kind of a short melee report but i wanted to just give you the lowdown on what's going on with this uh new moon 
happened in Pisces. I'm sure you remember on Monday, big shift happening with this new moon. A beautiful time for a dance workshop. (laughs) Moon moving through Pisces, and uh, she will uh, come up to conjoin uh, Neptune. And she is now in Aries. Yeah? Along with Venus, Jupiter, and Chiron. And this, I think, is really what I am going to be focusing on today, is this Jupiter-Venus-Chiron conjunction. Venus just went into Aries, okay? She's just inching her way up. She's not going to actually conjunct Jupiter until uh, next Wednesday, but that is the exact conjunction. And we know that these planets, some astrologers will say planets that are in the same sign are conjunct. Whoa! (laughs) So, yeah, I I think it's going to be building, building, building. It's a beautiful time, and I'll talk more about that. But first, you know, the moon is going to be moving through Aries and joining, you know, joining all of them together for a little while. And and then um, into Taurus, where she's going to hit first uh, the north node of the moon, right, and come up into uh, conjunction with Uranus. And that will be happening on Saturday. Uh, Sunday, she's going to go into Gemini and uh, uh, move on through, basically, to conjoin with Mars before she goes into Cancer on Tuesday. I'm going to find this trail. I, you know, I've never been up here before. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Looks like I'm going down in that bush. So I better stop now. Um, but the big, uh, the planetary aspects basically are Mercury up there is cruising through Aquarius very rapidly, coming into a trine with Mars in the middle of degrees of the air signs. And that is really like the major planetary aspect happening for this entire week. I will be reading the Sabian symbol for the first quarter square moon. And she is coming around, um, uh, and that is on Monday. Yeah. So let me just look at the camera and talk about this. All right, everybody. What's going on out there? Huh? Woo! I don't know if you can see it, but that is the ocean. That's the Atlantic Ocean right out there. There's a little thing of whitecaps that you can watch if you get tired of looking at me talking. (laughs) So, yeah, what's going on? Let's see. Um, First of all, I have to say, I just I I finished a workshop this weekend uh, over here in Cape Town. And I had some people come to the workshop who had been watching the Pele Report for over 10 years. And they did not know that I had a school I have the new paradigm school of astrology. I've got 400 students. Uh, there's a library of, of videos. There is an uh, online uh, telegram chat where we talk about astrology. There are all kinds of courses. There are Zoom calls every Sunday. I mean, you name it. It's $22 a month. I mean, it's not a lot of money. If you want to learn astrology, 
There is so so many layers. This Pele report is just the very thinnest layer of cream on top of the milk when it comes to astrology. Yeah, um, discovering your soul purpose was the workshop that I gave. There is all kinds of stuff. I'm going to be talking about this Venus Jupiter Chiron conjunction. I'm doing, and then in addition to the school. I give workshops all over the place. If you don't know and you're not aware of that, we do a lunar planner every month. It's all on my website. My understanding is now that websites are going out of fashion because <laughs> everybody is on the phone. I'm also on Instagram and Telegram, though. You can get on, you can get New Paradigm Astrology at either one of those. The lunar planner comes out every week. Saying about the the moon's energies that are going on, but yes, I'm going to Greece. I'm going to uh, two two workshops in Greece in May, uh, following uh, Turkey, and I wanted to talk about Turkey especially because of the earthquake. Uh, we are going to continue. We have been in touch, uh, you know, with everyone. Our Actually, uh, Murad, the guy that is our guide there, is uh, helping. Uh, he's got a kitchen. He lost his house. He lost everything. And he's still out there uh, making food for his neighbors. And, uh, and he started up a kitchen. And the daughter of some of my friends uh, also uh, has a, a Turkish fellow that is getting blankets and food, emergency blankets and food to the people that are living. It's super cold outside. They've had aftershocks. They're afraid to go into the buildings. So they're, uh, it's even sub-zero temperatures. He's bringing truckloads of blankets and food out there. So uh, I'm going to put a link to that uh, fund, yes, uh, right below. And uh, if you can spare anything uh, for the... Uh, earthquake victims in Turkey. That would be an opportunity for you to share. We're going to go over there and, uh, yeah, we're going to donate part of our funds from the trip, yeah, to, to be helping with that effort. And, you know, this just kind of leads me up to this situation where the world is a little bit of a mess. And if it's not Turkey and it's not the Ukraine or it's not over here and it's not over there, it's everywhere. <laughs> Uh, it's it's very challenging, but one thing that we're learning here, okay, with the dance and with the breath work, it's very amazing. I want to weave together Pisces and Aries. <laughs> we have this new moon in Pisces, the sun traveling through Pisces, you know, with Neptune. And then we have all this energy happening right now. The moon is in Aries along with Venus, Jupiter, and Chiron. And they can seem very different from each other. Pisces is passive. I call it ether. It's spiritual, multidimensional dreams and illusions and <sighs> everything that last week's, uh, you know, mantra was about. And now this week we've got, okay, you know, Venus moving into Aries. I'm, I'm shining the spotlight here on the warrior, Cardinal Fire, outgoing, charging, conquering, initiating masculine warrior energy. Mm -hmm. And these two are right next to each other. It's a, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing <laughs> connection. 
adjacent relationship that the two of these have. And uh, one thing that, you know, uh, we can look at, though, and I have been looking at it now, this is my first dance workshop. I mean, I love to dance. I've gone to a lot of dances. I dance a lot. But a dance like workshop, ecstatic dance workshop, I was kind of like, okay, I guess I'm here. I got a couple days. Let's let's go dance. Thinking, yeah, we'll have a good time. Not necessarily. <laughs> Combined with the breath work, intentional ecstatic dance, along with some circle work that we've been doing, brings us into our bodies. And the world out there is a little bit of chaos. Not only is the world out there in chaos, guess what? The world inside is chaos. We're all messed up. Our lives are all messed up. And how do they get messed up? Well, this is something that, you know, we can really look at for a long period of time. (laughs) But one way or the other, what so many things boils down to, particularly in evolutionary astrology, using Pluto as the soul, the resistance to evolution is the source of all pain. When we experience pain, we need to evolve. And it may be a signal that we are not evolving. And that for some unknown reason, probably emotional, more even than mental, the need for security, the fear of change, the desire to belong, uh, you know, the, 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 the wanting to uh, have something solid, familiar. These are emotions. Yes. And we, and we become emotionally attached to people, places, things, positions. And, and then, but the thing is that, you know, the earth is spinning, uh, you know, around and orbiting around the sun and the sun, our solar systems go. I mean, everything, everything is changing, move, shifting, altering. And when we try to like stop the train, when we try to stop the change, when we try to hold on to a marriage, to a child, to a job, to a house, to a boy, oh boy, that is where the pain comes in. And it's usually fear. It's usually insecurity. It's usually, like I said, the desire, you know, for the known and the familiar, which is the moon in your natal birth chart. You can see where you can naturally retreat in your natal horoscope to the fourth house and the moon. But with this transiting, even the transiting moon is the fastest moving astrological planet that there is. But it is phenomenal. It is, I, to me, it's almost like you cannot change too fast. You cannot change too much. But you can experience a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, just like the world is now. We are in a big change right now. This is the, this is the changing of the ages. 
from Pisces to Aquarius. This is the changing of the patriarchy to a new whole order, okay, of social organization. This is, uh, this is a huge time of change. And what's happening? Resistance. Resistance. All over the place. The, you know, the people with the money want to hold on to the money. The people with the power want to hold on to the power. The people with the position want to hold on to the position. The people with da 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 you know, And it's causing a tremendous amount of pain. And not only a tremendous amount of pain, but one of the results of pain is anger. Now, we can go into victim, okay, and go into, you know, self-sorrow and cry and go, you know, shrink and, you know, want to go back to the womb or we can become a perpetrator and come out, you know, fighting from our corners. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, but the, the main thing that we want to really understand is that what's going on in the outside world is one thing and it's completely out of our control. So, I see that the Sabian symbol today, you know, mentions conquering and aggression. It is a quiver of arrows is the symbol for this moon. And I know that this whole Ukraine, Russian, you know, uh, NATO thing that's going on right now. I haven't really spoken about it too much, but it's affecting millions of people. And, you know, my, my, I just want to just kind of slip in there that something may escalate. Okay. Over this period of time, I don't see this conflict as like tapering out or going away. We know that many people, including the Pope have tried to bring negotiations. The whole group of South American, uh, uh, countries have joined with the Pope to try to get, you know, the powers that be to sit down and talk to each other. But, you know, this is just not happening because people don't want to change. They don't want to negotiate. They don't want to do Libra. They don't want to com- oh. compromise and cooperate and listen. We're stuck in this Aries kind of energy. And we and part of it is becoming aware of it. So, yes, we can have a military crisis. Chiron, the wounded healer, brings in a healing crisis. It can be a war. It can be a healing crisis. It can be a crisis that leads to a future healing, but only through awareness, only through consciousness, only through really, you know, observing and understanding the situation as it is. And the way that I understand the situation, you know, I just want to throw a little politics out there. I know it bothers some of you, but from my understanding, okay, you know, this is kind of a, uh, you know, it was initiated pretty much, I think, with, you know, the United States, uh, you know, kind of going in and uh, 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 bombing and destroying the pipeline uh, to, you know, mess up Europe and mess up the world economy and mess up everything else, because this is part of what uh, the intention is of the powers that be is to uh, destroy economies and uh, so that they can build back better. Of course, it's their idea of better. It's not in, it's not in the best interest of all participants, but 
it is a certain plan that they have. And this Ukraine war slides and falls right into this place of breaking supply lines, breaking, you know, uh, so yeah, I, I see it. It's, it's going to go on and go on and go on and it, it could get, it could get really, really, really bad. Now, with that knowledge and knowing that, we still have a personal life. We still have our personal growth. We still have our personal relationships, our personal bank accounts. And we can, we can only work with what we can work with. And what we can work with is ourselves. We can work with our minds. We can work with our feelings and our heart space and we can work with our bodies. And I just want to encourage you. Yes. You know, and that is what our mantra is about today. All right. You know, is really working to balance and to come out of the future, out of our heads, out of our it's really our bodies that know what we need for joy, pleasure, relaxation, good health. Yes, our bodies are wise and we want to come into our bodies. Dancing is one way. There are many ways. I'm not limiting, you know, your practice in saying that you have to go dance. But the idea is that to come into the now and in the now, you can see that everything is changing. In the now, everything is a certain amount of chaos. And, and there are, you can't control other people. You can't control your relationships. You know, so life is messed up. Everybody's life is messed up. If it's not messed up, they're pretending that it's not messed up. And they're deluding themselves like last week's message. Okay, because the mess is part of the change. Birth is messy. Change is messy. Uh, you know, tearing down buildings to build new buildings is messy. Plowing up the earth to plant seeds so we can grow food. It's messy. Whatever you look at, life, birth, death, it's all messy. And that mess can look like chaos and it's that it's out of your control and it can get very scary and very uncomfortable. And this is where it comes, whether it's pranayama, kundalini yoga breath work or shamanic breath work or dance work or, you know, there are many ways, but I want to encourage you to come into your body and to feel your feelings because your feelings and your body can be your guide. And we want to get out of the head. And let me relate that now to this week's uh, Sabian symbol of the square moon. The square moon is at the ninth degree of Aries. It is a quiver filled with arrows. Humanity's aggressive relationship to natural life as a basis for survival and conquest. That's Aries. The bow and arrows represent symbolically our ability to extend the scope of our conquest of nature. 
and to kill enemy. In order to build a larger base for the collective development of a culture and an organized society. Implied in the symbol of the arrow is the piercing of a target. The mind of man is essentially a trans-piercing power. It goes through the object toward which it is aimed. It seeks to go through and beyond the obstacles on its path. And this usually implies the destruction of the obstacle. At a higher level, as in the Zen practice of archery, the obstacle is the ego. At this stage of the cyclic process of human existence, we are shown the archetypal symbol of man, the conqueror. It may be a conquest of outer nature or that of instinctual drives and of limiting the power of the ego. But it is always conquest. So what I'd like you to do this week and what this mantra is about this week, okay, is making that conquest, yes, yeah, you know, the obstacle, I'm going to say, has to do so much with our thoughts and our thinking, which are tools of the ego, which take us out of our feeling emotional bodies, out of our physical bodies. They're stimulated by screens and information on screens and movies on screens and written words. And so much of what this information society and technological advancement is bringing us more and more and more. And it's it's creating a situation where we lose touch with our humanity. We lose touch with our feelings. We lose touch with our heart. We lose touch with each other. And this we want to stop. <laughs> yeah, baby. I'm talking about back to nature in every which way, shape, and form. Ow! So as much news as is out there and it's all changing and they come up with more drama all the time. And I swear so much of this is just like being created just to keep everybody busy and occupied, you know, while they put up more 5G towers and they, you know, slide through more of their digital, uh, you know, currency and their facial recognition. They're trying to get the technology all up and about, you know, and get everything all set for the big boom. Yeah which I really feel is coming, uh, you know, there, there, there will be another emergency. Once they have all of the stops in place, uh, there will be another fabricated uh, situation emergency, just like the last pandemic. So, you know, what we want to do is we want to prepare ourselves. And the best we, way that we can prepare ourselves is to be human, to be in touch with our souls, to be in touch with our feelings, to be in touch with our bodies, and to be in touch with each other. Yeah. 
And, you know, you can get all pissed off about what is going on out there. And you have all the right in the world to because it is bad. There is bad people and bad stuff happening. And our illusions of, you know, people that are, you know, uh, dressed a certain way, look a certain way, walk a certain way, uh, you know, are successful or famous or da da da, da you know, as, as being uh, models or examples. There's a lot of illusions and innocence being shattered right now. And one of the problems with that is anger. And that's why I mention that in today's mantra for this week. This is Aries. And this is where the healing can occur. You can come back into your power. Your power is your humanness. Your power is your passion. Your power is your root chakra, your body. And your body knows what to do, when to do it. Your emotional body knows the feelings guide you. want to really encourage that. So I will not suppress my anger. I will scream and shout and stamp, breathing deep. I release it all and return to the eternal dance. You know, this is not new. We have seen this before. Astrology works with reincarnation. Whether it's the fall of the Roman Empire or the fall of the Persian Empire or the fall of the British Empire or the fall of the, it's one empire after another that just goes. Yes, it's one lifetime after another that just goes. It is an eternal dance. And we, and we, and, 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 and there's no stopping that dance. What we want to do is we want to energize ourselves with our breath work, with a good nutrition, with our exercise, with good sleep, with good habits. And we want to, we want to enter that dance wholly, fully, and completely, baby. And yeah, the anger, the frustration, some of those negative emotions, they'll come up. But don't let them eat away. Don't let them cause cancer. Don't let them cause uh, you know, dis-ease. Don't let them cause problems. Release these negative emotions. Really let it out. It's all right. And find friends, find people who uh, uh, encourage you to feel and let it out. And stop off, you know, break off these relationships that are stifling. Move on, move on. Change, 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 change. Make new friends. Let go of the old or keep the old, but continue to find people that help you to self-discover, to go deeper into yourself, into your needs, into your feelings, into your life, and let it out and feel every feeling. And, you know, as low as you go, you're also you're strengthening your nervous system to be able to go higher. So stretch yourself. And when you stretch yourself to feel something lower, you will also be able to feel greater joy, greater happiness, greater light. 
So it just kind of, it's like a rubber band. It just, you want to, you want to just like work with your nervous system, work with your breath, work with your movement so that your body and your nervous system can tolerate higher states of ecstasy and higher states of bliss. And that, and that has to do with going down and letting out all the rats out of the basement. <laughs> so this is the way it goes. One more time before I leave you in peace. <laughs> I will not suppress my anger. I will scream and shout and stamp. Breathing deep. I release it all. And return to the eternal dance. May you dance the eternal dance, breathing deep, releasing it all, and loving your life. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Richard, uh, we can't hear you. Are you there? Hello? Richard? Commander Richard, is everything okay? Huh. Okay, well, we will go on with Tanya Gabrielle and maybe, Dougie, you can check and see that Richard's okay. Call him back again or something. Anyway, maybe there's something going on where he's at. So let's proceed with Tanya. Here we go. Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an astronomy event. So through the stars. All right, Richard is with us. Upcoming. Okay, stop, stop, run. Okay, okay, Richard. We pass the talking stick to you now, Richard. Here it comes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm close to the phone. About 15 minutes ago, but I was listening on the Internet. So anyway, I'm going to blame it on BBS Radio. All (laughs) I could do was hang up, and uh, he was, uh, I don't know what he was doing, but uh, anyway. I called in on the 888-429-5471. Call in live and ask questions. So here's my question. Looking at next week's chart, okay? So, Mercury is seven degrees behind Saturn. Next Saturday, Mercury is four degrees ahead of Saturn. All right? That's how fast Mercury's going to move this week. Mm. All right? So, one of the energies that we're going to be dealing with this week is Mercury conjunct Saturn. All right, and I think I Pacha mentioned this last week. Uh, the Saturn energy is about order, structure, self-discipline, and rules Capricorn. All right. Now tonight Venus is at eight Aries, and next week. Venus is going to be at 16 Aries. So it's going to conjunct both Jupiter and Chiron this week. Just so you know, it's very, very, very difficult to hear you, Richard. Well, I'm sorry about that. Turn it up, Rama. So anyway, uh, well, we're not talking on our regular line. I'm talking on that uh, calling line, remember? We can hear you good now. I can, anyway. Okay. But anyway, that's the comment I wanted to make. Venus is going to move from 8 Aries to 16 Aries. All right. So we got we got two active of different influences here working. One's working from the from the end of Aquarius to early Pisces, that's Mercury conjunct Saturn, and the other one is Venus from eight Aries going to sixteen Aries, conjuncting both Jupiter and Chiron this week. So, I don't know which is worse. Uh, (laughs) Well, actually, the the Chiron conjunction is more worrying, worrying to me, anyway. Anyway, So, uh, keep your uh, safety belt snug. Richard, when you say Chiron conjunction, 15 Aries. 15 Aries. Oh, I see. The electrical. That's the that's a prime electrical representative of solar system conditions. Yeah, mm. that's you got a 
gotta use some a little bit of restraint, I would say. It's the electrical will of this whole system. Mm. Right. And and in terms of the beholder, if they want to manipulate things, that's the one that's to be a little bit worried about. Well, we've got. See, we now we're gonna have a. We're gonna have a. Uh, over the next, okay, in ten days, the sun will be conjunct Neptune. Mm-hmm. Ten days from from today. All right. And and Neptune and Jupiter are only eighteen degrees apart. So we're gonna the the solar influence through Neptune is a magnetic event, whereas Jupiter in Aries is an electrical event. Mm-hmm. All right. They're gonna have as causes. They're gonna create different appearances. On, on the plane of physical living. Mm. So, so the, the the picture of the of the world, the the physical picture of people living on the surface of the planet is going to change radically. We're at Mercury as Mercury moves through through. Pisces following the sun still for a couple more weeks. We're going to be thinking very differently at the equinox in in two weeks. It's two weeks till the equinox. So this is this is warm up. For Sun conjunct Jupiter conjunct Chiron, that's only third. That's only thirty days away. All right. Next Saturday, Sun's at fifteen. Thirty days after that, Sun is at fifteen Aries, where Chiron's sitting. Mm-hmm. It's going to get increasingly more. And chaotic, as Kaipacha was saying, it's all messed up. Um, Richard, next Saturday it's fifteen degrees. What? Sun at fifteen degrees next Saturday. Okay. Chiron at fifteen degrees Aries next Saturday, with Venus at sixteen and Jupiter at thirteen. Mm-hmm. Wow! Concentrate—it's like a, we're getting a, an electrical download. All right, from Venus and Jupiter, and they sit on either side of Earth. All right. Mm-hmm. Venus being a lot closer to the Sun than we are. Up. Oh. All right. So, uh, 
archaic term. God is changing everything. <laughs> All right. Now, let, now let's get to Tanya. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. I didn't mean to run on that long. It's okay. We can continue and finish here. It's okay. Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an astro-numerology event, so through the stars and numbers that's upcoming, so we can navigate it in the best way possible. And in this case, it's a pretty major event. It's one of the pivotal events of the year, because so much is happening around this time, and that is the full moon in Virgo with the sun in Pisces. Now, there's so much going on with this Virgo full moon. First of all, it's happening March 7th. It's the sixth consecutive full moon at 16 degrees, where the sun and moon are opposite each other, but both at 16 degrees. 16 reduces to 7. 1 plus 6 is 7, March 7th. And Mercury, also in Pisces, is at 7 degrees. So we have a quadruple 7 code. And 7 is the lightning strike of inspiration. It also represents heaven being in your heart. So heaven coming to earth. So heaven resides residing here in your heart through your intuition. So that there's never a separation. Seven reminds you of that. And that's why the seventh day, Sunday, represents that spiritual connection. And this is a completely, amazingly spiritual, cathartic full moon. Spirit is calling you with this one. And it's not just because of the number seven that's activated and the number 16, but it's also because on March 7th, the same day as this full moon in Virgo, Saturn moves from Aquarius into Pisces. Now, this is really powerful stuff because, as you know, first of all, the sun will be in Pisces during this Virgo full moon. Pisces is the final sign in the zodiac. Saturn will be at 29 degrees, 59 minutes. Pluto at the same time is at 29 degrees in Capricorn. And Capricorn is the sign that Saturn rules. So Pluto is at the very end of the cycle that Pluto began in 2008. And now it's 2023, and Pluto will be leaving Capricorn and moving into Aquarius, the sign that Saturn is just leaving. So there's really a lot to uncover here, lots to take in in terms of the catharsis that is in play now. And it is internal. It is truly an awakening, a spiritual awakening. Spirit is calling Remember, the number seven is directly connected to spirit. And in many cultures, seven is considered a lucky number. And we have seven days in the week. We have so much beautiful 
energy around this number seven. And also in ancient astrology, there were seven light bodies, seven planets. The sun, which of course is a star, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And only much, much later in the 1800s, Uranus was discovered and Neptune and then Pluto in the 1900s in the 20th century. So yes, and Chiron just very recently, of course. So if you pull it all together and you look at the quadruple seven, the double 29, which is the double 11, you look at the fact that March in 2023 is a 10 universal month. 10 is new beginnings. Pisces, where the sun is and where Saturn is moving into, is the final sign. So Pisces is endings. The full moon represents endings, culminations. And then we have all this new beginnings energy as well. The 11-11, the 10-1 universal month. So you can see the pivot point is set up in the star code, in the astrology, numerology in a big way. So we're really coming now into a time of major transition of pivotal changes. And I want to bring up one more seven that is actually going to change things even more. We are in 2023 in a seven universal year. So actually, it's a quintuple seven activation when you add that number seven. So yes, we are being shown the real gifts of this number through this powerful full moon. Now, Virgo loves growth. Virgo loves mastering self-awareness. There's a sense of a calling with Virgo, being of greater service, having compassion, being there to uplift others, going on a journey of self-discovery. Virgo is an earth sign, and earth signs are very practical, very grounded. And Virgo loves logic analysis as well. It's It loves the macrocosm and the microcosm, and editing things and really making sure things run smoothly and efficiently and the connection to earth and crystals and healing and everything that earth has to offer in terms of herbs and beautiful plants and drinking teas and the air you're breathing, all of this is part of the Virgo experience. And then we have Pisces, the sign of spirituality, cleansing, compassion, unconditional love. And the shadow side of Pisces is to be in a dream state, to not see clearly, to be in an illusion or deluded. So this Saturn moving into Pisces is actually a big deal because Saturn represents being very grounded and having a real sense of reality. And so when Saturn moves into this sign of Pisces, there is more of a sense of trusting your inner guidance through Pisces, trusting your connectivity to the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of existence, trusting your connection to God's mind, to the divine mind. And that will grow greatly because Saturn is all about growth, planting seeds, nurturing them and manifesting. And so manifesting that connection to your inner guidance when Saturn is in Pisces is going to be tremendous because we're coming 
into a big time of transition that's leading up to 2025 when all major planets starting at the end of 2024 and moving through July 2025 are changing signs. And that means Pluto, which is slow moving, will be going into a new sign of Aquarius in March, but it will dip back because of the retrograde cycles into Capricorn over the next year and a half, couple of years. And so it's only at the end of 2024 that Pluto will be fully immersed in the new sign of Aquarius. So that's what it's all leading up to. And Virgo's love of self-growth, mastering self-awareness is very, very important at this time. Now, I want to look at some of the other transits going on because the moon will be trying to Uranus. Uranus is in Taurus, another Earth sign. So that is creating an Earth trine between Taurus and Virgo. Absolutely beautiful. And that means Uranus, which is very connected to inspiration and change and freedom and extricating yourself from those things that are holding you back or or heavy. This is a time to really relish in your inner adventure, your inner explorer, and go for it and try new things. And the sun is, of course, sextile Uranus with the moon trine. That means they create a beautiful triangle to Uranus. And it's a very tight triangle because Uranus will be at 15 degrees Taurus. This full moon's at 16 degrees in Virgo and Pisces. So just be open to unusual experiences and trusting your intuition and in the power of your connection to the divine. That connectivity is there 24-7, every moment of the day. The moon is square to Mars. The sun is square to Mars. It's a wide square. It's creating what's called a T-square. So it's not exact, but still there will be a strong emotional focus, sense of direction. So you get up and do something, act on the highly creative energy that is in play here. You only need to guard against impatience and aggression and you know, focus on something that really captures you passionately. This is very strong, impulsive energy. So that actually can be a really big plus because you're using the energy in a productive, highly proactive way, which is what Mars loves to do. Jupiter's conjunct Chiron, this is incredible. It's very positive energy. In fact, there is another conjunction with Venus. If you look at the chart, you can see that Venus is at 18 degrees in Aries, uh, Jupiter at 13 degrees in Chiron at 14 degrees in Aries. And remember that Mars is forming that T-square. Well, Mars rules Aries. So there's a lot of Mars, Aries energy, new beginnings energy in play during this Virgo full moon. And so Jupiter with Chiron really broadens your outlook. Jupiter always makes things bigger and gives you the, the major view so you can see over the horizon. And so your mind, body, and spirit with Chiron, I call Chiron the sacred healer. Some call Chiron the wounded healer. But you, you get a deep understanding into your life. And Jupiter takes you beyond. It takes you to distant lands or or thoughts that you wouldn't have considered and you discover new perspectives. So it's really restoring a sense of peace in your life, in your relationships, and seeing that a lot more is possible than you realized. 
And then Venus is sextile to Mars. Again, we have a Mars contact here uh, with Aries and then with Venus, Mars, and the T-square to Mars. So strong drive to move forward here. Venus sextile Mars is absolutely fantastic. It's really a strong desire to connect with others for affection, for gathering with others, for appreciating beauty and resolving personal issues and basically letting go and having fun and, and lighting your, your life on fire, basically being creative. It's a very creative energy. It's very sensual and loving and, and fun. So this is really a fantastic connection here. Venus and Mars represent our core feminine and masculine energies. And so when they come together in this beautiful sextile, it just really, really helps us to feel connected and you know, they play a major role now. Venus and Mars are reminding us of the beauty of balance within us between the divine feminine and sacred masculine. And so it's a perfect time with this sextile and with Mars's strong presence to watch a free webinar, a free masterclass on Venus and Mars that basically talks about balancing the divine feminine and sacred masculine and goes into the five-pointed star of Venus, the importance of the letters V and M and the secret meaning of V and M and how they're connected. I'll give you a little hint. If you look at the letter M, there is a V in the middle of it. So Venus and Mars are, you know, these letters that we have, and this is part of the numerology that I teach, letters and names and words are so much part of the codes that we partake in all the time without realizing it. They have a huge impact. So we go into that. We go into the 13 phases of Venus, the number 13 representing the divine feminine, 13 lunar cycles in a year, 13 weeks in a season, and 13 phases of Venus. This is an incredible number to understand and not be afraid of. We go into that and we go into the origins of the Mayan calendar, which is very connected to Venus. So you can watch it all absolutely free at venusmarscode.com. Enjoy that free webinar and enjoy this incredible, pivotal full moon. So I wish you a beautiful week and lots of love. And I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Richard, um, looks like we're going to have at least an interesting one. <laughs> well, with revelations, I think is, is, is one of the themes was didn't come up. Right? 
there's a, a great opportunity here. <coughs> I think Venus is bringing major revelation Yeah. And we've got to wait. We've got to wait for the documentary to come out from Dr. Greer. Oh. He said that till June 1st, right? That's an anniversary date of some sort, right? Okay. July 4th, <laughs> I know that one, June 6th, I'm not sure, we'll have to see if there's anything related, but the luck, I'll look it up. That's better than gas, though, right? Depends on your device. You know, what device you need. Well, I bought gas at three fourteen Thursday. Wow. I don't gas. I paid three fourteen. Now, propane has never been higher than gasoline, but it is now. Yeah. They all dropped in price this week. Look at it. Every one of these is down. Aluminum down 2.6%. Copper down 2.8%. Nickel down 3%. Zinc down 1.3%. And tin down 3.7%. Little bit things that are a little bit out of balance at the moment. Well, when you're talking about industrial metal metals, the, the drop in price is due to a, a drop in demand. 
Okay. Yeah, all right. It's another indicator of an industrial recession, and that's manufacturing goods. Bloom, copper, iron, nickel, zinc, and tin. Those are all, they all go into uh, consumer goods. Tin goes into the batteries. And that stuff, that stuff, $25,000 per ton. Whereas copper is only $8,800 per ton. But nickel, which goes into stainless steel, is $24,800 per ton. Now, zinc's cheap at $3,000 per ton. Divide those by $2,000 get the per pound price. So, uh, now the economy is... Uh, on shaking ground. That's my that's the way this appears to me. Right? The stuff that people need, gas, heating oil, lumber, palm oil is cooking oil, orange juice, vitamin C, mm. right? Those are all hurt the people, you know, they hurt hurt us as, as biological beings. And then, and then the industrial metals indicates uh, either a lack of demand or the buyers are trying to hold the line. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll put this all in the smallest support and we better go now, Richard. Yep, I think we do. Yes. Until we we meet again. Love you back, Richard. Namaste. Okay, Rama, the numbers. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody, we'll see you on that conference call, and we'll be here. I'm able to be back right here at the top of this next hour. So let's see what we can do with this little time. Namaste. Uh, the next piece we're going to share with everyone. This is Greg Braden. Why we should stop burning and start preserving fossil fuels. I'm sure it's a worthy moment to have a listen about that. Greg Braden's science, uh, Greg Braden's science policy and politics series. In this episode, Greg will address one of the questions from the, from the viewers based on this. It's a little known. Oops. Ready to start? Based on this video. Um, anyway, here we go. Let's listen. I'll be quiet. <laughs> this is how long? I gotta get 40. 40 minutes and 40 seconds. Gotta get past the commercials. 
Oh. Weight loss technique. This mysterious five second alpine habit using nothing but ice. Rapidly torch. <laughs> the Essenes have an aura of profound mystery about them. Becoming perfect light humans is clearly the goal of the Essenes. They knew mystical secrets, and these secrets had to do with human transformation into celestial beings and ascension. Why were they called Essenes? A name awarded them doubtless in recognition of their holiness. Holiness means to be luminous, radiant, and angelic. From this investigation, we will piece together the ascension teachings and disclosure of extraterrestrial beings left for us by the Essenes, just in time for the arrival of the new humanity in the modern ascension and disclosure movement. I'm William Henry, and this is Ascension Keepers. Greg Braden here. Welcome to this edition of Science, Policy, and Politics. I'm going to address in this edition a question that uh, came to my office recently. It was a question about something very specific. I'm going to take that question and, and address uh, an even broader topic that uh, that is relative to this question. The question is from Elle. Elle, I'm going to, for your privacy, I won't share her last name, but her name is Elle. And the question is this. She's saying, would it be possible for Greg to post the CO2 chart uh, or to show a link to the chart that he used in a, an earlier presentation? So she's referring to another YouTube video that I did uh, right at the, the beginning of the year when I was talking about carbon dioxide levels on Earth from a geologic perspective and what that means to us today. Uh, she's asking about a single chart. There are many, many, many charts that are out there, and I'm going to share a few of them with you today. But let me let me just share why I think this is so important. This is early first quarter 2023, February 23. We are now finished with the Davos meetings in Switzerland. New proposals are coming out from that meeting, being focused through the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDG 2030 Sustainable Development Goals that our, uh, the goal is to implement those by the year 2030 uh, through the United Nations. And many of these goals are linked to climate. And the thinking is that the CO2 levels on Earth are dangerously high so that we need to change the way that we live our lives. We need to change our energy sources. We need to change our agricultural sources. We need to change economies and finance in short, turn people's lives upside down in order to accommodate the perceptions that the CO2 levels are, are dangerously high. 
the people that suffer the most from these kinds of changes are the people in the economic brackets that can least afford the magnitude of change we're being asked to make. They have the least bandwidth. They don't have the buffer to go through these kinds of changes where the shifts in the energy will force people to lose their jobs. And yes, it's possible to retrain in new industries, but you and I know a lot of people that's not going to work. Yes, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. And I wholly agree with that. And that has been the point for much of my adult life, my adult career. I am a geologist by degree, and I've been sharing, and many geologists have since the 1970s, that we are in a cycle of climate change. The earth is warming, uh, not because of fossil fuels, but the earth is warming, and we need to accommodate that warming in the, the way that we live our lives and in the industries and uh, how we live uh, geographically. We need to accommodate that climate change. And we do need to stop burning fossil fuels, not because they're bad, but because they are precious, they are finite, and we need them in so many other areas of our lives. We need to preserve the fossil fuels. We use petroleum products typically on a typical day, over 6,000 places in our everyday lives, many of them that you'd never even think about, uh, are, are dependent Helen Hansel was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen because she had won. Are dependent upon fossil fuels that go beyond the burning of fossil fuels for fuel for our automobiles and transportation and, and things like that. So we need to stop burning it because we need it for other things. And when it is gone, one of the interesting things in modern chemistry is that oil is one of the few products that we cannot duplicate. Uh, efficiently the way that it comes out of the ground. So it's not like when the oil is gone, we just make oil in the laboratory so that we can continue, you know, using petroleum-based products. I mean, just for example, we would not be having this conversation if it were not for the oil that produced the cases of the computer that you are seeing me in right now or the mobile phone or the iPad uh, and the wires and the cables and the insulation our clothing, where our food comes from, how the water is pulled from the ground to create the food. Yes, it's possible to do all these through alternatives in some places. On the scale that we are living our lives today, it's not practical to do that. So we're being asked to make tremendous changes in our lives, not just in America, on the planet. Those changes are being recommended through tech companies and through um, – through people who have placed themselves in a position through organizations like the World Economic Forum, like the United Nations, that believe that they are, and many of them, honest, I've met some of these people, they honestly believe that they are are recommending things that are, are really going to be good for us in, in the long term. It's all based, it's all predicated on what they have been told about carbon dioxide in our planet. Well, I'm a geologist. And I want to talk to you about carbon dioxide. Uh, and I'm not saying these changes are bad necessarily, but what I'm saying is they're going to cause a lot of suffering and a lot of people, as, as I mentioned, that could least afford it. And we're being asked to make the changes for reasons that may not be supported by the data. So maybe there are other reasons. And that would be another video. 
But if we're talking about carbon dioxide being dangerous for our planet, and we're talking about high levels of carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide being dangerous for life on our planet, I'm going to tell you the evidence simply does not support that. Here's what I mean. I'm going to begin with a quote. It comes directly from a government website, www.climate.gov, June of 2022. It's a statement. And it says, quote, carbon dioxide levels today are higher than any point in human history, end of quote. What does that really mean? How long have we been measuring carbon dioxide levels directly? Uh, how far back does human history go? Human history is not Earth history. It's not geologic history. If those levels are higher than at any point in human history, is that a bad thing? They're not addressing that. Is it a bad thing that the carbon dioxide levels are higher? We're being led to fear and demonize carbon dioxide, and we're being given quotes like this and slides, I'm going to show you in just a moment, uh, that make it appear that the levels of carbon dioxide are alarmingly high. I'm going to offer you a little bit different perspective. I want you to have the full story. You can make up your own mind. You can see where this information is coming from, and you can see the role, how it's being used uh, in our lives today to direct us to make choices. And the question is, who is benefiting from those choices? And you may be surprised at where we go with this. So let's take a look at this. It is. It's all about perspective. Uh, carbon dioxide levels, are they higher than they've been at any point in human history? Well, first of all, how long have we been measuring carbon dioxide levels directly? The truth is not that long. Direct CO2 measurements only began about 65 years ago. Uh, actually, it was July through December, July 1957 through December of 1958. There was something that was called the International Geophysical Year or the IGY for short. And I remember this when I was a kid. It was a big deal. Everybody was talking about this uh, because it was the first time that the, the nations of the earth had actually come together on a scientific level and said, hey, you know, we need to start checking this stuff out. We need to track magnetic fields of the planet, CO2 levels of the planet, ozone levels of the planet, find out what's going on. So we humans, we showed up 200,000 years ago. We began direct measurements about 65 years ago. So let's let's see what this means. What we're looking at right now, <clears throat> the this is a very famous chart. It comes from NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, and um, uh, Scripps Oceanography. All right, so you're looking on the lower left-hand side of the screen. You see the year 1960, but the chart begins a little bit before that. So that's the, the 50, 58, 59, and it ends uh, 2021, just past uh, the 2020, you see. These are carbon dioxide levels that are measured uh, at the observatory in Hawaii, and they are definitely higher. And you can see that. The CO2 levels are higher now than they've been since we have been measuring them. That is an absolute fact. Uh, and you can see it very, very clearly on this chart. Now, if we go back into geologic time, uh, are they higher than they have ever been? Well, what you're looking at here, we're seeing uh, the blue are CO2 levels. And what you're seeing, actually, this chart is obsolete now because the CO2 levels are at about 400 
17 ppm, parts per million, so a little above where that arrow is on, on the right-hand side, the blue lines that you see are coming from Antarctica, from ice cores in Antarctica, and they are definitely higher than they've been in the last 800,000 years. That's absolutely true. So what we have to say, lower right-hand corner is present day. All right, 200,000 years ago is where you see the green. So the statement that CO2 levels are higher than they've been in human history is absolutely true. In the last 200,000 years, according to these, uh, these readings, we've never seen CO2 levels this high. How do we know that? Well, a lot of that comes from the ice cores in places so that are taken from places like Greenland and Antarctica. Uh, some of you have heard me speak about this before. Some never have, so I'm going to do this very quickly. What you're seeing on the screen is an ice core. This is what they look like. I remember the first time I saw one, they were they were bigger. They were a thicker diameter than, than I thought they would be. What can you tell from ice? Well, you can tell all kinds of stuff from the ice cores. From those ice cores, we can tell how high or how low the ancient carbon dioxide levels were. And, and let me just explain how this happens, because people say, how can you get that from ice? Well, every year, a layer of ice is deposited in Greenland and uh, the poles, Greenland and Antarctica. And in that ice there are captured little bubbles of the the air in the atmosphere at that point in time. So when that air is is captured and then it's frozen, it becomes a, a permanent record in the ice. The next year, another layer on top of that. Next year, another layer on top of that. So you've got oxygen levels. You've got carbon dioxide levels. You've got methane levels. All of that you can tell from, from the ice. Ancient temperatures. We can tell from the ice by the kinds of animals that we find frozen in the ice, for example, uh, and especially in seafloor sediments. You can see this as well. Some There are some forms of life that will create a shell that winds in, in one direction clockwise when the temperatures are warmer, counterclockwise, and temperatures are cooler. So we can tell things like that. You can tell the strength of the sun. You can tell about the magnetic fields of the earth, all kinds of things can be uh, derived and extrapolated from the ice cores. So so this is why they're important. This is what an ice core looks like. Now, if you look up close at an ice core, you can see these striations. Each of those striations is one year of the history of the Earth. So when they go down, uh, you know, 400,000 years ago, we're looking at 400,000 layers that you can read like you can read the pages of a book. You're the darker layers are picking up volcanic dust that's in the atmosphere or dust from uh, windstorms, uh, depending on where the wind currents are, pollen grains, all kinds of things like that. So so the ice is important. The ice is stored in a library, and you're actually looking at one of the ice core libraries where scientists will go in, they'll check out an ice core like you check out a book. And in refrigerated conditions, they'll pull the core from that tube, and they're able to examine it for the year that they're that they're looking for. So there are a number of different ice core libraries. So I just want to give you a sense of, of where this information is coming from. Now, let's look at geologic history, not human history. In geologic history, if you look on the right-hand side of the screen is present day. The black line that you're seeing and then the shading around it uh, is the carbon dioxide, represents carbon dioxide levels over time. And what you're seeing is we're actually at a relatively low point in the carbon dioxide readings for our planet. Now, 
Are they high from 1958 to 2021? Absolutely. Are they high for the last 800,000 years? Absolutely. In geologic time, it's not really even a drop in the bucket. We're, we're looking at human time in terms of those CO2 levels, but I want to show you in geologic time, and I want to show you what was happening on the Earth during times in history when the CO2 levels were much higher than they are today. So what you're seeing uh, right now, the blue line that you see is what's called pre-industrial CO2 level. So before we had massive amounts of industry kicking CO2 and fossil fuels burned for fuel kicking CO2 into the air, that's the level. 2021 is the red. That's about 417 parts per million is what you're seeing right there. But if you look at CO2 throughout history, much of Earth's history, the level has been a lot higher than it is today. So I'm saying this because we're being led to believe that we are forcing the CO2 levels higher than they've ever been on the planet and that we're wrecking the planet. And you hear people that are not informed. You hear even media people. You hear this on uh, legacy media, you know, mainstream news talking about this. I want you to see it's not true. Much of the, and especially the familiar periods of time, like the Cretaceous, like the Jurassic, like the Triassic, uh, even like the, the Permian, and we go back even into the Devonian periods, uh, the CO2 levels are much higher than they are today. Now, what does that mean? And you can see on the, the green, I uh, drew a green bar uh, just above, if you see the purple where it says Triassic, and you look directly above that, Early Triassic, we're looking at over 1,600 parts per million, not the 417 that we have today. We certainly had a lot of life in the Triassic, but let me show you. Let me show you what this looks like. So the little green bar that you're seeing on the left, this is 200,000 years ago. This is when humans appeared on Earth. And, uh, and what we're seeing is there has been a steady decline in this overall CO2 levels uh, on a planetary level. Now, this is another chart. This is really interesting because we're being told that CO2 is driving temperature. It can, it doesn't have to, and it doesn't always drive temperature. What you're seeing are places in the past, so the, the average global temperature is in blue, and you're seeing places in the blue where the temperatures are high, although the CO2 levels are low. You're also seeing places where the temperature is high. Look at Jurassic and you're seeing the blue uh, where the temperatures are elevated, and you're seeing the CO2 levels are elevated as well. The point is CO2 and temperature are not always correlated. That is problematic for the narrative for those trying to make the case that CO2 is driving the temperature increases that we see today. I've got uh, other videos out there. I don't want to be too redundant but other videos showing that the temperatures actually rise before the CO2, and there's a lag time. The temperatures rise first, then the CO2 levels rise, and there are feedback loops coming from the ocean that contribute to this. So when the temperature levels begin to rise uh, because of Earth's location in space, for example, the Milankovic cycles, where Earth uh, does a tilt, an angle, and, and a wobble, three different motions as Earth rotates around the sun. Each of those motions uh, has a relationship between the temperature of our planet and where we are located in relationship to the sun. 
So when the planet begins to warm because of those, sea, sea temperatures begin to increase. Warm water holds less carbon dioxide than cold water. So when Earth begins to rise, yes, you will or warm, you will see a rise in the CO2 levels because the oceans are warming and, and cannot hold that CO2. That's one of the feedback loops. So what you're seeing on this chart, for example, if you look at um, look at the Triassic in the orange and you look at the Jurassic in the orange, there was a plateau of temperatures, although the CO2 levels were low. And then the CO2 levels began to rise. Here's to the healthy heroes, the gluten-free gladiators, the plant-based pioneers. This is our refuge where we forage fresh produce. <laughs> Rise in the late Jurassic, look at what happened. The temperature it actually dropped in the presence of rising temperatures. That doesn't fit the narrative, so it's inconvenient. Uh, look at the Cretaceous where the temperatures were higher and the CO2 levels continued to drop. So I, I just want you to see that uh, can CO2 drive temperatures warmer? It can absolutely contribute, but it is not the only driver of temperatures. And we're being told that it is and that high CO2 levels are dangerous for us. Now, what does this mean? I want to show you, I'm going to go back in geologic time and look at the marker uh, of the CO, uh, of what was happening, what the CO2 levels were, what the average temperatures were, and, and what was happening on life. So the marker is the Triassic period. Then let's just, I'm going to go back one more slide. If you look at the three, the three, uh, periods that you're seeing there, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, uh, they're all right there in the orange. So you know what we're talking about. So, so what was happening to life on Earth during those times? Well, in the Triassic, CO2 levels were high, and no doubt about it, 2,000 parts per million uh, average. There were some that were higher, some that were lower. What was the temperature on Earth? It was warm, nothing uh, that we necessarily want today. The average global temperature, uh, the low was 122, and the high was 140 Fahrenheit, 50 to 60 uh, Celsius. Temperatures were much warmer. Is that a killer for, for life. Well, there was a lot of life happening on Earth during this time. Uh, forests were green and abundant. Those are probably higher temperatures than we'd want today. Let's look at Jurassic. Jurassic is probably one of the best known periods in geologic history because of the movies called Jurassic Park. They were all based on wildlife that was cloned from DNA uh, that was retrieved from Jurassic samples, Jurassic age samples. So during the Jurassic temp, uh, CO2 levels were about half of what they were in the Triassic. They were a thousand parts per million. What were the temperatures? Not too bad, actually. Highs of 80.6 Fahrenheit, average global temperature. Doesn't mean it was that everywhere. There are places where it was lower, places where it was higher. 59 Fahrenheit was the, the average low. So this is very conducive to life with CO2 levels of 1,000 parts per million. Cretaceous, we talked about earlier, we're back up to 2,000 parts per million. And again, we're looking during this time, 82 Fahrenheit was the high 52 low average during this period of time. Those little asterisks 
I put those there because it was during Jurassic and Cretaceous. There was tremendous greening of the earth. Forests became dense and abundant and spread on the earth. Uh, and there was abundant land and sea life that was emerging at this time. So I'm saying this because we're being led to believe that high levels of CO2 are going to kill everything. And that simply is not true in the geologic past. Now, I'll tell you where it is a problem when we get to the end of, of this conversation, but I just want to share this with you. The United Nations and the World Economic Forum have a, a working relationship. I, I should have turned these around and said the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. Uh, here's what that relationship is. In 2019, the World Economic Forum signed uh, a formalized an agreement. They signed the document. Uh, formalizing a relationship between the World Economic Forum and the United Nations that the UN would help to implement many of the goals of the World Economic Forum through the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that are to be implemented uh, between now and the year 2030, UN SDG 2030. So there's uh, a lot of people don't understand that this relationship is there, and this is why the Davos meetings are important. Because the visions that emerge from those meetings now have a way to be implemented through the UN and the SDG 2030s. So what are those goals? Well, both the UN and World Economic Forum, uh, they agree that the, the carbon dioxide level right now is as of 2021. These are the latest readings, uh, about 414.7 parts per million. So they're in agreement with that. They're in agreement when they look back the year 2010 that the CO2 levels were 390.1 parts per million. Now, why did I choose the year 2010? Well, because the WEF and the UN proposals are looking at backing off from the 2010 CO2 levels by different percentages. They're using 2010 as, as the baseline, the goal is a 45% reduction from 2010 CO2 levels. So this is the goal, stated goal of the UN and the, the WEF. What would that look like? If we took 45% of what the CO2 levels were in 2010, so 390.1 parts per million, the CO2 target then is 214.5 parts per million. So just to be clear, this is the stated goal of the World Economic Forum and the UN. They want 45% reduction from the 2010 CO2 levels. Ooh. Is that a good thing? Well, what does that mean? Let's take a look at this. If we were to take our CO2 levels back to 214.5 parts per, mi <clears throat> per million, excuse me, when was the last time we saw anything in the neighborhood of those kinds of readings? What kind of a world would we have? Well, we haven't seen it recently, 214.5 parts per million. We haven't seen that recently. Here is a peer-reviewed science article. It's from the journal Nature Communications, 2019. The title of the article, Low CO2 Levels of the Entire Pleistocene Epoch. That's the, the, the title of this peer-reviewed article. What does it mean? 
if we were to go back, if we were to achieve the goals that the UN and the World Economic Forum propose, we would be creating the CO2 levels that we last saw during the Pleistocene epoch on Earth. This is a direct quote. The study shows that for the entire 2.5 million years of the Pleistocene era, carbon dioxide concentrations averaged 250 parts per million. I want to tell you this is low. 250 parts per million is very, very low for our planet. What were the conditions like on our planet? Well, let me show you, first of all, where is uh, Pleistocene? And and I I put this up here, and you heard me uh, hesitate here, because they're calling it the Pleistocene era in this article. But what you see on the right-hand column uh, of the chart you're seeing on the screen, it lists the epochs. So geologic time is broken down into periods of time. So you're seeing large periods of time that are called eons. You see on the left column here uh, on your screen. And then the eons were broken into smaller units called eras. Uh, and then the eras were broken into periods. And you see familiar periods, the Cambrian period, the Ordovician period, uh, Jurassic, Triassic, Permian, Cretaceous. These are all periods. And the periods are broken into smaller periods of time that are called epochs. So the Pleistocene and the Holocene, we're in the Holocene, the most recent right now, before us, present time was the Pleistocene. It is actually a, a geologic epoch by some definitions. And, you know, there are different cutoffs and different ways of, of looking at these. But I want to give you a sense of where we are. So we're talking about Pleistocene. Uh, this is where it is in geologic history. So it's way after Cretaceous and Jurassic and Triassic and, and all of that. What was the Pleistocene like? How's it compared to today? Well, let's take a look at this. The average CO2 during the Pleistocene period and the average temperature, how much ice was on the earth and what was life like? These are the markers we're going to look at. All right. And compare them to today. So the average CO2 levels during the Pleistocene, 250 parts per million, as as we just said in in the paper. The average today is 417 parts per million. So you can see we're talking about way less CO2. What were the temperatures on Earth like during the Pleistocene? Well, the average global temperature high was 46 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 7.8 Celsius. Today, those temperatures are 57 Fahrenheit, 13.89, 13.89, so 13.9 Celsius, rounding up. So we're looking at the way cooler Earth. The average global temperature, it's a big difference. But Peekaboo, Paul Stamets here. Welcome to the enchanted forest of host defense. Here, hidden among the trees... Difference between today's 57 and the 46 that they're talking about here. So cool that it supported ice, a lot of ice during this time, during uh, periods when much much more of the Earth was covered in ice. How much more? Well, let's take a look at this. During the Pleistocene, about 8%, approximately 8% of the entire Earth, so this includes ocean and land, was covered in ice. 25% of the land, approximately a quarter of the land, was covered in ice. What does that look like today? Well, today, 
only about 11% of the land is covered in ice and only 3% of the earth. So you can see that the lower CO2 levels during the Pleistocene were supporting much cooler temperatures uh, and contributing to way more ice on the planet that we're, than we're seeing today. And that ice was actually occurring in parts of the earth that are very populated, northern Europe and northern uh, parts of, of North America, you know, down into into the U.S., into the uh, north central parts of, of U.S., certainly the New England states. What was life like? What does that mean? Well, during the Pleistocene, because those CO2 levels dropped, carbon dioxide is what feeds the forests. Plants live on carbon dioxide and they excrete or it's a respiration. They exhale oxygen. We breathe oxygen. We exhale CO2. So it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship because there was less CO2. There was less nourishment for the forests. And during the, um, the Pleistocene, we saw the extinction of forests and of large mammals. Scientists estimate about 32 species of large mammals disappeared in the 2,000 years uh, during that Pleistocene epoch. What scientists now say, and this is NASA saying this, because our CO2 levels are higher, Earth is greener now than it has been in the last 20 years. CO2 levels are increasing higher than they were 20 years ago, and the Earth is actually greener than it is right now. So the Pleistocene conditions, if we were to go back to Pleistocene conditions, it creates an Earth very, very different than we have today, much cooler uh, in terms of temperature, much lower levels of carbon dioxide, much less green plant life, and possibly extinction level uh, for, for mammals. That's what happened in the Pleistocene. So the question is, who benefits from those conditions? Who benefits from an earth that looks like it looked during the Pleistocene. Uh, one of the interesting facts uh, that I want to mention here is that the Pleistocene epoch, it, it covers that 200,000 year point before present when we emerged. We actually appeared, humans, anatomically modern humans, we emerged on the earth 200,000 years ago during these conditions and and these are the conditions we learned to live in but the conditions continued to improve as the co2 levels became higher and the earth became greener uh, over time and the earth warmed so this is very interesting because the science also tells us <clears throat> that when we emerged we did not emerge as a result of the evolutionary processes that w were taught when I was in school in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. I was taught that we are the product of random mutations and lucky biology. This is Darwin's theory. I'm a geologist. I support Darwin's theory for many forms of life. We see evolution for plants, animals, and insects. You see it in the fossil record. Can't deny that. However, something happened 200,000 years ago, and Darwin's theory of evolution cannot account for us, for the emergence of anatomically modern humans relatively quickly. And we know this because the 
fossilized DNA that we're now able to, to retrieve. It used to be science fiction that we could do that. That's Jurassic Park. We now it's, can do this. It's science fact. Uh, and again, I'm hesitating because I've covered this in so many other videos. I don't want to be too redundant here. But the, the DNA evidence says that we're the product of a series of, of genetic fusions between chromosomes and mutations of genes that cannot be attributed to natural forces and natural factors. And that's where science stops. Science says what it's not. Science cannot tell us why these things happened. So we know that human chromosome two is a result, for example, it's a fusion of two pre-existing chromosomes. We know this because of, of the location of the telomeres in the middle of the, the chromosome. We know chromosome seven had genetic mutations that allow us complex speech, allow us to sing. We know that after chromosome two was fused, there were genes that were silenced, genes that were added, genes that were taken away to stabilize that fusion. They all happened in a very brief period of time, not slowly gradually over a long period of time. They all happened at the same time 200,000 years ago when we emerged. Uh, this is not Darwin's idea of evolution. Something else happened. It happened 200,000 years ago during the Pleistocene, during the time when if we were to achieve the goals set by the WEF and the UN, that would place us back into that period of time. So the question is who or what benefits from these conditions? The answer is it's not us today. And we have to start asking the question, if not us, then who? Who benefits from these conditions? Uh, There's so many factors that come into this that could be their own video. And I, I do. I talk about this. And I will continue in, in other videos when you look at all of the other conditions that are happening in the world today, the fact that the fertility rate is dropping dangerously fast. I talk about that in another video. Uh, the talk that we will not overpopulate the earth. We will reach peak, peak population of about 10 billion around 2040. And unless something changes, life on earth, human life is dropping dangerously quickly. We're going to have uh, actually a, a population problem in terms of too few humans rather than too many. Uh, why are we being groomed? Why is the earth being groomed for conditions that so closely matched the Pleistocene 200,000 years ago? Uh, that's the question that we need to ask. The higher CO2 levels that are happening today, are they contributing to the warming? They may be. Is that warming dangerous to life on Earth? Geologic history tells us it's not, and we're nowhere near those CO2 levels that that had dangerously high temperatures. What it does is it makes life difficult for people who have chosen to live, you know, a matter of feet from the edge of the ocean. Will ocean levels rise? They will rise if the temperatures are rising, as they have in the past. The only life that it's bad for is people who have chosen to build in floodplains and people that have chosen to build dangerously close to the, to the coastal areas. So if we allow for the rhythms and cycles of our planet, we would know that we need to change the way we think and the way we live in society and the way that we build architecturally 
to accommodate those cycles. We haven't done that. So now what we're trying to do is force nature to accommodate our choices of lifestyles uh, so that we're not inconvenienced by this. And this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of science. Uh, you know, why aren't we allowing for the conditions, the cyclic conditions that we see in geologic history, the rhythms that are causing a, a slight warming that we have right now, why aren't we allowing for those conditions and building to adapt and accommodate them rather than the arrogance of thinking that we need to change these CO2 levels on the planet to go back to where they were 200,000 years ago when we emerged. It doesn't make sense. And when something doesn't make sense, it's generally because uh, because we don't have all the information. And I'm not saying that I do. I have my own personal feelings about why we're being driven back and who this benefits, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's not the people of this earth that are benefiting from this. So with that, I'm going to close this part of this presentation. I have other presentations. We're going to pick up where I leave off. I'm going to leave off here in the interest of time. Uh, I want you to ask yourself these questions. I want to see your comments, how you feel about the information. Have I missed something in the geologic history, you geologists out there? Uh, and if I'm not, who do you think benefits? Like I said, I, I have my own personal feelings, and I will talk about those, and I have in other YouTube videos on this channel. You'll see exactly what that's all about. I'm not going to cover it on on this uh, this one right now uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and part of those is the length of time. Part of those is I want to see what your thoughts are on this. So let me know how you feel about this information. Thank you for allowing me to share this with you today. And uh, I'm really interested to see where we go with this conversation. All right. Thanks so much. Take good care. I look forward to our next. Okay. <clears throat> Definitely got upgraded on that one. Mm. All right. I think we'll do this one next, John. Mm. Okay, I gotta find that. Okay, I'll just read. Yeah. What's going to be happening here? This is called. Esoteric Mysteries of Antarctica. <clears throat> We've heard a lot of things from a lot of people who visited there. Let's see what's going on here. <clears throat> how do you, how do secrets of Antarctica relate to the Nazis, to the Nazi search for Atlantis during mm. That's an interesting. Again, um, how do secrets of Antarctica relate to the Nazi search for Atlantis during World War II? Retired Air Force. What's that? A F O S. Air Force. What do you think the O S is, Ron? Not sure. Operating. Oh, hmm. Anyway, Air, Air Force agent Richard Doty and tactical advisor Tim offer insider insight on historic anomalies 
stretching mm. back to the 1930s from ancient civilizations and weather man- manipulation to the esoteric obsessions of Hitler and Himmler. Explore the mysteries, technologies, and paranormal magic of Antarctica. And this is with Emery Smith. I'm getting there. It's taking me a while. He's getting there, everybody. Featuring Tim, Tactical Advisor, and Richard Doty. Hmm. This is for 39 minutes. Yeah. Electrons are slow. Electrons are slow. Hmm. Um, okay. Mm. All right. What was lost is found. All right. Here we go. Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Richard Doty, a retired counterintelligence agent served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Also joining us is Tim, a tactical advisor to covert analysts trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-human intelligences on our planet. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to get into Antarctica. And I want to start off first by asking Tim to explain some of the history Antarctica that you're aware of. Right. So every time I was bored, I was looking into um, whatever documents I could get my hands on and, and just read them because it portrays a whole, whole different other history compared to um, what you find in the books. Information that are different uh, to the conventional. Right. Than the normal history, right? Right. So, what do we know? We certainly have seen that there's um, the 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 Nazis itself were quite interested in well the search for Atlantis and mysterious places all around the globe. So they had missions going to Egypt, had missions going to um, Tibet, to India, um, and they were looking for things, um, whatever they could get their hands on. Um, this is because. Because Hitler himself was very interested in finding alternative history facts because he was interested in art as well and he was a collector himself. Conventional history shows that as well, that he's had a big interest in all these uh, myths and secrets around the world. We also know that there's a second key player in the uh, Third Reich um, that um, was, you know, kind of opposing Hitler himself which was Himmler. Himmler um, himself, he, he grew to the second man of power in, in the uh, Third Reich. And over time, you can see that, that 
um, this SS state somehow um, became a force in itself, almost like the first breakaway civilization that, that history of this planet has ever had. And it's it's quite fascinating because he has done extensive research, for example, on witches and and uh, magic powers. And that is what the documents are indicating, that some thousands of years ago, Antarctica wasn't an ice place, but it was quite Mediterranean in its climate because at that time the pole shifts were different. The, the, the poles, right, the magnetic yeah. poles were different uh, on the planet. So the weather was different. And they arranged the first mission down there, uh, which was done uh, through a um, ship that they, they constructed only for that particular case. In fact, it was one of the first uh, aircraft carriers that was designed just to explore Antarctica. What year was this? Early 30s. Um, right. Do you know it? Yeah. 1936. So, okay, perfect. And Neuschwabenland, which was the name of the um, of the ship, and um, they had an aircraft on it, which uh, where they could fly around Antarctica. And no country in the world at that time was interested in Antarctica. Why were they so obsessed with the ten? For two reasons, basically. At, at a certain time in history, Antarctica was populated mm-hmm. and it might have been a place that could have any kind of significance to the Nazis because they, at least Himmler believed very strongly in magic and, and um, you know, psionic effects. Um, They're looking for the secrets, maybe some artifacts, maybe some technology left behind by this ancient civilization. And the second reason is uh, with the cause um, of the war going um, less in favor for the uh, for the Nazis at that time, they were looking for a remote remote base um, where they could, you know, um, potentially do some things. And what we've seen in the document is that they um, created a special class of um, uh, U-boats, which was called uh, Cow class, actually, uh, translated. And so those submarines were specially designed. They were the class that could dive the deepest uh, at that time. What we've also seen in the documents, and we have that listed, is the amount of material that they, you know, put down there. Machinery, uh, a whole train, systems, uh, technology. Technicians, everything. They went from Germany down to Antarctica so many times. And in the process of the World War, even more and more and more. And you have that listed. You can see all the material that they brought down there, which is immense. Um, they have brought machinery uh, down there in order to create steam uh, and in order to create like an igloo effect um, down in Antarctica. We've also seen uh, that... Um, when the the war in Europe seems to have come to an end, there are some very interesting um, situations. So some people might say, yeah, Hitler might have gone down to Antarctica. I'm, I'm pretty convinced from what I've read that he um, died in the bunker in Berlin at that time. They've done pretty extensive, you know, analysis mm-hmm. on the teeth and um, the skull, which... Uh, 
the Russians took to Moscow. Um, what, do, what do you think about that, Rick? Well, I, I, I oh, believe okay. he died. Yeah. yeah, I believe he died. He, did? he okay. died in uh, he died in Berlin in a bunker. I mean, there's so much evidence yes. that would show that he he died. Why were they launching a disinformation campaign then about maybe his escape to Antarctica? Is that to control uh, the Germans or? I think there's an element, as Tim knows, there's an element within Germany, the Nazi uh, party, mm. although it was outlawed, there were still so many supporters of the Nazi parties right up, right up until the seventies. Mm. And they had to, to uh, rearrange and reconstruct their government after uh, the fall, right. uh, 1945. And um, because the United States came in and abolished the government Mm -hmm. so they had to recreate it and they knew that this element of the nazi party would still be uh even in in a philosophical way is supportive right i spent two semesters at Mainz university in germany and um i studied german archives and uh the ironic thing about uh, what the germans did to prepare themselves for antarctica was the German government in, in the 1940s was the first country to develop synthetic clothing to insulate for mm. cold. It's similar to Gore-Tex. The German government perfected that. Now, Germany, it doesn't get that cold in Germany, even in northern Germany. So why would they, why would they do that? They made 6,000 pairs of these insulated boots, which were given to, uh, the, according to, to this one document, Stormtroopers. Right. Those stormtroopers <laughs> were the ones that went on the ship, the aircraft carrier, to go to Antarctica. During the time period where the concentration camps were in full operation, German scientists were trying to perfect the superhuman. And they were using the concentration camp uh, prisoners to do that. They were injecting them to all sorts of things to determine how they can strengthen and insulate their skin without uh, heavy clothing. There's a lot of uh, good information about uh, missing concentration camp prisoners that the Germans would come in, put them on a train, and they would go someplace. They wouldn't go to the gas chambers. They went someplace else. Mm-hmm. And there's good evidence that they took them down to Antarctica for experiments. Now, jump ahead now. As, as Tim said, the German government was the first one to set up an expedition in inside Antarctica. And that was, I think, in 1936, 1937 time frame. Uh, during the time period of the war, there were 11 different ships trapped, German uh, cargo ships, uh, going to uh, in that direction. Uh, right after the war, uh, the USS, I believe it was a man, Montana and another, uh, which was an aircraft carrier, I believe, or a battleship, and, and, a, and, and a U.S. submarine tracked two German submarines mm-hmm. going in that direction. Right. And it was just after the war, and uh, the fleet admiral was asked, do we, do we destroy these or let them go? And the admiral says, just let them go. The war is over with. Now we can jump ahead till now. Yeah. Yes. There's so much talk about what has happened down in Antarctica over the years. We have bases down there. Uh, Germans have bases, uh, Russians have bases, the Chinese have bases. In 1976, we know this t- to be factual as far as 
most of this information. There's some of it that is still uh, questionable. The United States government has were, were perfecting weapon systems back in those days, and they perfected a, a weapon system called the Spartan. Now, I'm not going to go into details of exactly what that was. And then uh, a second one called the Zeus. They had to find a place to test these weapon systems. They didn't want to do it at the Nevada test site. They were afraid of the what uh, damage that this this we- particular weapon, the Spartan, which was the first one tested, would do. So they decided to do this down in Antarctica. So they did. They took it down there. They fired two shots of this weapon into a tunnel that they had built a, a half a mile into the uh, into mm-hmm. the underground. Eighteen months later, Zeus was the second weapon system, entire, entirely different type of weapon system, but they fired that, and that was in I think I believe it was nineteen seventy eight, and so they tested it. I believe it was only one shot, and there's some saying there was several shots. Now jump ahead several years, an expedition team from the U.S. is flying over a particular area and sees this big hole in the ice in Antarctica. And they, they report it back. Hey, there's a huge hole in this ice. And this is some years later. Right. This is in the middle 80s. And so they decided to send a ground team in the summertime down there in the in the December time frame area mm-hmm. era to figure out what this was. Right. So they sent this team down there, a seven-person team, uh, they get to this tunnel, they go into this tunnel, and lo and behold, what what we, they think these weapon systems cleared away and left was a pyramid. There's a pyramid down there. Now... How big is this pyramid? I don't know the dimensions. I, there's, there's a wide variety of di- dimensions of the, that particular person, the, the man who claimed to be on the expedition and went down here was the army... Mm-hmm. Uh, a person uh, claimed it was Giza. similar to one in, in Giza, okay. yeah, in the typical Egyptian pyramid. And so the question is, what is this pyramid doing <laughs> oh, yeah. under Antarctica? What is this doing down there? And now that opens even a wider range of discussions on what it could be. You have anything to add to that, Tim? There are satellite pictures that uh, actually confirm what um, uh, Rick just said. And this is not only uh, the only thing that can be seen and um, seems to um, appear more and more uh, since uh, um, the ice is slowly melting in Antarctica. We've also seen that there are strange objects, potentially crafts, um, you know, appearing uh, as shadowy um, uh, forms uh, under the ice. Um, From what I know... uh, um, uh, I can also add that one of potentially the oldest spaceport is said to be found down there. This is exactly what the Nazis were looking for in uh, the mm-hmm. 1940s. J- jump ahead now to uh, the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this particular expedition, U.S. expedition that went down there, uh, supposedly to... Uh, recover some old artifacts that were down there and actually found German artifacts, uh, mm. uniforms and, and so forth. So that pretty much established the fact that the Germans were there at one point because there was an old base, uh, wooden huts and so forth and German uh, military uniforms. 
didn't really date it, I don't believe. So, but what they also found was a craft. And that was in, two, in 1999. They found a craft, United States the expedition. Now, they didn't know what to do with it. This particular 11 person crew hadn't been told or even uh, briefed on anything that they might find other than artifacts, leave them in place. But when they find this craft that's buried under the ice, they could see it. An ironic part about that is it, when when it became somewhat dark during that time period, although this was summertime, uh, there were lights going off inside this craft. So they didn't know what to do. They were not briefed, not prepared. Right. So they left. They sent us another team down there, and there's very little known about this other team in recovery. There's a lot of stories that, uh, that has been circulated about it. I know Linda Howe has one. They brought it out. It was only 15 feet in diameter, but was really big on the bottom, like it was some kind of a container on the bottom of it. They brought it out. They had a heck of a time getting it from uh, from that site, which I believe was uh, like 300 miles uh, mm-hmm. away from Myrtle Base. They couldn't do it by aircraft, so they had to bring a ship, a container ship. Wow. They, they contracted a deep salvage ship to come in to take that someplace, and, right. and I don't know where they took it. I assumed probably to Area 51, but if it was that long, and I don't know what the length of that was, uh, they probably would have had problems of concealing that to a location. I don't think it would have fit a, an onboard an aircraft. Right. What else can you tell us about? what we learned about that pyramid that was found down there. Boy, that's a question that, uh, that I would love to know all the mm-hmm. answers to. Um, it's very, very uh, compartmented, so to speak. And there's very little information. I know people have come forth on different programs and talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this special military team, the guy that claimed it right. was, I was on the first team and now he's on the second team. He claims that when they went down into that, to the, the cavern where this pyramid was, was situated, that it was green, uh, plush metal down there. Somehow the area around the, uh, the, the pyramid, the base of the pyramid hmm. was green for some reason. Now, if this is buried under Antarctica, how could it be green? What, like what, algae or? It's like algae. algae. Okay. Anyways. And he describes that, but he also, the team that went down there, mm-hmm. uh, they were only down there for like 30 minutes or so, a short period of time, and they felt sick and dizzy. Mm-hmm. So they had to, they had to go back up. Once they got away from the pyramid, they felt all right. Mm-hmm. So now that presented a problem. What kind of protective clothing do you need to get down there? Now he tells the story and I hate to repeat what he's saying because I don't know if if, if it's factual or not, right. but he said they had to get an actually a level A hazmat suits, mm-hmm. sure, which did protect them from whatever the the the, the ray or waves or or, or that energy energy yeah. that was down there. Yeah, probably energy, but they couldn't find an entrance into the pyramid, so uh, it was just there. And his team went out and they brought in other scientists, and he said then he doesn't know what happened after that. And there's very little. You can find out even on the internet. I mean, I know Linda Howe and others have talked about it sure. uh, and what it was for. Who built it? Maybe, maybe Tim would know. 
what do we know? We know that um, the planet itself goes through certain cycles of, of civilizations, which means before we have this, you know, human species uh, on the planet, there is some kind of forgotten civilization that goes uh, back to a different version, a, a, a previous cycle of this planet. We can see uh, that the magnetic field of Earth has shifted in some way as well. They are all gone. They're all gone. We're talking about in South uh, South America about uh, 80 million uh, houses and and um, uh, buildings that could you know give home to people, um, and uh, they they haven't ever found um, skeletons or people there. They're just gone. So um, there are there are not only pyramids in Egypt, but they are all over the place on the planet. And yeah. the way we understand it is that uh, all these uh, pyramids um, they create some kind of electric current, and they connect all these uh, cities um, uh, around around the globe, so that people could you know benefit from the energy that uh, came from those pyramids. So uh, since we know that there was some kind of you know civilization people uh, in Antarctica when it was a Mediterranean location, they also have built this pyramid. Um, and they had a spaceport even in order to make direct contact with um, ETs uh, and different other species as well. And uh, we see clear evidence uh, um, even today in the in the uh, ancient places for that. Do we know who that was and how they looked? No, we don't because they're gone. There's no trace of them. We don't know if there were. Uh, they were uh, human or something or how they looked. Um, we just know what they left and that they were there and that they went on. And this is probably going to happen with this version uh, of this planet as well at some time. Did they ever put a date on that civilization in Antarctica? Well, we can clearly define time uh, for about 15,000 years. Mm -hmm. If we go earlier than that, we see that we have too many different observable perspectives on time. Right. So we get um, some kind of paradox where things don't seem to, you know, fall into place. And even if we go way back, then we see um, that it's getting illogical even more. So mm -hmm. that is a, that is the problem. And um, the way I would define it is that reality itself comes in cycles on this planet. Ah which means that we're probably talking about a version, at least this is the way we speak about it, um, uh, a, a previous version uh, of Earth where we cannot put a timestamp on right. it. Yes. Another Same. interesting aspect about this pyramid, uh, prior to it being found, there were a lot of UFO sightings occurring down there. Right. And you know what? There's a person that spent... The winners down there. There's just a skeleton team at Myrtle, uh, that, that, uh, of the United States base that stays down there during their winter with oh, the okay. summer just to maintain the equipment and so forth. And he was a scientist, a botanist, I believe. And he would talk about these strange lights occurring that were flying over. Now he knew there wasn't any aircraft coming. Right. In. There was nothing from Earth that could fly around during a particular time during their winters down there. 
but he saw these lights. He never saw them in the summertime. He never saw them in the December time frame area. He only saw them in the winter. Now, they could fly in all weather. I'm sure right. that was, other, uh, uh, they could fly in regardless of what the weather is. And they wanted to hide themselves from us. And maybe they were visiting that pyramid. And there's other stories about lights coming out of, of, uh, of the, the ice. Rick could have, could have been also, uh, uh, an alien reproduction vehicle made by the Germans. I haven't heard, um, I know we, uh, we United States government got, uh, during the time frame of just after the war, we brought a number of German, uh, scientists yeah. to the United States. And one of the documents, a very interesting document that I read while I was at Mainz University was uh, a document written by a particular scientist and it talks about how to travel in space and it has a phrase space travel. Now this is a this is 1944 that was written this document was written in 1944. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, you can't find any other reference to space travel in any other kind of documents that I've ever seen. Uh and I'm pretty much a mil- military history buff. Uh, so what did they know about space travel then that we didn't know about? Was there a possibility that a craft prior to 1947, because that's where my time frame, my timeline starts. But was there a craft before 1947 that the Germans recovered and they were experimenting with? Now, the technology wasn't advanced enough for maybe them to understand it. But maybe they were trying to. Maybe the bell that we hear oh, right. about so yeah. so often mm-hmm. that's in Germany. Maybe that was a, an AT craft. And I would be interested to know what uh, what you think of that. Yeah. So basically, the SS was the first military brand that, that has a special department for looking into UFO cases, which is at least so. CIA was founded in 1947. Um, it was, I, I guess, 1942 when uh, the SS had a full organized uh, section for looking into those cases. Um, so they basically knew there is uh, reality to the UAP and UFO phenomena, and uh, they were interested in getting their hands on it. Did they make contact? We don't know. What we, at least I don't know. What we know is that they were interested in remote viewing much earlier than the CIA ever got their hands on it. So they had a department for that. And this was totally normal to them. No, no reason at all for ridicule or something. They had a special department um, for remote viewing submarines uh, in the World War II in the Navy uh, in Germany. So they did that and they pinpointed all these uh, U.S. American um, uh, boats. Later on, the Allies got their hands on the radar system, which made things, you know, a lot easier. Um, but that was the way the Germans um, did it. They used pendulums in order to find them. And they were successful with that. Um, so what we know is there were groups that were trying to remote view information and we assume that they got all the information they needed to build a, a functional flying alien craft 
through remote viewing those uh, technology and they build it and basically operation high jump we see that potentially the germans have finished their own working fleet uh two years later you know the ironic spoke about this earlier ironic thing about hitler was he was so fascinated with the psychic research psychic phenomena uh the paranormal side of it that you know he sent ss uh operators all over the world to collect whatever he could you know he had his own psychic uh advisor and we know from the history of remote viewing and of course it didn't actually call it remote viewing back in those days but it was a form of remote viewing the history of remote viewing talks about the german program in 1941 up, up mm. to 1944 about remote viewing right. uh, and they, and they also talk about you know himmler actually spoke with one of his generals um and there's a a private uh it's in the archives there's a uh, letter of talking about Himmler's conversation with this other German general. Uh, and this is in the late uh, 44, right up to in, maybe into 45. I think it was dated in February of 1945. The letter was about all this, the magic weapons that we need to relocate. Now it doesn't mention where, or it doesn't right. mention anything about that. But as Tim said, they had to get out of Germany. I think Himmler knew, and as several of the other German generals knew, that the war was going coming to the end. They 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 weren't going to survive. The Third Reich wasn't going to survive. So they they had to move things out. Now, and there's another plan about the Fourth Reich and what where they were going to set up base and and counter all this. But anyways, where did they take all these magic weapons? I could remove you, uh, Antarctica. So now I have a question to you, Rick. Are there still Nazis down in Antarctica nowadays? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I want to hear your opinion. I, on that. I, I think what I've read and what I've studied, and and a lot of it is conjecture. I can't. I can't. Can't say for a fact. I mean, I've spoke to a lot of people about this. Um, is there a uh, Subterranean uh, uh, civilization down there. There's a lot of evidence. I mean, there's photographs. So there's some guy had a website with all these photographs, and he could have made them up. I don't know, but it showed a civilization under Antarctica, deep under Antarctica, actually supposedly under this this pyramid. And if there were, I think the obviously the relatives. Uh, the people that are alive down there would be relatives of, of the Nazis, uh, the, the former generals, because in the administrative control of the world that 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 document that Hitler had mentioned, he or, or, or wrote or somebody else wrote it for him, how to conquer the world. And I can't remember exactly. You know what I'm talking about, that that document. He talks about Antarctica. Of course, he talks about the North Pole. He talks about Canada. He talks about he didn't go great deal in the United States because he doesn't, he, you know, even though Hitler was irrational at times, he was a rational person knowing an invasion of the United States probably wouldn't work, wouldn't have worked. Right. But Canada, he thought, could be invaded in Mexico. And he had them on top of the list. But he also talked about Antarctica, <laughs> how to build a community in Antarctica. And, of course, this was an early, his early reign. But, um, you know, who knows that, that there could be. 
2014, 15, 16, 17, and on, we have had reports of world leaders, religious leaders visiting Antarctica. Even the astronauts, our president has been there. What's going on? I believe it's it's the pyramid. It's they, definitely a show and tell of something. It's absolutely, absolutely a show and tell. I want of something. everyone to know. There's, I know that in 2013, two representatives from the Vatican went down. That's right. And they yeah. and they spent a lot of time down there. They were taken on ex, expeditions. They didn't say where, but where would you think they would t- be taken? I think from 1999, when we discovered the pyramid, until 19, uh, of 2013, there's been a lot of advanced uh, exploration of that pyramid. We probably figured out how to get in there. We probably figured out how to get around down there. And what we discovered down there probably would amaze everyone. And I think they brought the religious leaders and other world. I know representatives from a lot of different countries who went down there in 2015. They had that big uh, thing down there. Uh, so, but they haven't sh- shared it with us yet. No, right. Their lips are sealed. What, what do you think is going on down there, Tim? Isn't that rare that they bring all these politicians uh, down to Antarctica and no one cared for Antarctica until the treaty um, and uh, before Operation High Jump and suddenly everyone is interested. I can only assume. I don't know. I don't know. I I think if there's uh, indeed a civilization and there are rumors going on that um, – nations um, that there's a uh, secretive contract um, which United Nations um, you know uh, I think you can't even um, join the United Nations if you don't sign that treaty that you will not go to Antarctica yeah is that true yeah Yeah. you're not Mm. yeah you won't yeah yes so if the the um, rumors are correct that they have acknowledged the existence uh, of a fourth uh, Reich down there, um, and they must not tell some uh, nobody basically. Then um, maybe some of these meetings that we've seen in order mm-hmm. to prepare for you know uh, disclosure all around the world in, in Africa, uh, Australia, Bel- Belgium, United States, Canada, um, maybe. They have also, you know, taken place in Antarctica, but I don't know. One of my real good friends who passed away a few years ago, Robert Dean, um, command uh, uh, sergeant major of the army. He he was a UFO researcher, a really good close friend of Wendell Stevens. What he said, you know, he died a, a couple of years ago, but he talked quite openly about, uh, and what he said that he found out from a source was there was a portal, a time portal in Antarctica. And the first or, first or second expedition that actually found a pyramid went through that portal into some other dimension. They all of them managed to get back out. But can you imagine if we we found some a portal in, in, in Antarctica, either at the pyramid or near the pyramid, that could put take us into a different dimension or different time right. warp or something else that we might not understand. Can you imagine the, 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 what that would mean? And, and that may be why a lot of countries have to sign that they're not going to go down there 
because there's some kind of danger down. I tell you something. I've seen documents where they have brought an immense amount of um, so-called uh, life-born children, which was the program of the Nazis for, um, you know, gifting children to the Fuhrer and the, the country. Mm-hmm. And and you, we've seen the list. They have brought an immense amount uh, of these children down to Antarctica with no relatives, no one would miss them, no traces, uh, they've deleted all the traces. Mm-hmm. And um, we've also seen documents that they have brought a group of female psychologists down there because it indicates that that what, what you are talking about could have been found by the Nazis down there already. And they, they are talking about strange phenomena down there and they need those um, psychologists and the, in the papers where they demand their need for psychologists in the Navy which is rare. You normally don't have female psychologists on a, right. a naval ship at that time. Hitler, basically, he was against uh, female soldiers or females uh, on, on naval ships, and they brought them down as well because they said there are reality, I'm quoting here, reality-shifting effects down in Antarctica, and they need mm-hmm. those psychologists. That could be the portals. That's the portal. Huh? That's the portal thing. And, uh, you know, Robert Dean had some statements about that portal right and uh, that some of our people went in uh it affected him uh they did get out according to him and according to his sources uh but but that could be uh why the the germans when they established their base down there in 1936 and 1937 time frame they found it if they have found a ufo and a pyramid down there that's something they would keep super secret but yet They're parading all these politicians, religious leaders down there to check it out. Why is that? Well, if I was running some kind of an intelligence operation or some form of a briefing program to get money or to get uh, cooperation from other governments or other entities, I could see how they could bring him down there, Mm -hmm. uh, give him a little bit of information, but not tell him the entire story. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Just to keep their interest and and maybe get money yeah, the funding. or get a, a funding or a cooperation because let's face it, uh, no country has unlimited funds, and so we want cooperation from different entities, and so uh, different countries. And we have brought the representatives from Vatican, pretty rich, uh, and, and then other countries down there. I don't know the exact list of the countries, uh, other than Germany, I know, and and, uh, and Canada and and uh, and some other countries in Europe. So I would manufacture an operation to bring them down, give them a little bit of briefing, give them a little bit of information, but not tell them all. And maybe give them a little bit of real information and a lot of disinformation. disinformation right. Because in an operation, a, a counterintelligence operation or a counterespionage operation, you, you or any kind of intelligence operation, you want to give a little bit of good stuff with a lot of the bad stuff. So it piques their interest. Right. And I think that's probably what what we were, we're doing. Though. Yeah, I agree with that. So let's summarize what we've talked about and maybe add a little bit of the future of Antarctica. Well, first of all, we know the Germans went down there. I know we know that base was established. We've established bases. We've tested weapons down there. We opened up some some cavern under the ice. We've located a pyramid. Now, what do we do? 
we experiment, we research, we find the answers to that pyramid. What's the future? Uh, maybe we did find a portal down there, and now we're trying to dictate what the future is going to bring to mankind through that portal. Excellent, excellent. Well, gentlemen, what an astounding um, show this has been. Looking forward to uh, doing some more with it. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emery. And Tim, it's always a pleasure having you. Thank you, Emery. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. I had access to information pertaining to the exploration of the pyramids by the United States government. This person will come out six hours later and thought it was they were only in there for 20 minutes. They opened uh, an underground chamber and found a still living ET being. What we wanted to know was what happened to the ET. What happened to E.T.? I think that's probably the same headline. Well, okay, well, 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 well. All right. Ritual are practicing techniques which are conditioned, which means they are just part of the ego construct. The seeking and the activity. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Okay, this one, Rama, um, is called Genetic Blueprints Across Lifetimes. Okay. Okay. Okay, so this, this says here, could our personalities from past lives try to rectify their experiences in our current lives? Exploring timelines, consciousness, genetic blueprints, and quantum awareness. Author Joseph Selby dives deep into the nature of being. Um, Explore how our understanding of reality continues to evolve and how we can learn to co-create expressions consciously. Joseph Puru Selby is the author of the, the Physics of God and an avid follower uh, of the unfolding new paradigms of science. He is known for creating bridges of understanding, understanding, overstanding between the modern evidence-based discoveries of science and the ancient experience-based discoveries of the mystics. Mm. All right, this is another 45 minutes. So we will start. Mm. 
We are continuously creating, maintaining, and sustaining the physical body. If we did not have an energy body, the physical body would cease to exist. Puff of atoms, and it would be gone. We exist in two different realms. At least. At least. All of us have been on a long journey. We've been everything. And in that process, we've come to how we perceive ourselves. And it's not something that will endure forever. We can, in fact, change it. From what you can tell, what is happening? Well, I've been curious about that myself. When you look at the actual material makeup of a human being, the atoms that make us us fit on the head of a pin. What then is this body and all that we see? If we're nothing but space, what keeps us from passing through one another and dropping through the earth beneath us? Joseph Selby and I will be talking about what makes up our 3D perceived reality and why mind, i.e. consciousness, matters. In fact, in a sense, it's all that matters. <laughs> Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here with, I loved your book. And Sandy Sedgbear, a colleague of mine in England, we were interviewed for OM Times and talked about what we think are the most essential books. And yours was on both of our lists. I have to tell you that. Wow. The physics of God. I'm honored. Yeah. Well, it's really important. So we're going to dive right in. We're talking about quantum physics and reality and consciousness, which a lot of people glaze over and think, uh-huh. This is going to be fun because we're going to do it via story and some examples that are so stunning. We can't ignore the fact that we actually do create our own reality, right? Yep, correct. Okay, so let's start. We're going to start right in on this one. So you say that we, this, we are a local manifestation of a non-local phenomena. So let's just start there in regular human terms. So non-locality is a term that gets kind of bandied about in a lot of uh, scientific discussions and in spiritual teachings Mm -hmm. combined because non-locality is essentially another realm, a deeper realm, a more subtle realm than the three-dimensional physical realm that we perceive through our senses. So the fact that it exists is one of the most significant supports for the idea that there's more to us than a physical body. Yeah. If there's an an entirely uh, more subtle realm, vast subtle realm that exists non-locally, whereas the three-dimensional is local, it suggests that we exist in two different realms. At least. At least. Right. And that should be very exciting for everybody because as everybody fears and hangs on to this, this physical manifestation, if we all truly understood that we are a multidimensional being that exists far beyond whatever happens to this earth suit, it would change, I think, the way we live. And it does. Uh, near death experiencers almost universally say that the one most significant realization they have after they return they have no fear of death. Right. And that it puts in a, a completely different perspective to work on why they are doing what they're doing when they're alive, which right. is mainly learning to love, give, and care for others, and that that's the number one reason that we're all here. It's the same thing. doesn't matter who the person is and what their history was. Same thing comes up over and over. So if this is just... All of this is a field of possibility. 
then what determines you versus me and this table versus the floor? Nothing. <laughs> it's all it's all been uh manifested through a mechanism that begins in non-locality and expresses itself in locality in this three-dimensional material world but our physical bodies are just as uh real and unreal as this table or the world that we perceive around us because they're all as you said at the beginning mostly empty space the atoms that surround us and make us up are 99.999 percent empty space Space. i mean to give a visual on it if you looked at our solar system and the planets in the solar system that's kind of what most atoms look like right yeah that that's it and look how far apart these things are and how much space there is in between. Every atom in our body essentially is like that. And this is the hardest part for people to get their minds around. How come physical five sensory reality feels so real? You know, there, what is it in our being? And this comes down to collective perceptions and beliefs and realms and, and creation and creative minds and programming, but it's all essentially programming it's a program it's an expression expression. of our of our mind yes that gives us the form that we have and when we uh change our conviction about what we look like or uh, our state of health or any of the sort of physical attributes of ourselves they will actually change Immediately. We're going to talk about that in a stunning story in a moment. But this is interesting because, you know, people feel it, you know, it's down to fate. If you're born with a disability or if someone's born with a very irregular, with very irregular features and, you know, this is something they go or feel self-conscious with and go through life with, it seems very unfair. At face value, looking at life on this planet, socioeconomically um, and and physically it can seem very unfair but what you just said is really key well all of us have been on a long journey beyond yes. just we've one lifetime <laughs> we've been everything and mm-hmm. in that process we've come to today how we perceive ourselves and it's not something that will uh, endure forever and that we can, in fact, change it. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it would be easy to change it because convictions, you know, there's the old saying about, well, if it's just in your mind, then, you know, it must be easy to change. But in fact, hmm. the yeah. fact that it is in your mind is the hard part. It is not the easy part. <laughs> That's not the easy part. That's true. Because here we're laden with all of this subconscious programming from our past. Everything that's ever been uh, resides in the subconscious and is carried forward from incarnation to incarnation to inform us, to essentially um, keep us out of danger and alive. I mean, red alert, red alert. It's all over in the subconscious. Everything that's ever happened that's harmed us. And also everything that's happened that's made us laugh and given us joy. It's all there. But it's constantly talking to us without our knowledge. And that's reinforcing patterns and beliefs of lifetime after lifetime. That's why when you say the mind, is that's the hard part. 
That is the hard part. Yeah, the mind is like the the sum total of all of our experiences. Yeah, obviously the ones in this life are dominating, mm-hmm. but we have millions, billions of mm-hmm. other impressions, other convictions that are supporting everything that we believe and understand now. Right, and constitute what our mind is. So let's go to this one case in your book that is just so stunning. I can't, I've shared it with other people to stop thinking about. And it's the woman with the multiple personality disorder. So set it up first about this woman, who she was, how she became analyzed, why they began studying her to begin with, and then we'll go into some of the manifestations. Well, a common thing about people suffering from multiple personality disorder, and I do mean suffering from, it, yeah. it's it's not an enviable uh, condition to be in, but a, a common way in which they're discovered is that they go to a doctor or a psychologist because they believe that they're amnesiacs, that they, they can't remember whole chunks of their lives. Right. And then it eventually comes out that the reason why they can't remember is that they're only, you know, one player of many who are playing out that life. Right. And so once they get diagnosed with this multiple personality disorder, they, they discover the amazing differences in personality types that are expressed through these multiple personalities. Some can speak foreign languages that others can't. Some can play instruments that others can't. I and mean, it's really quite varied. But what's lesser known is that each one of those multiple personalities also have physiological differences. Yeah, this is the shocking part because this is where mind and consciousness comes back into play. Exactly. So you might have one personality that has a mole. Right. And another that doesn't. Happen. And this has been validated. Yes. Oh, yes. Been this woman by has many, been measured many. and it'll disappear yeah. or reappear. Right. With the personality that comes in, which sounds impossible. Yeah. And some of it runs very deep rather than superficial, you know, skin conditions. Uh, one woman had uh, 10 personalities and she was uh, measured by a, a optician. Mm-hmm. as each of 10 personalities kind of rolled through within an hour. And the makeup of the eye, the measurable makeup of the eye, was different in every one of those 10 personalities, including in one case, the color of the iris was different. Yes, yes. And you have voices change, scars come and go Yeah, from people. And one of the more um, amazing ones that I actually ran into more recently that isn't in my book, The Physics of God, is about a woman who has nine out of ten of her personalities can see to varying degrees of uh, quality. But one of them is completely blind. Hmm. And when they measure her blind personality, they do so by... Uh, flashing a really bright light right in her eyes. Right. You can't fake that. And you can't fake that. No. There's no... No response. No response in the brain Yeah. to this. Yeah. And yet with the other nine, there is a response. Okay, now this opens up many cans of worms, but also some really fascinating possibilities that I'm curious about. In one sense, I look at it and think, is it possible that for 
reasons I don't comprehend. A soul may have uh, many different expressions that's choose that are choosing to express in this timeline. Is it that other beings are coming with their DNA from other dimensions and kind of surfing in, into this person, their field, and changing them on a genetic level? What's hap- From what you can tell, what is happening? Well, I've been curious about that myself for a very long time. And yes. I've had conversations with psychics who say that uh, it's 10 different beings or however many uh, personalities a, a particular sufferer has. Uh, they're all different beings coming in at different times. Surfing off of this individual to have an expression in the physical world. Yeah. But I also think that it's not necessary that it be different people. I'm wondering that too. Because I think that the the key is the absolute conviction in the mind of each personality. So each personality, when they come in, they bring different convictions. That The convictions they bring are from I have a mole on my right wrist, that I need to wear glasses, uh, all of those things. They come in 100% convinced because yeah. they have no... Well, that's their experience. That's hard fact. That's hard fact for them. Right. And they have no perspective that there are other personalities within that same sufferer who differ. So for them, of course, they have a mole on their wrist. And and they, they do. But that just shows us how quickly the physiological aspect of ourselves can be changed with an imprint from a being or a soul. And it, it, I've also wondered if it might not be expressions of us even coming through from other times. If they say time is basically, you know, an infinity loop instead of linear, mm-hmm. then could it possibly be some of our old personalities coming back and trying to experience or rectify something in this time? And we carry those traits we had then. Yeah, I think all of those are possible. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. No, it doesn't. Because each one brought with it its own genetic blueprint for their life in that time. And each being, if it's different beings, is bringing through its own genetic blueprint. Right. So it's actually affecting a person on a DNA level, but at very, at warp speed. Uh, instantaneously. Instantaneously. A scar comes and then just disappears. It's like what you see in, in films. Yeah. Or the eye color changes. Or the eye color changes. Yeah. To me, this is phenomenal. And the story of these multiple personalities that have been, you know, witnessed and, and measured to me is phenomenal in that it, it illustrates how quickly our reality can change, like you say, when there is this conviction that creates an imprint. And I think it in each one of us, in more practical terms, since most of us are not multiple personality right. uh, sufferers, but... Um, we change instantly all the time. So when you're uh, moving from one emotional level to another, it changes your entire body. If a, a conviction is newly awakened or reawakened in your mind, it changes your entire body, and it does so instantaneously. And in a given day, they say that our um, genes can be upregulated or deregulated in the uh, thousands of changes in one day 
in one person just going about an ordinary life. We're not fixed. We, we are anything but fixed. It sounds like the way in which we appear to be fixed is that generally we'll tend to go to some kind of dominant stable system of right. belief or function, right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to fix us so that you still look like you or I still look like me and have a relatively stable level of health. But this can change very rapidly as well. Like you say, it changes with each emotion. Uh, if the system becomes overwhelmed and acidic, we start going into a different kind of um, decline almost, almost like a rapid kind of deterioration in the immune system. Yeah, and you can see it in people's faces. Yeah. You can see their face fall. You can have this experience of thinking someone has just aged. Right. But at the same time, you have the, the opposite. Opposite, yeah. Where they seem more youthful. You know, the smiles come, the energy comes through their eyes, and they are more youthful. And I, It's not subjective. It's real. And yes, yes. So, I mean, this is something for each one of us to play with, I think, when we're, when everyone's done watching this, to think about that because the quality of our feelings, not just our thoughts, but the quality of our feelings is going to dictate the harmony within our physical being. Right? Powerful, uh, part of our health is emotion. Yes. Those two, emotion and conviction are probably 75, 85% of our whole health picture where diet, exercise, all the things that people are mostly preoccupied with are far less. Yes, absolutely. So that, that gets me to, well, I have a lot of questions here, but we'll get into the building blocks of reality in a bit, get back to kind of the quantum world. But something that is intriguing is the, because humanity has this kind of empathy and we have these kinds of commitments to each other, how often people bring themselves down emotionally and suffer in relationship to someone they love who's suffering. So it's not even ours. We're taking on another person's suffering and basically bringing our entire system down in the process. And it's almost as though we feel disloyal or callous if we don't acknowledge someone else's suffering by suffering. Now, you're a lifelong meditator, um, and you you uh, have followed Yogananda and Yogananda's practices for most of your life. Let's talk about that, because a lot of the suffering, people are saying, yeah, but, you know, my, my husband's doing so poorly, or my mother's dying, and, you know, and by association, we're dying too. So let's talk about that for a moment. Well, a good friend wants to use the analogy that... Um, if some, someone is drowning and you can't swim, jumping in to save them is not a good idea. Right. <laughs> right. You know, give them some kind of life ring or, or something that will actually allow them to get out of their mm-hmm. suffering. So our suffering, our emotional um, depression does nothing for the other person. It, it does just the opposite for the other person. Because we are entangled. It. We're entangled. And uh, as we started off talking about non-locality, most of what we experience, our emotions, our convictions, our thoughts, uh, our memories, our life force, they're all non-local. Mm-hmm. And because they're non-local, 
and particularly this is significant with emotion because there's no distance between us. Right. You're experiencing my emotion as strongly as I'm experiencing it myself Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that it's entangled, yes, but it's also immediate and real. And then once you connect, you stay connected. Mm -hmm. And you can be, you can be a a carrier of depression. You know, you can just bring it along from person to person. Yes. Or you can be a carrier of joy and positivity and happiness. So I think our highest service to each other is to genuinely stay in an elevated state of consciousness and in uh, harmonious, loving emotions. That's the best we can do for the person we love who's suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because we have all this beaten into us, guilt, being of service, you know, that life has beaten into people. Uh, you owe it to them. Oh, they did so much for me growing up. I, I must suffer on their behalf. This is all backward. Yes, but you don't have to be Pollyanna-ish. Right. You know, and go and beam at this person who's depressed. Mm-hmm. So you'll no, probably just not. annoy them. Yeah, <laughs> make them more depressed. You know, or, yeah. or whatever uh, reaction they will have. So you have to just be genuinely centered yes. in your own harmony and respond to them meaningfully rather than from any sense of what you should or shouldn't be doing. It's anything obligatory. Yeah. Really come from your knowingness. Yeah. Because so much of the suffering is happening in relationship and, and in, in entanglement with others. And so interestingly, um, the Nobel Prize in physics was finally awarded to a team of three scientists uh, in October of 2022 uh, for proving that entanglement exists, right? Right. American... Austrian and French. And what I found interesting, I thought, finally, you know, it's about time. We have to start honoring the spooky action at a distance factor, right? And Mm -hmm. science and giving it legitimacy. But the interesting thing was the American scientist commented afterwards. He said, we have proven it. I have no idea how it works. Mm -hmm. And that's because yet with all of this, they seem not to be able to embrace the notion of consciousness. Well, I think they would embrace it. Uh, I think many of them embrace it personally, but they don't bring it into, you know, what they think of as their professionalism as a scientist. But there isn't any specific proof that consciousness exists outside of us, outside the body, beyond the physical realm. And yet everything points to it. Right. But until there is that proof, then scientists like the three you mentioned are professionally bound to be skeptical or say, I don't know. But yeah. I think the tide is turning. I think more and more scientists, more and more people are embracing the reality of consciousness being uh, not born of the, mind, of the brain, but a something we're bathed in. It's something yeah. in the entire universe is, exists. And it's the foundation. Yeah. It's the foundation of everything in right. all dimensions, in all universes. Yes. It precedes everything. And so this, because this spills over into uh, 
spirituality and religion, it seems like that's the difficulty. It's still the difficulty in the world of science. And I think in fairness, you know, for a lot of people, what we think of as what you and I probably think of as spirituality isn't that familiar to them. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're thinking in religious terms. Right. They're thinking of Biblical a, terms. Uh, you know, a belief system. Right. Where experiential spirituality is where consciousness really becomes real. Right. And you experience it directly. You feel it beyond the physical body. In fact, you feel yourself to be so much more than just the physical body that your convictions change. Right. And once your convictions change, it's obvious. (laughs) It's obvious that everything is born of consciousness and that you are an expression of that consciousness and that it's loving and that it's intelligent. And that really is the, the God that I talk about in the physics of God. Yes. Is that infinite, intelligent, loving consciousness of which I and everyone else is an integral part. Which has unfathomable creative potential. And that extends to us as well. So another book that is one of these essentials that everyone must read is actually Autobiography of a Yogi, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, I loved all the, it's, it's just such a readable book and it's, it's a fun journey to go along on his ride when he was a young man and seeking one thing. And it's interesting because he had a strong will, but on the other hand, he and the others in India at the time, well, and, and still to this day, who are seeking this oneness with the divine, have to kind of let go of a certain personal notion of who they are, a certain identity. And for him and the others, it was very interesting because along the way, they watched the most amazing things along the line of this multiple personality disorder. Let's talk about some of the different kinds of saints and phenomena that Yogananda experienced as he was going through his young journey to teach him reality is not what we think it is. Because it's very fun, really. He loved to visit saints and there were a lot of them and there were a lot of them they were all over in calcutta yeah yeah (laughs) sort of makes one long to go back to that kind of time but um one that comes to mind is the perfume saint yes so he went to visit this uh saint and what he would do is he could give any flower any scent Mm -hmm. so if you wanted to have a, a a flower that was ordinarily scentless have uh, lavender or lilac or rose, he could do it. And it wasn't just subjective because you could then take that flower and offer it to someone who wasn't even there and they would smell that fragrance that didn't belong to that flower. <laughs> yes. And there was the levitating saint who could do a breathing exercise to such a powerful degree that he would rise from the floor and he could stay floating for indefinite periods of time. I, I remember him also talking about um, one who really couldn't control it all that well. They just kind of float up. And this one was, um, this one he was writing about was actually a, I believe a Catholic. St. Joseph of Cupertino. St. Joseph of Cupertino, where he would just float up yeah. and he couldn't keep himself down. Let's share that a little bit about that. I hadn't read about him before. Yeah, just uh, if he became so inspired so easily. You know, all he had to do was see a crucifix 
or hear um, sacred song or anything could set him off. And he would literally just begin to rise. And in fact, he did this in the court of the Pope at the time. And he did it so often that his brother monks they were just so used to it, they would grab him. Yeah. <laughs> Try to bring him back to So him. that he didn't get, but I said he didn't get out of reach. Yeah. <laughs> I love so it. So that they could keep him tethered. Yeah. <laughs> and he had saints that were walking through walls. There was another one, one of the yogis who fought tigers, wild Bengali yeah. tigers with his bare hands until his ego got out of check. Yeah. And yeah. that was interesting. The lessons that were taught, what happens when ego comes in? Well, he was fighting tigers Mm -hmm. against the advice of someone who he knew later was his spiritual teacher and also against the advice of his father. But he was he was a powerful man to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so he got caught up in the in the power. Oh, he was doing shows all over. He was doing shows. Yeah. And and he had his sort of final comeuppance, his final lesson when a Maharaja challenged him to fight his um, tiger that was, yes. you know, quite large, quite powerful. They got a big, wild Bengali tiger. Yeah. They captured one. And then they didn't feed it. Yeah. It was hor- horrifying reading about it. <laughs> so, but he was, he was grievously wounded yeah. in the fight with the tiger, but he won. Yeah. And then he almost died from the wounds of the tiger. Yeah. And it was then that his spiritual teacher came back to him and said, are you done? Yeah. Are you done <laughs> with your performances yeah. and your egoic tricks? If you're, if you're done with this, then let's move on to fighting the real battles, which are the inner battles of, of wrongly understanding who we are. Yes. Getting beyond the notion that we are this physical body. Yeah. And it's funny because Yogananda felt that um, a lot of this was almost, he, it was fun, but he felt it was almost like parlor tricks. And yes. it wasn't really what he was looking for. He was looking for something more essential. Yes. And that's the thing that his teachings pass on and that you are looking for. And millions of people are looking for this essential thing. So I want to take that part of the conversation into the notion that there is this perfected template, almost like the Elysian fields that the Greeks and Roman heroes were given access to, told they would have access mm-hmm. to upon their deaths, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, many people have glimpsed this, which is simply a perfected version of what we're seeing right now here on Earth. And if you look at it in hermetic terms, they call it uh, the fourth realm or the realm of the children of the sun. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the perfected template, ego, and how we start living in alignment with our very truest, highest manifestation here without getting all caught up in the ego, in our sense of self. Yeah, I think people certainly decades ago became overly obsessed with ego and the thought that they had to break the boundaries of ego or they had to um, suppress the ego in order to be spiritual. And I think it just took on a dimension of concern that was it's not, unnecessary. Yeah, because you can't ever get rid Ego is the accumulation of what you are. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a, a good friend once said that there are two ways to see what is happening in the spiritual life. One is that you can think of it that your ego is reducing down to nothing, which is kind of the, the Buddhist approach and other paths as well, that they gradually disassociate with anything that's egoic. And in the process, they reassociate with everything that is infinite. But you can also think of it as your ego expanding mm-hmm. until it reaches infinity. And both of those uh, points of view are equally valid. Yes. So on the path I'm on, Yogananda's path, he basically encourages people to be creative mm-hmm. and to, to take um, the ego into higher and higher octaves of manifestation rather than being overly concerned with what I'm feeling today and what I'm experiencing today and reacting positively or negatively to that, which is a manifestation of ego, instead to take it up a level or two and express who you are right. at higher and higher levels of awareness and consciousness. And I think for Westerners, that's very attractive. I think so, too, because if you look at it in the purest sense, if the ego is just a collective of everything we are we, have, we are up to this point in time, that's us. It is our individuated self. But it sounds like what you're saying and Yogananda was saying, but don't use it in a self-conscious way where you're constantly self-evaluating and self-flagellating. Now, beyond that, the thing I'm referring to more is almost kind of an over-identity with, I am the CEO of this corporation. When I lose my business mm-hmm. card, I lose my identity and I'm dead. Right. I'm talking about that kind of very stark and severe over-identification with a particular role, for example, which actually kind of blocks you from the beauty of what's try- what you're trying to become. Yes, I agree completely. And I think that the key, which I always come back to in every conversation I have with anyone, yeah. Is meditation. Yeah. That the CEO who's over identifying and therefore is up or down according to whether the company is up or down is always going to be that way unless and until he or she can feel and experience directly that there is a deeper reality of yes. which they are a part. Yes. And otherwise it's all um, ideas mm-hmm. and it, it has no reality you know that ceo may say oh yeah i understand all that but then their company takes a big dip and so do they so it doesn't it's not enough to say that is a truth you have to experience, experience it and feel it directly mm-hmm. and then when the company dips and you don't dip with it then you have a real powerful change in your life. Absolutely. So let's talk about the template. I mean, we have some time left here to get into some of the mechanics of it. Starting 1D, 2D, 3D, because it's a little different way to look at it than a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. We think of the lower dimensions as, ooh, icky, has to be terrible down there, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about the original point, the 1D, 2D, up to 3D, and the perfected template and what it takes for us to kind of live into and be that 
Well, I think that the basic sort of metaphysical structure that you're speaking of is that our physical bodies are three-dimensional. Our subtle non-local bodies that I talked about that are composed of ideas and memories and life force are two-dimensional. And then there's an ideational body, if you will, that isn't even uh, in form. That is one-dimensional. Is that just a field of potential? Well, according to Yogananda, it is all potential. Mm-hmm. But that there is yet another realm beyond it that has zero dimensions, which is just pure being, pure consciousness. And that it's from that pure consciousness and the infinite intelligence that is that pure consciousness that the one, the first dimension is created, the ideational level. And then you have the uh, second level that is energetic. And then you have the third level, which is physical so this is you know one metaphysical description Mm -hmm. and i think that if you want to say it this way the most perfect template is begins with the one-dimensional thought forms and then you have the second dimension of two dimensions of energy that is an, an expression of that right and then finally you have the physical dimension which is an expression of the two dimensional so the key for us, I think, to understand is that we are mostly zero dimensions. We are spirit, even though we don't have an awareness of it every day, day in and day out. It is still fundamentally of who, who we are. Mm-hmm. And then we have our ideation, which is where our deep convictions come from of who and what we are. And then we have this two dimensional body which is a exact counterpart or a almost like an perfect double perfect counterpart of Mm -hmm. the physical body Mm -hmm. and whenever we change anything in the energy body it immediately changes in the physical body interesting and okay a couple things come to mind i was um taught this one particular very rapid healing technique but really all it entails is collapsing the moment into that perfected template you're talking about Mm -hmm. with consciousness Mm -hmm. and letting it go and letting it do its thing. And so I hadn't really looked at it that way until you're bringing this up. Another thing I'm flashing back to is one time I was contemplating the nature of all of this, and it was the same, but I was seeing it as the uh, 10th, 9th, and 8th chakras. And here he's saying it goes from zero one, two, up to three. So either way you look at it, it was the exact same principles of first there's the thought, the thought form. And then I was seeing in that next dimension, uh, movement, geometry, color, light, sound, and everything that started constructing into mm-hmm. what looks like a physical reality in etheric form. And then boom, it would drop in to physicality physical form it sounds like it's the exact same thing yeah. just in reverse yeah kind of looking at top down instead of bottom up but bottom bottom up actually makes more sense <laughs> on a creative level but it's the same thing yeah, and i could exactly. see it so clearly that whatever the quality of that thought is immediately all these constituent building blocks mathematics all of it rush in and start creating what's going to become a physical reality yeah i think what you 
experienced was what I think of as the mechanism of creation. Yes, it was the mechanics of it. And that's both beyond us and within us, that we are guiding that mechanism of creation, each and every one of us. Yes, and it's happening subconscious, and it's happening without our awareness with every single thought. Yes, we are continuously creating, maintaining, and sustaining the physical body from the energy body. And that if we did not have an energy body, the physical body would cease to exist. Right. Like a a puff of atoms, and it would be gone. Because it is the holographic part of the system. So the energy body is the hologram, a film, if you will. And the energy in that realm works through that hologram to project the holographic projection that is our physical body. And so that mechanism is something that's continuous, it's constant, never goes away. So then, as I said in the open of this in our last few minutes, what is it that keeps us from walking through each other, bumping into things, falling down through the earth itself, which also isn't solid? Well, a lot of uh, teachings say that this world is an illusion. Yeah. And that, I think, tends to make people think that it's there's nothing there. Yeah. There's something there. It's just not what it seems. <laughs> yes. So like a magician doing a show in Las Vegas, you know, that illusion is real stuff. It just doesn't uh, appear to be what it actually is. So our physical reality is real, but it's not the hard physical matter that we tend to think it is. It's these empty spheres of atoms. But the reason why those empty spheres of atoms don't just collapse one into the other is the electron cloud that's what I wanted to get around to. them. Huge force field around creates these. Creates a little force field that's very yeah. hard to collapse unless you're at CERN or some other uh, collider. Yeah. You know? yeah. Normally they are very strongly fixed uh, in their reality and they're just bumping up to, it, to each other and they can't pass each other's force field. And so as little bit of matter that's in this atomic structure, the force field itself keeps everything in its own identity, so to speak, in its own space. Yeah. So all the empty atom space in this hand is being repelled from this hand by that empty matter force fields in the other hand. Yes. When I was reading that, that made sense to me. I thought, yeah, that makes, yeah, I can feel that. So before we sign off here, in the end, when you were talking about that first breath of an incarnation and the last breath of an incarnation, just explain to us how you see it in your understanding. We get drawn back to this level of reality, this physical world, because we're not done with it. So we've, we've died many, many times, and after each one of those, we have a a team. We have our astral team of uh, guides who say we're going to send you in to a new incarnation. In we come. And then genetics and all the biosciences uh, start to build a new body for us. But they do so 
from the template that exists in the astral level or the energy mm-hmm. level, the non-local level. And then we have another whole movie-like experience <laughs> of another life where we have lots of adventures, we have our ups, we have our downs, all of which is an opportunity for us to learn until we age and we pass away. But that whole experience has a reality to it. I don't want to make it sound like this is nothing, this three-dimensional oh, reality. How we end. respond to the moments of our lives is everything. Yes, and it's, I think, a matter of sorting out for ourselves the best responses, yes. the highest responses, and to kind of um, flex our muscles of higher being so that we become more creative, we become more loving, we become more intelligent, that that's kind of our job is to is to grow in those divine gifts that are the essential part of who we are. Well, on that, I'm not even going to ask for final thoughts. That was a perfect finish. Joseph, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us here today. And also thank you for writing this book, which I highly encourage people to read and share with others. My pleasure. Again, the book is titled The Physics of God. Very worthy contemplation. His site is physicsandgod.com if you want to check out some more. Till next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. That was very interesting. Samadhi part one, that was. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, I'm going to persist that this period of dying is over. That's the difference between the 3D awareness and the quantum leap now into 5D awareness. This dimensional consciousness is beyond physical death. It's, uh, I just remember the telomere story that as they shorten, then we are heading towards the death process. And there's a way to revive and extend the telomeres and then we lengthen the life again. And it's vibrant. And... Um, Maybe we'll look a little bit for something about that, Rama, this next week. Mm. What do you say? Okay. Okay. So this next one, and the final one for this evening, is Unexpected Miracles and Messages. And this is... um, Uh, What happens as non-believers experience profound voices and become channels? Learn how humans do not need to believe in miracles or metaphysics to experience them. Our experts investigate the historic works of Helen Schuchman, A Course in Miracles, and Jane Roberts, The Seth Material. From channeled 
entities and automatic writing to paranormal anomalies and extra-physical cognition. Explore a world with no limits to learn from realms of the beyond. Okay, and this is 26 minutes. Here we go. beginning of the 1900s, humanity was being influenced by photographs, newspapers, stage plays, and silent films. During the 1930s, the major studios began creating motion pictures with sound, bringing these stories closer to real life. By the 1960s, color television became a novelty item for several families. Thousands of people could be influenced simultaneously by highly edited stories, giving them a longer glimpse into alternate realities that stage plays and artwork couldn't do. The race for space was underway, and humans began wondering if contact with other worlds could actually be possible. As the late 1960s swept the planet, more and more humans began to awaken to the possibility of a greater reality. And the shades were opened on the occult secrets held in the libraries and new messages began filling the shelves. Channeled texts became more and more available and the occult labels and misconceptions about this mysterious form of spiritual communication began piling up. It was becoming a phenomenon. My interest in the occult began when I was growing up in the 1970s in the borough of Queens in New York City. I was fascinated with mythology and folklore, the paranormal, the supernatural. I vividly remember my sister coming home with books about Bigfoot and flying saucers and the works of Carlos Castaneda. I was very interested in astrology. I wanted to know where all this came from. I grew up in a house that was so haunted, you would set something down, turn around, it would disappear. We'd be watching TV back in the old days where there was a physical dial that you had to stand up, walk across the room and turn the knob. Well, while we're sitting down on the couch watching TV, the knob would turn. We would hear footsteps going up and down the hallway, toilets flushing downstairs. When we were upstairs, it was just so overwhelmingly paranormal. It was crazy. When I started telling my parents, I'm seeing these things, I'm communicating with these things, my parents are like, okay, we need to go back to our old church, which turned out to be a spiritualist church, which is your typical stand-up, sit-down, stand-up, sit-down, stand-up, sing. But services ended when one to three mediums would go up on stage, go into a deep trance, and spirits would channel through them. Every Saturday night in the church basement, we were doing seances. I grew up with this everywhere. 
Now, mind you, also my parents' basement was full of books. I could read about anything that I wanted to. And one of the books that stuck out the most to me was Manly P. Hall's Secret Teaching of All Ages. And as a young teenager, I'm devouring this book going, wow, these are the secrets that I've been after. This is what the whispers have been talking to me about. Whispers are my guide. I'm like, I get it. Somebody's writing about this stuff. Well, growing up Christian, we believed the Bible was channeled by the Holy Spirit. We just didn't use that word. The word channeling is usually associated with the occult and um, mysticism and things that religion tends to shy away from. But if you ask any good Christian to explain how the Bible was written, they'll say, oh, the Holy Spirit possessed one's mind without them knowing it and wrote through them the words that, that it wanted to write. I said, well, it sounds a whole lot like channeling. So it's really just different words for the same thing. If you want to call it um, inspiration, that word can be used as well. But I think especially in religious circles, the word channeling inspires occultism and things like that. So they think it's a word that's, you know, off limits, but it's actually, in my estimation, exactly what they believe of the Bible. Several legendary stories throughout religion have been delivered through humans hearing voices and carving or writing down the messages. This practice continued as oracles, prophets, and poets shared their messages through pen and paper and eventually the typewriter. The practice of automatic writing is another highly debated form of channeling that has several different meanings. But the question remains, who is moving the hands and writing the message? In terms of the modern age, automatic writing is one of the most popular forms of mediumship. And it was very popular in the United States and Europe going back to the mid-19th century where an individual uh, seated with a piece of paper and a writing implement would feel that he or she was receiving some kind of extra physical information. And probably the most popular channel text in modern history, of course, in miracles, could be considered the result of automatic writing. A research psychologist named Helen Shuckman at Columbia University in the 1960s began to hear clairaudient voices, and she composed an extraordinary, comprehensive, complex spiritual psychology that later came to be called A Course in Miracles, and it's probably the most popular channel text in modern history. There's nothing that I would call ordinary audition about this at all. It's a curious thing, and it will be very difficult to explain. Somebody asked me, was it as though your hand was moving? No, I wrote perfectly voluntarily in response to, I call it a voice, but a voice has sounds, or it sounds as though it has something to do with hearing. I didn't hear anything. I think it's the sort of hearing that you can't really describe. It doesn't have anything to do with ears or waves hitting a drum or anything on that order. I don't really know. I think maybe I'm using the wrong word when I say hear. I think mew may be a better word mm -hmm. than heard. I sort of recognized it. It came very easily, very rapidly, very smoothly. If I didn't catch a phrase, I could sort of say, would you mind doing that again? The story is truly remarkable in that Helen Shuckman in the early 1960s, she was working with a colleague, Dr. William Fetford, and they had worked together for many, many years in this field of psychology. 
Helen Shuckman began having psychic dreams, very, very vivid dreams that she said it felt like some kind of entity was contacting me. And for her being an atheist, of course, this felt very bizarre and she almost didn't want to tell anybody about it. But she confided in her colleague and said, I'm having these dreams of an entity coming to me that wants to bring a message through. And it feels like it has a lot of authority and I want to obey it, but I don't know how to bring this message through. And so William said, well, next time you get this message, just say yes to it and start writing and we'll read it together. And if it sounds crazy, we'll throw it in the fire and never talk about it. So that's what Helen did. The first message of A Course in Miracles came through, which Helen describes as an inner voice that spoke to her and said, this is A Course in Miracles. Please take notes. This is strictly mental. Otherwise, I would consider it hallucinatory activity. I don't feel it was that. It wasn't my voice. It couldn't have been because it talked about a whole area with which I am entirely unfamiliar. For some reason or other, it never occurred to me not to do this. I thought that this should be done. I made every effort to keep it without me. I did not want to intrude on it. And I felt that it was a matter of personal integrity not to. I really did not interfere with it. And so she wrote for seven years, almost every day, chapter upon chapter of a book that's, to many people's opinion, probably the most profound channeled work ever came through her, which was a sort of form of psychotherapy using the biblical gospel language that lays down this philosophy of how to be in the world, how to see one another as one, not separate, and how forgiveness actually is the path to heaven, that the only way to get to heaven is through the person right in front of me, because heaven is entered two by two. And Helen herself said she wasn't the best student of the course. Uh, she wasn't very good at living this philosophy, which to me just speaks even more about the validity of the channeling itself, that this wasn't something she could have made up herself. I think the thing that I found upsetting about it was it went against everything I believe, which is very hard to do. But I felt it was much more important. I know what I believe, but I didn't know what this was going to do next. Shuckman identified herself as the scribe, but not as the author. And she made this work freely available to people. And it first began circulating through small study groups and then later was published in the early 1970s and went on to become a worldwide phenomenon. There are a number of reasons that A Course in Miracles displays so much spiritual genius in the way that it's written. One can read this text, and even if you don't know the language yet, you can read it and go, my goodness, this is profound. There's something alive in this text, and it starts to pull on you, and you want to learn the language system. And so the course is a true channel text in that, just like all true channel texts, it will meet you where you're at, spiritually speaking, and you'll understand what you're ready to understand. But the deeper you go in your development, the deeper the book goes. And so that's why channel texts, especially like A Course in Miracles, are texts that people return to again and again for decades and decades of their life. And every time you read it, it feels like you've never read it before. I haven't caught up with it yet. And I, I don't understand it. And I still feel very baffled by it. 
I do think, and under certain circumstances, I think there are questions I could probably write an answer to. According to the court, we should, and everyone could, ask about anything and get an answer. Now, even if one takes a hardcore materialist view of life and says, look, there's no such thing as extra physical cognition, that's all delusion, she was writing this down from her own psyche, from her own subconscious. Let's go with that for a moment. Let's go with the materialist point of view. That doesn't reduce by one iota the extraordinary nature of Shuckman's accomplishment. If a work as complex, as moving, as rich, as insightful as A Course in Miracles came from the subconscious of a research psychologist, a self-professed atheist who just sat down and took notes. What does that tell us about the unknown folds of our own psyches? At a certain point, the materialist or immaterialist argument almost becomes irrelevant. Does it really matter whether a skeptic or I agree or disagree about the nature of the source, look at the result. Another influential woman who was raised near the famous Burned Over District in upstate New York was Jane Roberts. In the early 1960s, she and her partner, Robert Butts, began experimenting with a Ouija board. We bought a Ouija board. We didn't even buy one. And... Uh, <laughs> After I forget once or twice or something, we started to get stuck on the board. The pointer would uh, go over the alphabet and spell messages. Okay. And uh, after a while, the messages said they came from a personality called Beth. The first thing I thought of was, well, it's a subconscious. Uh, Rob was pushing it, or Robert saying yeah. I was pushing it. So we went through that long yes. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And after only um, <clears throat> maybe five or six, seven sessions with it. Uh, Seth came through vocally. I would yeah. start to know what was going to be said, and then I would start to want to speak. I just began speaking the words automatically mm-hmm. for Seth without knowing what I was saying until I came out of trance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no training, per se, for this. Uh, no self-hypnosis, nothing. It just came up. Although I did get consent. That is, um, had I not wanted to do it, Mm-hmm. It wouldn't even happen. Okay. But I was so curious. I wanted to know mm-hmm. what was happening. The revolutionary book, Seth Speaks, was published in the early 1970s and went on to become part of the game-changing 32-book collection referred to as The Seth Material. The first time I heard about the idea of channeling was when I came across Jane Roberts and The Seth Material. And that's when that word sort of started sticking in the nomenclature of of the New Age movement. When I was a kid, one of my mom's favorite books was Seth Speaks. Seth is a higher level spirit that was being channeled through Jane Roberts. Now, Jane Roberts was one of those fun people that didn't know she had these abilities. Just it came on like a flash, like a blip of information coming through. So she figured, okay, this is a spirit trying to talk. I should do what everyone else does, grab the Ouija board. And that worked. That worked for a while. But then she realized she was more of a mental medium and that the spirit was speaking through her 
doing the automatic writing thing, communicating with her. So she was writing all of these books as Seth channeling through her. My consciousness was just gone. And I, it wasn't an out of body in the respect that I had another body. Mm-hmm. What I did, my consciousness through like the window and then into the leaves and into everything. And it wasn't until I came back that I found this script and realized that, you know, I had to have written it. I wasn't aware of my body at all, or the manuscript or writing or anything. I was, but the thing that was that uh, the stuff that was in the script was stuff I had felt while I was out. But when I was out, I would go in atoms and molecules, and I felt their consciousness. But then when I read the script, it was terribly hard to accept portions of it uh, because it pretty much went against what I've been taught. One of the biggest messages from Seth that I think is so profound is that we create our reality. Whatever our inner world is, whatever we think, believe, and feel, we're projecting that outward and that we'll find ways to make that reality conform to our belief and that we create that. And my mom loved these books. She talked about Seth all the time. And I think that was one of the things that kept her positive throughout her life and her spiritual development is these lessons that came from Seth through Jane Roberts just really enhanced her spiritual work and her spiritual practices simply just by knowing this information helped her out dramatically. People, you might use them or think of them as symbols. Or you might, no matter how you speak to them, they have their own fantastic individuality. And whenever any beliefs, even our own, blind you to that, you have lost. Whenever you relate to someone as simply a belief or you get your back up and you don't see their reality, then we've lost. We'll bring you closer to people. It will not divide you. If it, if it divides you, that is not what it is. Jane Roberts' material, the one thing that sticks with me is... The point of power is the now. And I think that was a pivotal piece of information for everybody to hear. And so I began to realize maybe I could do that myself. And so when I did start going into medicine work, I would be having these things come forth that were well beyond my pay grade. I thought, this is Hindu material at the essence of these philosophical teachings and so forth. And that was thrilling too, because I think it's important for people and especially women to feel like they can be bringing forth this high level philosophical information as well. Interestingly enough, the Seth material came out at the right time. It was in the 60s where people were already starting to explore alternate paths of spirituality. They were starting to question orthodox religion and they're clamping down on what spiritual practice has to be so people were now open and trying to explore some of this extra material they wanted to know what the nature of spirituality versus religion was so the seth material came in at the right time to actually spawn that new age movement that the spiritual world can be peace love and light and happiness that you can achieve these higher states of being without the rigorous orthodoxy that you can be that conduit of spiritual growth rather than 
some church telling that you have to do it our way. And that's the only way. So the timing of Seth's material was perfect to spawn this whole new age movement so that we could actually tune in and become our own spiritual teachers. Now, I don't call Seth a spirit guide. I never thought of Seth in some white cloud spirit who was just floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of my life's work certainly is to try to understand the nature of our personalities, mm-hmm. you know, our personalities, mm-hmm. what abilities we've got, mm-hmm. uh, what happens so that we can get this kind of information. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I really hope is that people would begin to trust their own uh, revelatory experience and not automatically cloak it in whatever dogma they believe in. Jane Roberts, I think, was really someone who opened the door for a lot of people to know that they could investigate these things, that there are some profound differences in states of beings that humans can get into. And certainly, the Seth material was really quite amazing and quite distinct from almost anything else that was out there at the time. I think she's generally considered sort of the the mother of modern channeling, you know? And I know a lot of channels have sort of gravitated to the way she presented herself in, in a certain way, and so have I. She was very, in a sense, irreverent about it, which was interesting because I know she smoked, I know she drank a beer before she channeled, to loosen herself up. And, you know, different people have different ways of getting into that state. And if she felt she needed to just lose a little bit of her inhibitions to do so, well, then that's what worked for her. But I think that the fundaments of the Seth material, the core information in the Seth material, I think you'll find that in almost any channel now, because it really, for the first time, I think, in modern times, touched on a lot of those core principles that, I mean, you know, truth is true. They may be said in slightly different ways by different channels or different philosophers at different times. But I think the Seth material really laid out the foundation for what the core principles of metaphysics were really all about. Real metaphysics, not just outdated ideas, but the core of metaphysics. The idea of channeling uses the same mechanism. It's just it depends upon the theme that the person chose, the agreements that were made, so on and so forth. <clears throat> but Seth is a multidimensional, non-physical being at this time who has experiences in physical reality as well. So the knowledge gathered <clears throat> from all those experiences collected back into what you might call a type of oversoul that can then share those experiences from a different perspective as the collected self through beings like Jane Roberts, that are open to receiving such transmission. As these powerful channeled messages created a strong foundation for this growing phenomenon, these influential women ignited the spirit of many to dive deeper into the nature of reality. As most will discover, there is one constant message delivered throughout the ages. The ancient wisdom such as the teachings of Vedic ancient India, where we have these beautiful texts, which are basically communications between wise people and spiritual intelligence that told them of the nature. They intuited it, they experienced it through this multidimensional communication. 
the nature of reality itself, that all is consciousness, all is mind and consciousness, all the way through the great religious teachings, all the way through to the more modern channeled texts, such as the text of Seth and A Course in Miracles, almost all of them speak that the deepest reality of the universe is that of love. And what now I and others are bringing forward with the evidence for such unity expressed in diversity is I sometimes call it the science of love. <sighs> so in that regard, I honor all the incredible giants on whose shoulders we stand, whether they be scientific giants, spiritual, or in whatever way, because the scientific pioneers also channeled in many ways their own deeper understanding of the nature of reality. What I do feel is important is to honor and receive that wisdom, embody it in our lives, and then go on our own adventure. So not to be held within it as that, that, that is the only way, that is the only message. Because when we look across this vast panoply of wisdom, we see both the unity of its underlying perception and we see the diversity in which it's expressed. And to continue that journey in our own lives, I just feel is incredibly important. When uh, you look in the mirror, you see uh, images uh, of yourself. But you do not perceive uh, the inner self that you know exists. And uh, so uh, each of us here asks each of us to realize that you have uh, an inner identity that you cannot uh, physically perceive. And in other words, that you do not hear with your ears. Each of us here therefore asks for you to admit the validity of your own being, to enjoy the being that you see and feel and touch, and yet to realize that you have still a greater vitality and reality. Manly Palmer Hall. <clears throat> Maybe we'll do some readings from that book. There's some amazing teachings in that book. I haven't done this as early as this for, I can't remember, yet I'm going to do it now. <laughs> I'm going to pass this talking stick with angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and leprechauns and menahunis and all kinds of little people and even Sasquatch, big people. Those white ones in the Himalayas, Rama, they're... Oh, I forget the name of them. forgot the name of them. But there's some food that has come in different names and um, it's called lichen. It's on the walls on the inside of the caves that are way up high in the Himalayas. 
And that's all these, uh, for ba- better words or not, they're white Sasquatch people. And they live way up there, and uh, that's what they eat. I'm just going to say, so many things are changing now, and we're finding out who we are by the second. The acceleration of awakening is remarkable right now. And so I'm going to pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird, because I know that you have some words, wise words to share with us. Here it comes. Oh, I got that talking stick. Thank you. Is that your ball of snowman there? <laughs> so, what was that? The abominable snowman. I was trying to think of the name of who you're speaking of. Oh, uh, well, it could be related. I think there's another name, though, but we'll, oh. we'll have yeah. to look it up. I know it's up there in that old internet. That thing has uh, quite a repertoire of information. We <laughs> call him Yeti. Yeah. Yeti. Oh, yes. Yeti. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Yeti. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so much gratitude for tonight. So much good stuff. And oh. So expansive. And wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you brought. Yes. And we thank the ones that have um, chosen to share tonight, too. This. Yeah, yeah. Really waking up, boy. Good sharing tonight. Yeah. So lots of gratitude for all of us. We did it another weekend. (laughs) And we've got Cheryl's coming up, so we're just, we're just staying right on it and changing all the time. Who am I today? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So lots of gratitude. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. You got some music? Yeah. Okay, thank you. And um, you have some words of wisdom from Rama? Oh, well, this is Rumi. And Rumi, you found another Rumi. Uh, you'll recognize. Oh, good. Here we go. Oh, Didn't 
Take yourself to be the lies a shining diamond, your true identity. I'm your primal innocence, your spring of purity. Your essence is souls in me. Maybe I can ask you maybe to mute out. I don't know if you can hear me. I, you know, I am muted out, but I had to unmute to say that. Oh, okay. Okay. I was just going to say that um, we're not alone. So much not alone right now than ever before. And uh, there's higher levels of the layers now that we're being... Uh, contacted by and um, 
let's let's become friends with uh, contemplation, meditation, and uh, beautiful music in our lives, and uh, a peaceful walk. <laughs> um, Rama keeps on going into the forest and talking with the deer and the crow. Yeah. You want to say more about that, Ram? Just uh, if you listen to them in that great silence, they will share everything the universe has to offer. They will, won't they? Yeah. Maybe I'll just, we have a few minutes, just read the beginning of Caroline's new book, Messages from the Spirits of Abundance. Let's see what she's got. The subtitle is Channel Guidance from the Spirits of Prosperity and True Wealth. Okay, let's see. Oh, these are people's comments. Okay. Brilliant. Through Caroline Oceana Ryan's impeccable channeling of the spirits of prosperity and true wealth, we learn new levels of insight on how to understand the spirit of abundance and how to receive it palpably in our lives. This is all about sharing, everybody. This gives us more mind-blowing perspectives on wealth that can change our current comprehension and attitude on how to access our financial freedom and peace of mind. I mean, even at the point of having it, the how-to of how to share it is a whole other science of the mind and the heart. A must read. And, uh, this is from a lady named Sandra Bellin Thomas, Soul Blueprint Codes, Illuminator, Alchemist, and Ascension Guide, and Inspirational Events Host, Sandra Thomas, uh, Think, Think If Dot com. Okay, T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C. Sandra Thomas, thinkific.com. Okay, I'll read another one here. As you want to improve your financial flow, I highly recommend reading Messages from the Spirits of Abundance. It is full of powerful insights and gems like these. Money does not come forth to resolve need. It flows forth to affirm plenty. Many do not realize that money is an aware energy that hears what people say about it and responds 
in understandable ways. Your higher self will hold you in a place where you must come into peaceful acceptance of your lives first before you receive your desires. I have proved to myself over and over again that money really is an aware energy that responds to our deep-seated feelings about it. Start changing the way you feel today by reading this book. Bernadette Wolf, author of Money Magic. Uh, Go Days to Prosperity. Oh, 90 Days to Prosperity. And director uh, Faye Hallow's School of Magic. Wow, CelticMysterySchool.com. That sounds very, very exciting. <laughs> I think we have, oh, we have a song, huh, Rama? One more song. Okay, I will just read one more of these, or two at the most. Abundance has been knocking at your door for years. Yet will you answer? Caroline's channeled words from the masters will help you hear the knocking and throw wide the door. Abundance is here for you. Now, buy this book, for it's a must-read. Kathy A. Korn, R-N-R-M-M-T author of The Lilith and the Fairies, Supernatural Romantic Surprise Series, Kathy A. Korn, author.com. I highly recommend Caroline Oceana Ryan's new book as it sheds brilliant insights into money, prosperity, and abundance. These insights gives the reader an opportunity to shift their perspectives and embrace the abundance they already have and explain how to create more of what they have been asking for. In my opinion, this is a must-read. The Nyack, Doctor of Bioenergetics and co-host, A Night at the Round Table. BBSRadio.com. Okay, music maestro. Mm. Can you want to share what this, what's the name of this lovely piece? Oh, fairy night songs. Fairy night songs. Here we go. Yay! Yes, yes, yes. Oh my! I'm going to invite everybody to join us. It's such a powerful moment. We're making this transition into completion, everybody. So I'll just enjoy sharing with you that Cheryl Croce has a little meditation time with all of us. And it's every Sunday evening and Monday evening. And the number is 
starts at 7 o'clock Mountain Time, a little bit before, which would be 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. And so the numbers number is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUNDS. 425-436-6260 and 946-7441-POUND is the PIN code. And we spend about three hours for the whole of all good things to come to everyone. So, Satnam for now. Satnam, Rama. Satnam, Ki. Aho, Mitakuyasan. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper. That's what time it is. All right, aloha and uh, namaste. Namaste until we see you again in your dreams. Aloha.